Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 89 of Through the Years, the podcast that reviews Ring of Honor show by show from the beginning. My name is Trevor Game, joined as always by the co-host Matt Feuerstein. And as always, we have our audio tuxes on because this is the, uh, let's see, it's the one, two, three, the fourth annual, although it's only, it's not quite annual because we take so long to do these shows, but it's the fourth annual but not quite annual <laughs> through the years, end of the year show. We have finally come to the end of another calendar year of Ring of Honor stuff, which means, as always, for our newer listeners, we will review Final Battle, and then we will do like a whole extra mini episode bit at the end where we do give out some awards, go over some other people's awards, talk about the whole year, look forward to next year. It's a whole big thing. Matt, we're all spiffed up. How are you doing? Love those uh, extra mini episodes specials that we that we do. Um, yeah, so we've done four years in five years, um, and I think that's probably better than we expected. Honestly, uh, going uh, the rate we were going earlier, so I think the pandemic actually helped us uh, speed up our pace a little bit. So um, yeah. So thank you to the pandemic. No, just kidding. Um, <laughs> that evens everything out. You know, all the bad things, the pandemic, but occasionally you get it a week earlier. This one Ring of Honor podcast now, I right. think the scales of the karmic scales are evened because of that. Don't blame us for COVID. As, man, as much as <laughs> you're tempted to and as much as almost everything is our fault, it's not our fault that uh, – that, um, that there's the, the pandemic. I'm going to edit some of this. I don't know what exactly, but this is not <laughs> going to appear on the podcast exactly as we said it. Um, but um, what I was uh, going to say was uh, sometimes I feel like these year-end specials that we do um, where we get the final battle, it's almost a bigger celebration than the actual end of a present-day year or like New Year's Eve is for us because I think of it like this. At least when we get to the end of a year in through the years – we can feel like we, A, accomplish something, and B, have something to look forward to. Not something that we can really say about the real world. So <laughs> thank you through the years for giving us that. I was about to say, like, you said exactly pretty much what I was going to say, which is like, at the end of all these sh- episodes, I get kind of wistful. Like, I was like, man, it's crazy that, like, we're done this part of, you know, like, this and we won't go back to this exact part and we had some good times and then you're kind of yeah like excited for the next part and then yeah i was thinking just like you like oh that's how normal human beings are supposed to feel about like the end of actual years of their lives which i never feel like instead i feel just full of regret and panic of like time is running out if it makes you if it makes you feel better better trevor i don't think anyone actually feels that way about the end of real years everyone is living in a nightmare Nobody we know, at least. Yeah. Um, but but yeah, it, it, it's it's um it's always a little bittersweet. You know you know what the weird thing is. I mean, I don't know why I'm rambling when it's such a long episode, probably. But I just want to say, I was thinking the other day, like maybe because the last few years have been so weird, but there's so much in my life that just runs together. Like there's so many things where I can't remember if it happened like a day ago or five years ago. Maybe not that extreme, but you know, kind of what I mean. But yet, like. There are various moments in this podcast, even though all of this podcast is just me in three or four different locations, sitting or laying down, talking to you, looking at the same laptop screen. Like, I can remember where I was or little things that I did while recording the podcast where I can't remember, like, important life events that happened in the last years. Like, like in a weird way, this podcast has kind of framed the last half decade of my life. 
Well, hmm. I feel like I've just been in the same apartment the entire yeah. time. So this, I, I, I feel like, uh, I do remember where I was, but only because I, there's, there was, there's no other options. There was one time when I was traveling in Europe. I wasn't, I didn't record the podcast from there, but I did, I do remember watching Night of the Butcher <laughs> and taking notes <laughs> while I was there. And there was one, um, time where I recorded the podcast from a friend's apartment in Washington, D.C., and that was the only other place I've ever recorded except for here. And that's the story of the past five years for me. <laughs> Folks, see if you can spot which episode it is. <laughs> Go back and re-listen to them all. <laughs> I actually am trying to remember which one it is. I, I could, if I thought about it enough, I could figure it out. But I, I, I don't know off the top of my head, actually, which is – I don't know if that's good or bad. Try to uh, find the two or three episodes I've done where I've been in horrible physical pain during them. I can't even remember which ones they are. So uh, anyway, <laughs> let's move on. So uh, if you want to, if you want to investigate what locations and w- what we're feeling, as we just challenged you to do, a reminder that we have three different ways to listen. There's the pro wrestling only feed. If you just look for pro wrestling only on your favorite podcast thing, that's for if you want. Our show, along with a bunch of other shows, if you just want a neat, clean archive that is just us, just look up through the years on any podcast app of choice. And if you want it in a browser window for some reason, we are on YouTube. So that's that. Um, Matt, let's get right to it. Final Battle 2005, the last show of 2005. In fact, the final battle of 2005. It took place December 17th, 2005 at the... Inman Sports Complex in Edison, New Jersey, in front of a reported crowd of 950 fans. Uh, the Pro Wrestling Torch reported when they announced this building, they wrote, Yet another new venue in Edison, New Jersey, which will be their fourth building in New Jersey in 2005. I did not go back and check. I just assumed they're correct. But, uh, like, man, it feels like Ring of Honor in a lot of their major markets had problems. Like, just – I mean, they're going through that right now with New York. You know, we, we just – Saw New York had Basketball City, and they'll we'll run only one more show at Basketball City before moving to yet another new venue there. I mean, I'm, Philadelphia. I'm, I'm thinking it's their third venue in New Jersey. I I could think of Rexplex, Rexplex, the venue in Morristown that had Night of the Grudges, um, two and Death Before Dishonor three, and then this one. I, I unless I'm going crazy, I can't think of a. Oh, oh, I remember now. The As yes, the Asbury Park show for a special the american super juniors okay good yes it it was four oh my gosh so four different venues for new jersey um in one year like you know philly had a million venues boston had a million venues of course now they're not going to go back to boston for a long time at this point in the timeline but yeah just it's kind of funny when you think about like certain place how certain indies have such a hard time and then you think of a place like uh PWG ran the same building in Reseda for so long until they literally tore it down. Like, and then other indies, other markets, it's just they can't nail it down. So, although, although this is this is it for them for Jersey. They, this is this is their their home for a few years now. Uh, once you know, they uh, they they pretty much settle into this venue. And of course, the big draw on the show was uh, the debut of Kenta and Marafuji from uh, Noah. And uh, The Observer wrote when they were booked, um, Dave wrote, apparently the advance for seeing Kent on the show is ahead of the advance when Great Muda worked for Ring of Honor, which ended up as one of the biggest crowds in company history. Now, if uh, the numbers are correct, uh, The Great Muda Show drew significantly more than this. It drew well over a thousand, I think, people, according to The Observer at the time. But, I mean, this did very well. I mean, technically, 
this show drew more than Kenta Co- Kenta drew more than Kenta Kobashi did in Ring of Honor. Although that's a little disingenuous in the sense that they probably could have fit more people in the New York show, but they basically at that point, you know, the, the building that we're running at that point in time could only fill probably like 800 people or something. So, but still, you know, people were excited for Kenta. He was like the new hotness in a uh, Japanese wrestling at this time. This was one, like one of your first opportunities to see him stateside. And I would and say, then- and I would say for American wrestling fans in 2005, Noah was kind of like the it promotion, right? Like that was yeah. the one that was getting the most buzz from American fans. I mean, still nothing compared to like New Japan at its peak, but – and nothing compared to some of the – you know, even New Japan and All Japan during the 90s. But, you know, to the extent that American fans were into uh, Japanese wrestling in the uh, in the early 2000s, Noah was the one that everyone was really paying the most attention to and the one that was getting the most coverage in the Wrestling Observer also. Yeah, de- definitely. Uh, Dave, when the show actually happened, he continued – uh, the show drew 950 fans and may have set the company's all-time record for merchandise sales. It was definitely the company's biggest merchandise night of the year. It was clear that Kenta drew a lot of extra fans, although it was known that while Kenta was the star of the show, based on reactions, in particular to the spot where fans throw toilet paper at Jimmy Rave, which is relatively new, and, and that all the fans there seemed to know the Ring of Honor guys, that it wasn't a Noah crowd that didn't know Ring of Honor. The show itself went four and a half hours, which was a good one hour longer than expected. Part of it was so much merchandise was being sold, and they don't come back from intermission until the gimmick table lines are down. Part of it was part of it was that up no part of it was that up and down the show, virtually every match went a few minutes longer than it was booked for. Matt, I don't know how little. Ricky Reyes and Davey Andrews possibly could have been booked for it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know exactly. I um, you know, it's interesting though because on so I was at this show. You know, I don't remember exactly how long it felt or how long it was live, but on video, I guess they did it a ton of editing because it didn't feel like a particularly long show. They really kept it moving, and there's one match in particular where the listed time in the observer is much 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 longer than the time on the dvd and i'm just trying to rack my brain to remember like if if i know for sure that it was edited to the degree that it was but we'll get to that when we get to the match Uh, we will get to later there's a promo on this show that is edited but maybe perhaps probably for not for time reasons but yeah I, i didn't include this in the notes but i think i saw one other live report that said the show ended sometime after midnight and i remember that was always a big deal online because you know some people definitely have things to do the next day and, and it, depending on especially how much you tra- how far you travel to go to a ring of honor show i knew there were, uh, there was always a, a little bit of i i know grousing whenever a show went past midnight like god damn it yeah. like, this is late and i guess after if it ends after midnight that is pretty much officially four and a half hours but because it started the shows would begin at seven thirty on saturdays so um so it does make sense so um uh, the Torch wrote that the Ring of Honor was happy with the attendance in Edison, New Jersey. And, of course, yeah, that would be a pretty good attendance for Ring of Honor in 2005. Uh, and a couple other quick notes before we get to a special section, Matt, that's not quite worthy of 
just being in random news, but gets its own section. But first, a couple other tidbits. Uh, Dave Meltzer also would write, Kenta and Naomichi Marafuji with two straight Tag Team of the Year awards. Debut as a team in the U.S. on the 12-17 final battle show. They do not debut as a team, Dave. They're in singles matches in Edison, New Jersey. Uh, he wrote, the two, along with Takeshi Rikio, are coming to the U.S. for a week. Rikio will be working for WLW, but I don't think he's coming to Ring of Honor. So, for those who don't know, Takeshi Rikio was this big heavyweight guy. He was actually the man who dethroned Kenta Kobashi's long um, GHC World Heavy, which was Noah's world title, still his um, title reign in 2005, which is why Kenta Kobashi did not have the title when he faced Joe. In fact, I believe Rikio was the champion until like a month before the show. I think he lost it to Akira Tawe. So it's funny that they could have had like another recent Noah champion, but I, maybe they presume that like, I mean, Rikio, I don't think ever works at Ring of Honor. So maybe they just presumed like he was not quite the super worker of the guys, other guys. So maybe that they thought, yeah, we don't need this guy, or maybe he just didn't want to work Ring of Honor. But it was interesting they could have possibly had a third guy. There, there was no buzz to like for or like push to get him in the at the time no. from the fans at all. It, it was not like Kobashi. Like that was like feeding a demand. So was Kenta and Marafuji. This this would not have been. No offense to him, but like that was not what people were demanding at this time. Yeah, maybe two people on the Death Valley driver message boards or something. I, I don't know. But, but uh, and then finally, Matt, I just wanted to include this because I love notes like this. So uh, we'll be referencing him, I think, at least one other time during this episode. But a uh, uh, guy at the time wrote a live report for the Pro Wrestling Torch, Michael Tyler. So always give credit to people. And I just love that he included this in his live report. Before the show started, many of the Ring of Honor students ate at, at the Academy, dined at Taco Bell. I, I love that that was just included. Like, hey, I saw a bunch of the students at Taco Bell. And uh, so uh, yeah, Shane big, Hagedorn, big, definitely big, let big us know right, what your order was. Big news right there. <laughs> I still do not have – I still – I tweeted it all those years ago. We still – the coward, he never responded to me. Spanky never told me what was in his order from Wendy's, at, which he was holding in that first Ring of Honor show ever. Still one of the great Ring of Honor mysteries. What is Spanky's order? I think he's a Nuggets man, but who knows? What if he doesn't uh, remember, Trevor? <laughs> <laughs> what if he doesn't remember what he got at a fast food restaurant one day 20 years ago? What if that's I the re- case? I refuse to believe he does. That, that's an important meal in the history of independent U.S. wrestling, Matt. But, okay. Um, okay. Matt, it is time for our special AJ Styles drama section. Da, 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 da. So it all starts. <laughs> that's, the, that's the theme song. <laughs> <laughs> it's halfway between like a breaking news and a very rushed uh, t, uh, TSN or ESPN in America Sports Center jingle. Uh, sure. Observer TNA section. This is Dave covering something that happened in TNA about a week before this show, which will have some ramifications for this show. Dave wrote, on the positive side, the the December 11th Turning Point pay-per-view got generally strong reviews and early returns indicate a lot more buys than the prior month. It was for the most part a decent pay-per-view show with one extraordinary match. The match where Samoa Joe beat AJ Styles to win the X Division title is the first strong candidate for the 2006 match of the year. I've got to pause here and quickly say for anyone that does not know how the Observer Awards worked for years, and I think, I don't know if it still even works this way, but... Dave, because he wanted to get the awards out in a timely fashion, which seems laughable now, um, he would always 
make it so basically the the cutoff for what you could vote for in the Observer Awards would be like sometime in December. So if you're wondering why did he just say a match December 11th, 2005 is an early candidate for 2006 match of the year? I guess technically this match is after the cutoff there. Yeah, I still yeah, think that's it was, always bizarre. Well, so the reason – I mean I'm pretty sure the reason that it was created that way was just because it used to take a long time to get all the – the uh, um votes mailed in like he probably started doing that before email and then you know i think that was it and he just wanted to have the awards issue out by january i'm pretty sure that's why that that timeline ended up like that and then he eventually changed it when he realized that was no longer a logistical issue anymore like when, what what year did he finally change that like 2015 like something like that i'm not sure but yeah. it is still bizarre like we will get to when we go over the observer awards later in the show like there is a ring of honor match that finishes that happened in 2004 that finishes gets votes in the voting for the 2005 match of the year which is just a weird thing but uh dave continues from what we've been told from a live perspective it was the best tna match ever done in orlando super stiff matches and this was the stiffest in tna history with styles suffering a busted lip and bleeding badly and samoa joe suffering a dislocated jaw don't translate as good on television as they play live in most cases. From a watching on TV perspective, I would only call this among the greatest matches in TNA history. Even though banged up, both Styles and Joe did wrestle at the tapings two nights later. That would be the TNA TV tapings. But Styles cited the injury when pulling out of the December 17th Ring of Honor show in Edison, New Jersey. So, yes, AJ Styles was originally booked for this show. In fact, to show you how snake-bitten one match on the show was, Originally, this was supposed to be Colt Cabana versus Homicide on Final Battle. Then, of course, Homicide got hurt against Steve Carino, which we covered on the last show. Then it was supposed to be AJ Styles versus Colt Cabana. And then AJ Styles pulls out because he gets hurt and it ends up being Colt Cabana versus Asriel. So Suitable replacement. <laughs> so significant. They got one good replacement. Not, nothing against Asriel, but they couldn't quite keep up the center for a second replacement. For, but, what, it's, for what it's worth, I, um, I haven't seen that AJ Styles versus Samoa Joe match in many, many, many years, but I remember thinking at the time that it was my favorite TNA match to that point. Also, um, it was it was either that or one of the uh, America's Most Wanted against Triple uh, X matches. Uh, those are those were the two that I thought were the best as of uh, December two thousand and five. But I cannot verify if I still would think that. My memory is worse than yours, but I am willing to take your word for it. Would you say it was actually better than like? Didn't one of the three ways already happen? Yeah, the uh, I yeah I liked it better than the uh, three way from Unbreakable. Wow, that's uh, uh, that's big praise. So yeah, yeah I thought it told, I thought it told a better story. Um, I at, at, at the time again, I do not know if I would still think that, but that is what I thought in two thousand and five. I can definitely see that just because I think in general, singles matches usually tell better stories than three ways just because three ways are a bit more moving parts to kind of air towards more of like just lots of big spots, which can be really fun. Yeah, but similar to how I liked uh, Danielson against Loki more than I like the Danielson Loki Daniels three way. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so going back to the observer as the story kind of continues to unfold, uh, Dave actually wrote the scheduled AJ Styles versus Colt Cabana matches off for Ring of Honor. Styles had his lip torn open in the match with Samoa Joe and took seven stitches. He then had it re-injured two nights later, and another injury could require him needing plastic surgery. So you think, okay, that's no big deal. You know, yeah, guys worried about re-injuring something if it's been badly hurt twice. So, you know, don't work the show. And then, though, Matt, 
AJ Styles actually did wrestle this weekend of the final battle. He just did not work for Ring of Honor. So we will go to a Ring of um, a Wrestling Observer recap of a Ring of Glory show. And for people that don't remember Ring of Glory, Ring of Glory was a Christian-themed independent wrestling promotion booked by Vince Russo. That That is all true. I'm not making any of that up. Uh, Dave recaps from that show. AJ Styles pinned Abyss. Abyss's left arm cuts from the barbed wire, barbed wire match five days earlier were cut open again. Styles' lip was busted open for the third time in a week. There was quite the controversy because Styles had called Ring of Honor earlier in the week to cancel his appearance on December 17th, citing injuries. And then he worked the show. If you think about it, it does make sense to a degree. Styles knew he wouldn't have nearly the pressure to put on as physical of a match in this setting. Plus, he was in the semi-main event as opposed to a prelim match. And being religious, probably felt this wasn't a show he wanted to miss because he, he was a key part of this show. Plus, the show already had tons of no-shows, and at least Lex Luger was known in advance because he's in jail, and he was the biggest mainstream name booked. You really can't get away with holding back in Ring of Honor very well, and for sure AJ can't, and he's got a lot on his plate and likely felt it wasn't worth the risk. Still, it did leave some embarrassment to Gabe Sapolsky in Ring of Honor, which immediately got out the word that Styles wasn't going to be there, and had no idea he still he was still working this match, and didn't know until they showed up at the building the next night and some fans brought it up. So it probably would have been better if he had made it clear beforehand because it led to people questioning whether the injury was legit. Obviously it was. His cancellation at Ring of Honor was fear that the lip would be busted open working a physical match, but even in the more careful setting, it was busted open anyway. So at least his fear was well-grounded. He was afraid he'd need plastic surgery if he risked ripping open the stitches. Styles, after the main event ended, came out and gave a speech about religion and challenged everyone to become a better Christian. Lots of no-shows, besides Luger, still in jail in Minneapolis, Ron Killings, Tracy Brooks, Chris Harris, Sonny Siaki, Jerry Lynn, and Brad Armstrong all no-showed. Gosh, was that rambly or what? Yeah, that that was a lot of day. But, I mean, it's it's funny, one, like... Like, look, I, I will never judge a wrestler for not um, going to a show because they're afraid of being injured. But I do think you should then tell them ahead of time that you're going to work somewhere else instead. Because, yeah, I can imagine Ring of Honor, there probably was some egg on their face. Like you said, AJ's hurt and he's wrestling Abyss for Vince Russo in this other promotion. Um, it's also interesting that, that the, I mean, maybe there was, he was more banged up than just the lip, but this all really focuses just on the lip. You would think like wrestling Colt Cabana, like of all the body parts that you would want to protect in a wrestling match, I have to imagine the lip could be fairly easy to protect. I mean, maybe I'm missing something, but like, I think like you don't have to throw strikes to the face. I don't think you have to take a lot of bumps on your face. I mean, where I guess that, clearly, where did they say the ring of glory show was? Uh, I'm not sure. I don't think they gave a location, at least in the part I uh, looked up. Maybe I'll look quickly, but maybe because maybe the travel will you know played a part also. You know, obviously AJ Styles didn't live in the Northeast, and so you know maybe that had something to do with it. Like you know, as far as like, well, I can just go and work a quick show. I'm not you know I'm hurt, but I'm not so hurt that I can't do that. I don't know. I do get the logic of they expect more from Ring of Honor matches. Mm-hmm. Like, I do get that, but yeah, he should have been very, very, very transparent about it. Yeah, I just, I, I, I was just thinking, like, Ring of Honor, um, 
like Cole Cabana, I mean, like he is a guy. I think uh, if you were had to tell me I had to wrestle someone in like a safe invite, a safe way, like to kind of protect me, he would be one of the guys I would really trust with that. Um, AJ Styles wrestled Abyss at Ring of Glory at the Forum in Rome, Georgia. So it would have been Georgia. So probably AJ lives in Georgia, I, I assume. He's from there. Yeah. So I, I could see that being a very easy, maybe driving distance show. So yeah, I could see that being a, uh, being an aspect of this too. But anyway, that is Matt on the next, in the upcoming shows, I don't know when we'll tell a story in the next show or whenever there will be a, uh, another story of a, of a wrestler in ring of honor who no shows a ring of honor show and then ends up working a different show anyway. And uh, that relationship will end in uh, a different way. And we, and he might be a person working the opener of this, of this card, in fact. But first, <laughs> we, uh, we go to this, we go to the start of the DVD. We open with a backstage promo from Low Key as in-ring highlights of Key's Ring of Honor career play. Key tells us that it's been over a year since he started working full-time for Pro Wrestling Noah. He says he has more skill, intensity, and ability than ever before. Tonight, he wrestles, he wrestles Kenta, and he says he will walk away GHC, Junior Heavyweight Champion. So just very quick promo to establish that. Another um another issue with the production here though, like which we always get on these at this point. Like the audio is like just way too low in the mix in compared to the music, you know, like the music is so loud that low key sounds low and the video of him like in the back like all the videos that are shot backstage at this venue are very like weirdly washed out as, you know, often happens in ROH. Um the clips that they show are good, though. Like, the video editing is good. But the audio, not good. The audio mix. And the uh, the clips of low-key talking, also not good. That is my assessment yeah. of this video. <laughs> and uh, it felt like even the mix, like, it feel, th- this show felt like, on, th- there's been multiple shows lately that we've watched where it felt like the 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 crowd noise was mixed, like, significantly louder than the audio of the commentary to the point where at times it was hard to hear the commentary when the crowd got really excited. But I guess if you want to err on one side or the other, I guess I'd rather you erred on the crowd over the announcing, although I would just like a, a good mix of audio. You want but- no, you want no erring at all. <laughs> Um, I want an air-free zone. Um, so there was two dark matches before the show that we do not get to see. As usual, just student matches. Uh, Mitch Franklin and Smash Bradley defeated Bobby Dempsey and Derek Dempsey. And Pele Primo beats Shane Hagedorn. That brings us to the opener that we did get to see. Jimmy Ray, scored to the ring by by Prince Nana, defeated Milano Collection AT via pinfall in 12 minutes, 44 seconds, after he hit the greetings from Ghana, the pedigree. Matt, this would end up being the final match of Milano Collection AT's very short Ring of Honor career. What'd you think about this? Well, before I talk about the match, um, I should mention, like, this is the first time I was ever at this venue also, um, which I'd be back too many times. And I thought this was a very enjoyable place to watch a show. Um, it was kind of dim. Uh, this was also another, like, hockey rink that, that the show was, that there, um, the matches in the, you know, the arena was set up on. And it was, um, so, like, it could be kind of cold in the winter months, but, like, unlike the, um, the basketball city that they just ran the, a uh, couple weeks before, or maybe it was even, yeah, it was two weeks before, um, this one had a really nice sight line. It had bleachers. It was a very pleasant place to watch a show. You never felt too far away from anything, even though it was a pretty, 
decently sized venue by ROH standards. So, and it was also just such an odd location. Like it was just like off route one and nine, just in a suburban, you know, greener, a lot of greenery around area, just very unassuming place off the side of the road where you could go see like international superstars that just were wrestling the Tokyo (laughs) Dome. It's very weird how independent wrestling works that way, right? You know, just these, these really like nothing buildings that you see these legendary matches or amazing wrestling superstars. It's kind of crazy. Um, but, but I like this place. I was, uh, you know, at a certain point, I think that the crowds kind of died, like not in terms of attendance, but in terms of enthusiasm. Cause like any place to get burned out, but these early shows there, this is the first year that they were running here. I thought it was a really nice place to watch a show. Um, but that all being said, um, as far as the match, first of all, this was by far the biggest toilet paper shower for Jimmy Rave, which I think Meltzer even mentioned yeah. in his recap. It was very noticeable. This is like the beginning of this era where the toilet paper becomes a major, major part of the show for Rave. Um, also, another interesting pattern that I noticed, he loses a big blow-off cage match, Rave does, and then immediately on the next show, he's in the opener, which is exactly what happened after he lost the cage match to CM Punk at Nowhere to Run. He goes right back to the opener. It's weird that they do that. Like He blows off a feud, and then he's back on the bottom of the card. I don't know... Uh, I don't know if that's the best way to go about it. I'm not sure, but he'll be back in a world title match before too long. Um, also, Lenny Leonard mentions that the story was, and maybe this was true, I don't know, but it's the story was that Lenny Leonard was not on the last show because he had bad sushi because he was trying to, quote, immerse himself in the Japanese culture because of the <laughs> influx of Japanese talent coming into ROH. And I was like, well, that is one way to explain it. I... Uh, don't know if that's what that's what I would have gone with, but it was one way to explain it. <laughs> I would have loved if he just kept doing that, like for the next two shows. Like I'm really getting into anime, praise Zach. Like, <laughs> did you see this Dragon Ball? It's pretty good. Like he just started like every episode. He had like every show. He had like a different new Japanese um like thing he was getting into. Like the films of Kira Kurosawa. I mean, I think man, like you could really see George Lucas's influence here. And by the end, he had some sort of like hentai addiction that they had to cure him of. Um, <laughs> That didn't happen, but I'm just saying it would be that would That's be that would be the, that whole, be, the, be the end point. Yes, exactly. The whole bunch of 2006 shows. It's like, sorry guys, I had to go to sex rehab. You know, hentai a little too hot, a little too close to the sun. Old Lenny went to. Yes, uh, uh, if only, if only that could have happened, but it didn't, unfortunately. Um, so the match was, um, first of all, the crowd really, really was having a blast early in this match. Uh, Milano was like really showing his speed, his flexibility. He did the splits. He did the rolls, the quick transitions. The crowd was rocking on all of his big spots. He did the thing where he does the paradise lock where he ties Rave up in the ropes and milks it for a while until he hits a running, like I guess, basement drop kick. You know, the crowd loved that. Uh, you know, um, Rave eventually took over. Things slowed down a bit. And things were going really smoothly until they eventually sort of botched a Northern Light suplex because Milano just pancaked face first on the mat instead of going all the way over into the bridge, which didn't look great or fun for him, but they kept going. And at a certain point, like you see Milano, he keeps grabbing his head, and I was almost wondering if he was actually hurt. Um because I guess I guess he was just selling, but I was like, does he have a concussion after that? Um, but as far as I know, nothing. I heard nothing about that, so I don't think 
he did. But, you know, Rave slowed things down. He hit some of his, um, his big moves, uh, goes, does, does from dust till dawn, which is that kind of, kind of like flip around into the cross face thing that he does, which I don't remember seeing for a while. And I always liked that move. And the crowd is so into Milano that they even do a please don't chap, a please don't tap chant. And, uh, he eventually makes the ropes. Uh, Nana even gets some punches in while Milano leans over the ropes. So Nana respond, I mean, Milano responds with a baseball style, uh, baseball slide drop kick while running the ropes, taking out Nana. And then he does that matrix style backbend clothesline evasion and Inziguri to rave, which the crowd loved. Um, he hits a good running senton, hits some more big moves. Uh, rave does the backbreaker into a gonorrhea. Uh, uh, he, um, Milano comes back with his cartwheel jumping clothesline. And what is it called? The Armani shoot change or something? Shoe exchange, shoe exchange that, I believe. That's what I thought it was, but then I heard someone say something different. So I don't know. Shoe exchange makes the most sense to me, but I heard someone say something else. But um, hits the running kick to Jimmy Rave for two, which I thought was great. Rave rolls through a powerbomb attempt, hits the running knee, and gets the greenings from Ghana, which is the pedigree, and gets the win. Um, even in the sense that, like, they thought Milano was going to be sticking around for a while, I never really understood what they were doing with him as far as the wins and losses, because he, he got the win over Claudio, he lost to Joe, he lost to Rave, he lost the tag title match. I wasn't really sure what they were planning on doing with him or what their strategy was, but I guess it worked out in the end anyway, because he was gone. I thought the match <laughs> itself, uh, had a good finish. I thought it was really, really good at the beginning, and I really, really liked the end. So I liked the match, but it did kind of lose it for a bit in the middle there. But I love the beginning and the end. So I guess that's usually the most important part of the match. But I think it could have been much better if the uh, if the middle was a little bit smoother. Uh, I thought this was a good opener, like an outright good match. Uh, maybe I liked it a little more than you, but I think we're mostly in agreement that, yeah, it did slow down a bit in the middle. I feel like Jimmy Rave... He works best a lot of the time with more flashy offense guys like um, Milano or Matt Seidel or guys like that because I, the heel Jimmy Rave, you know, he's so much about kind of controlling matches and doing cutoffs and really kind of very muted offense that it kind of makes those kind of opponents, their offense seem even cooler just because, yeah, you will go through these kind of almost boring minute stretches where you go, man, he's. Rave's just kind of dominating or just, you know, very basic stuff. And then all of a sudden when you see a, your, his opponent do like a big flashy move, you're like, holy shit, that looks great, even though it's just their standard stuff. But I thought this was a, you know, a pretty hot crowd throughout the night. And this on this match, they were definitely into it, and that helped. They love Milano, uh, man. He was rocking them at the beginning. Yeah, I, I – this was a match where I thought like – what could have been for Milano in Ring of Honor? Because I thought he was like getting pretty over, like uh, certainly for this crowd. And he hadn't even, when you think about it, like he hadn't really visited any market yet a second time. I don't think, um, you know, probably most of his Ring of Honor matches hadn't hit DVD yet. He, um, he hadn't really had a lot of big, like showcase prominent singles matches with the top stars. I mean, he had one against Joe on an undercard that was good, but not great, but like he hadn't really gotten, Like you could like if he was already getting reactions like this, think of where he could have been in six months with the right booking. You know, he could have been he could have been something significant for Ring of Honor. Could have could have been a contender. 
Yeah. Although I guess it always would have been short lived because I think he does, even though he does not stay in Ring of Honor, he does continue just basically a year excursion to the U.S. and then he goes back to Japan permanently. So it probably would have been no matter what, like a Shingo type thing of you're here for a year and, but then you're gone. So. And he ended up retiring pretty early because of an injury, right? Yeah. And I believe he is still a color commentator for New Japan. So, um, yeah, I, I like this match. I like Little Rave's cuss. I like the one where he's baying off in the corner and then Milano like runs after him and he just, while he's baying off, turns it into like a drop toehold into the corner. I liked, I thought, uh, Milano's run of offense at the end when the match picked up again was just really fun. Um, one, I just also want to bring up what you brought up, which is that botched Northern Light Suplex. That is one of like the worst botches you will see in Ring of Honor where, you know, of our, a lot of really good wrestlers a lot of times when you see a botch it's like a slightly rough but still executed executed move like matt said this was like not a suplex where the guy didn't quite go over like this is a northern light suplex where it was basically almost ended up being like a shoot flatliner where i don't know what happened where milan did not jump up really at all he just maybe he tripped or something he just does not rotate at all he just lands fate on the side of his head like almost face first and like you said, look kind of hurt, maybe just selling from it. And there's also a great spot for people that are going to watch this match. Um, watch for like there's this big running enziguri type kick from Milano that really looks like it smacks Jimmy right upside the head hard. I don't think it really hurt him. But you can hear even Dave Prezak's like, whoa, like it's one of those moves where even he gets a little up for. So, yeah, good opener. And then we go backstage for a Brian Danielson promo. He says they've been sending open contracts all over the world for his Ring of Honor world title. And he's honored that someone from NOAA, Marafuji, has accepted one. But Brian says he's not intimidated because he's beaten the best juniors from New Japan Pro Wrestling. Jushin Liger, Gato, Gato Jado, uh, Minoru, Minoru Tanaka, Tiger Mask. Uh, Brian calls the Ring of Honor title the most prestigious title in the world today. He knows Marafuji wants to have it, but he won't have it. Because Danielson is the best in the world. So very basic, but promo. Just, hey, I'm having a match tonight, basically. And that brings us to Colt Cabana defeating Azrael via pinfall in 7 minutes, 18 seconds after he hit a lariat. Um, I, I'm going to do the next match first, I think, because it's a match I really just want to kind of lay out. So I'm going to let you go first on this match, too. I was just thinking also, this match is almost like I felt like this match was halfway between a match and almost just an angle. Like it's, it's very much mostly about just doing some character development for one wrestler, I would say. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. It's character development even more than an angle. Um, the one I guess most noteworthy thing about the match is I think this is the debut of Colt's Copacabana rap mix theme. Yeah. Like not just playing Copacabana, but like his own rap mix. Uh, that he got specially made for it with like, you know, Colt Cabana. It's mm-hmm. Colt Cabana. Oh yeah, I'm not gonna not gonna do the rap. But <laughs> Which is funny that it comes out during the middle of an angle where he's a storyline where he's supposed to be like the most serious guy and now he has this like, <laughs> like very not that bouncy. not that not that Copacabana fits that either. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Huh. I guess really, you're damned if you don't. Yeah, exactly right. You're just either way you're just damned. It was such a damn, damn situation. Um no, but um but yeah, so the as far as the character development we're talking about, it's that they're trying to show that Colt is getting tough and getting serious. He's rocking some stubble. Uh, he's not not clean shaven. Um, you know, they mention that homicide shoulder injury postponed their match. They do not mention AJ Styles here, 
But um, yeah, obviously Azrael, a very suitable replacement, as I mentioned. Um, yeah, the, the the story is that Colt is super serious, and Azrael tries to get him to be silly, which doesn't really fit Azrael's character either. Um, he does a lot of like dancing and goading, which is just it's just weird because we haven't seen Azrael be like that before. Um, you know, in fact, you know, the whole thing about him becoming Azrael was that he was serious now. Right? Like that was like the whole point of him being Asriel, right? Because before that he was in Special K and then he's like, I'm getting serious now. But this is him being very not serious. He's he's trying to get Colt to just be Colt. And, you know, they do things like daring each other to hit the ropes. You know, and um and Colt and Colt tries to like tell him, like, you know, I'm too smart for this, like I'm not gonna fall. He's like, If you stick your foot out when you're telling me to run the ropes, I'm gonna slap you in the face. He goes, I know this game. So Azriel does stick his foot out. So Colt does a tumble and then does, in fact, slap Azrael in the face. Um, so that's sort of where they go with this. They end up doing some more hard-hitting moves. They knock heads after a corner whip. Colt tries to reverse out of the electric chair, but Azrael hits it and gets a, a two-count after that. And even though he hit his finisher and the announcers try to sell, like, oh, wow, he hit his finisher, the crowd does not buy this near fall, <laughs> as you might expect. Um you know, Colt comes back, hits a bunch of his big moves, uh, running shoulder block off the middle rope, missile drop pick off the other corner, and the big lariat. So that was fun, but – and so, you know, they tried to tell a little story, but overall it was – it just – it wasn't really a match. It was more just Colt developing the character that he's not going to be silly, which for what it was, it was fine. I could take it or leave it, honestly. Yeah. And again, like we mentioned earlier, and like you just mentioned, this is basically the third proposed Colt Cabana match of the show after Homicide and AJ both got hurt. So you kind of can't blame them for trying to go to something different. Um, I felt about this exact, like you made the point. I, I had this in my notes. I felt exactly the same way that Azrael was acting way out of character. Like it's one of those weird moments that happens in wrestling and sometimes just in fiction in general where a character starts acting completely out of character just because it serves the plot. Like why Azrael, this match aside that the, from right from the bell, he, all he was interested in was trying to get Colt Caban to like do Colt Caban's classic comedy spots, like why he cares so much. Like it only makes sense in the, in the fact of, you know, well, it's to show the story of Colt Cabana right now is not in the mood to be classic Colt Cabana and do the funny spots. I did like that spot you described where, um, you know, Asriel setting him up to, for the standard Colt spot where he tell, dares his opponent to run the ropes and trips him. And Colt actually tells him like, look, I know this trick. If you try this, I'm going to slap you. And then Asriel still tries it twice. Uh, Colt avoids it both times. The second time he just like jumps over the trip. And then in fact, he slaps Asriel right in the face and, you know, continuing to make Asriel like on recent shows look like a big idiot where like Colt tells him exactly what's going to happen. He still tries it. Asriel does it anyway. In terms of the character stuff, like, I'm on the record saying that I feel like Colt Serious, it so often, like, straddles the line between good Serious and corny Serious to me, and a lot of times it walks over what you've heard me, like, praise and criticize it on recent shows. I feel like there's a moment in this match that's right on the borderline where, like, at one point he just says, like, out loud, why show mercy? When he's during like a relatively normal <laughs> match against Azrael, like, I was like, okay, that's a little maybe a little corny i get what you're doing i also think it's funny that like one of the big character developments for colt in this feud is to have stubble because he has stubble in a lot of these matches and it's like 
he never grows out the full beard, I don't think. So it's like, I guess in character, he's distraught enough to not shave occasionally. Like, he still shaves sometimes. He's just just too distraught to shave, I guess, before wrestling shows. Yeah, but, he'll take he'll take what like two or three days before a wrestling show and not shave. That's his yeah. uh, that's his move, and I guess maybe even just Ring of Honor shows for all I know. Yeah. He, he just he gets when he gets nervous about homicide, then he can't shave right until he knows that show is over. But um, anyway, yeah, just look at my notes. Uh, I thought there was a really nice. Uh, when Colt countered uh, Asriel's moonsault off the ropes with a dropkick in midair, I thought that was a really nice move. It probably the highlight of the match. But again, this was – it's hard to even review this as a match. It really felt more like an angle. The one other note I had from this was um, – this was interesting to me. At one point, Colt covers Asriel, and Asriel kicks out. And then Colt recovers Asriel for another pinfall attempt immediately. And I think you can hear Colt say to Asriel, hand – and then Azrael immediately then, in fact, grabs the ropes with his hand. And I thought, like, I have no idea why a wrestler would call a spot that minor. Because it clearly wasn't the end of the match. But, like, why, like, just, like, grab the grab the ropes? Like, I don't know why. It's just a really weird, very minor thing I know. So, again, if you're going to watch the show after you listen to you, like, look out for that. Because it's a really weird, very I, – I can't believe someone just said hand. And then the guy grabs the ropes. But it happened. Um, after the match, Colt towels Azrael off, shakes his hand. So while Colt may be grumpy and more serious, he's still Sh- not an asshole. Shakes his hand. Hmm. The plot thickens. <laughs> and then the lights go out. Homicide's music kicks in. Out comes Homicide, the man himself, with Ricky Reyes in tow. Homicide's arm is in a sling from the legit shoulder injury he suffered against Steve Carino at the last show. Homicide enters the ring, and then he takes off the sling before he grabs a mic. Homicide says he still hates Colt, but he's not here to fight him tonight. He's here to warn him. He says his doctors tell him that he needs surgery and will be and that surgery will put him out of this crappy promotion for six months. Spoilers, it Homicide, doesn't. Yeah, he does the wrestler thing and just works through it. Uh, Homicide says the injury is not Colt's fault. It's Steve Carino's fault. So that's the man he wants. He wants to kill Carino. And then after that, he will come after Cabana. He tells Colt to talk to Carino and stay out of his motherfucking business. He spits at Cabana, tells him Carino is dying tonight. And if Colt gets in his business, he's going to fuck him up. He then throws the mic pretty damn hard into Colt's chest. Homicide and Reyes then go to ringside. Homicide throws a tantrum, throwing around the ring bell like he often does. So fairly intense promo to kind of set up what comes later. As far as homicide promos go, like as always, he's not very much for substance. Like with homicide, like there is no subtext to his promos. There's barely text. It's like literally just I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill you. Stay out of my way. I'm going to kill you later. There but, was there I mean, was he, there was fun. There was one funny part where like after homicide said he's not going to attack Cabana, a crowd in the someone in the crowd yells "pussy" at him, and homicide goes, "I'll be a pussy. Fuck it." <laughs> I mean, I, I thought that the way this promo was enjoyable, there was a certain charm in it. Like, I, I also like just the idea of the promo of, of homicides being like, look, I don't have a problem with you. Well, actually, I kind of do. Like, like he kind of at first is just telling him, like, just li- I'm not going to do anything to you tonight. Just stay out of my business. I'm going to kill Steve, your, your friend, Steve Carino. But then he's like, after Steve Carino, I'm coming for you. So it's kind of like, like, it's hard to do like a, a truce when you're basically saying, as soon as I do this other thing, I'm going to come back after you. Like, well, then what, what motivation does Colt have to do a truce then? 
Yeah, uh, exactly. Um, and so he doesn't do one. Spoiler <laughs> alert. <laughs> and that brings us to the Ring of Honor pure title match. Nigel McGuinness successfully defends the title when he defeats Claudio Castagnoli by disqualification in 14 minutes, 36 seconds. When the second ref, because this match had two refs, one in the ring, one on the outside, defe- d- disqualifies Claudio for using uh, Nigel McGuinness' iron that he always brings to the ring at this point in his career. Before we get to the match, uh, Bob McGee gave a live report to The Torch, and he wrote about an entrance. Speaking of edits, they edited out uh, Nigel's usual pre-match um, intro that he gives for himself on the mic. So maybe that is a sign, Matt, one of those signs about how you talk about how maybe there were some edits on this show to get a four-and-a-half-hour show running at a good three-hour clip. They cut out something that they normally include. Um, so it sounds like it was mostly the same but a little different. Uh, Bob writes – Nigel started out by introducing himself. He first did the rock intro by saying, finally, McGinnis has come back to Philadelphia, which was very funny and got the fans yelling at him that he was in New Jersey. He then did the road dog intro of ladies and gentlemen, children of all ages, which was also funny and got good heat. And then McGinnis did Bret Hart's The Best There Is, The Best There Was, which, of course, Matt, you and I have seen him do multiple times. So that would have been fun to see, but I get you have to fit in. A long show, apparently, in three hours. It sounds like that That's intro that did take up, like, a whole hour, so. <laughs> so, um, I will be interested after I do my review of this match, Matt, what you think of it, because I'm wondering if we're going to have another Nigel Colt European rounds match, because this was another very story-oriented um, match that I really enjoyed. I, I would give this four stars. I thought this was great. I thought this was a great bit of storytelling. One of the huge pleasures of this match is you see every trick a heel has used for months – not work. He tries them all again. This time they're actually get foiled, but yet he still somehow wins. So like I mentioned, the whole story of this match is since Nigel won through heel chicanery last time I faced Claudio, Jim Cornette, the commissioner mandated this match would have two refs. And in like a very simple bit of wrestling booking that I'm surprised does not happen more often because of how satisfying it was. The, the extra stiff actually works. Like, the whole first half of this match is all about Claudio doing all his old tricks, and none of them work because the second ref catches them all. So, like, he throws a closed fist and fakes getting his eye poked. The first ref misses it, but the second ref on the outside catches it. Um, he throws another closed fist. First ref misses it. Second ref catches it. Um, the... Uh, he misses. He kicks off the rope at one point when he t- when he's in a, like a submission to get out of a move. First ref doesn't see it. Second ref catches it. So as a result of all this, by the midway part of this match, Nigel's already lost two rope breaks and gotten his clo- the one closed fist warning you get in a pure title match. All for stuff he normally gets away with. All because you know the second ref stip works. The second ref is is seeing all these things that Nigel can usually hide from a ref in the ring. Um, and again, just very satisfying, simple kind of a payoff to all if you've been watching. Watching Nigel for months. Very simple path to that. And I thought also just the wrestling in the first half was really good. Like Nigel and Claudio have pretty good chemistry and it's fun to see them. I thought they were just really in a good groove here. They do some athletic stuff for two big tall guys, including what I first thought was the world's slowest Rana, but actually was more of a, a body scissors takeover where Nigel like hooked his arms, his, his feet under Claudio's like armpits and just kind of pulled him slowly over. Um, I really liked how they kind of did this. They would battle where like one guy would put the other in a hole and the other would have to like do multiple attempts to get out of that hole. Like they would try different approaches to kind of until they could finally find a way to kind of get out of the hole. So I like it really kind of put over how they're both good technical wrestlers and there's some really good intricate spots in this match. Like um, at one point, Nigel goes for that divorce court, kind of like that 
arm DDT. Nigel, I mean, Claudio blocks it by kicking Nigel's legs as Nigel tries to kick out Claudio's, which is how you kind of do the move. You, you kind of arm ringer the arm and then kick out the legs of your opponent. And then while, after he like blocks the kick of his legs, Claudio then northern light suplexes Nigel while Nigel still holding his arm in a key lock type position, which I thought, again, like really cool, intricate, like counter of a move you see from Nigel all the time. And then the story changes about halfway through. Uh, Nigel gets so frustrated that he that none of his cheating is working. He goes to the floor. He uh, breaks the twenty count whenever he needs to. So he you know he's just venting on the floor. Eventually, Claudio just gets frustrated and like screw this. He does a big tope on to the floor to get to Nigel. But at the last second, Nigel grabs that second ref that's on the outside of the ring, pulls him to Claudio's path. You know, Nigel, Claudio completely takes out the second ref. He hurts his own arm in the process. And at this point, the match does slow down. I would say it's kind of like the the rave. Um, uh, Milano match where it does slow down a bit in the middle where Cl- Nigel is just working on Claudio's arm. He's really grinding him down. He gets Claudio to use up a couple rope breaks, but then it picks up big. I would say in the final minutes, there's a great big comeback from Claudio where they do a bunch of a big European uppercut battle, uh, a big brutal, brutal looking baseball basement drop kick to Nigel's head. And then he hits Nigel with his own tower of London, which gets a great near fall. Nigel has to use his third rope break to save himself. And then, and then Nigel goes for his rebound lariat at one point, kind of against the flow of the match. Claudio avoids it, but the rebound lariat takes up the first ref. So now both refs in a two-ref match are bumped. Both are out. At this point, Nigel brings back the iron like he has in prior matches. But in another, you know, great bit of storytelling for if you've watched this whole feud, Claudio has it scouted this time. So he blocks the the um the uh, iron so Nigel can't hit him with it. Nigel at this point throws the the iron to Claudio and then sells that Claudio hit him with it, which is how Claudio won their last match, except both the refs are still out. So like Claudio, instead of like winning the match, he's made a huge mistake as he's just given the weapon to his opponent. Claudio then uses the the iron on Nigel, pins him, gets the three count, gets the win. Except the second ref recovers after the match, and he tells the first ref he saw something. He saw Claudio use that that um um iron, and we get in fact a reversal of the of the of the result of the match. We get I don't know, Matt. Is this the first dusty finish in Ring of Honor history? Yes. I mean, and the crowd boos it. Now, I really thought this match was great. I, I this is one, another one of those matches I would say where. If you just are watching this match on its own with no context, it's probably like a three and a half star match. I would like bump it up a whole half star to like the great territory because I think there are so many nice callbacks in this match, counters of things. It, it pays off so many different things. I just love the storytelling of the stip. And because of that, I feel like th- this is nowhere near as good of a match as the Joe versus Punk trilogy, but I feel like this is the, this is, since those match, though, that trilogy in Ring of Honor, I don't think there's been another match in the last year that has like paid off, rewarded you so much for being a viewer of every show. Like it, it really rewards you with lots of little details for having watched this entire feud. And I always really love matches like that. And also I could see why a lot of people would be turned up by the dusty finish, but I think even Dave Meltzer, who obviously railed on the dusty finish as much as anyone probably really was one of the people that really, you know, like, talked about it more than anyone and got got that hatred for that kind of thing going. I think even Meltzer said in the past, it's not that the Dusty Finish is a bad finish. He's, he said, like, the Dusty Finish is actually a clever, good finish if you do it very, very rarely. And so I have no problem 
with Ring of Honor like once every three to four years doing the Dusty Finish. And I thought it worked here as a way to kind of protect Claudio where he still loses the feud, but, you know, it's not his fault. And I actually really like the story of the idea of Claudio foils every bit of cheating the heel normally does, and he loses this match because he actually cheats. But the one time he decides to cheat, he gets caught. And I thought there's just a neat, like, kind of, like, turnabout story. I like how it all comes full circle like that. So, Matt, you probably did not like this much, nearly as much as me. Yeah, I mean, I didn't. <laughs> the uh, I, I get why you liked it, though. I mean, everything you said is true. It's just that it has two of my least favorite wrestling tropes. Um, yes, the dusty finish. Like, I yes, I guess once in a blue moon they could do it, and it's fine, but... I'm never really going to like it. And then the other one, which obviously I've had to just get over because it's so ubiquitous in wrestling. Um, but even after 30 plus years of watching wrestling, I still don't like ref bumps. And I like that Ring of Honor in this era doesn't do them. And so the fact that a ref bump was such a major part of this match also made it so this, this is not really up my alley. I mean, the thing about a ref bump that I just can't get past, you know, even as you get them all the time in every promotion still, is... If a referee gets knocked out in a match, in a real anything, everybody would stop what they were doing and attend to that person who was unconscious, right? Like, mm-hmm. and I just, I just can't. Like, I know that it's crazy as a wrestling fan that I can't get past this, but I can't. So I, uh, so that annoys me. Um, the uh, the dusty finish, yeah, I guess you know you could say that sometimes it's it's okay, but I didn't think it, this was worthy of it at this point, you know, for something like that. I think the other thing that bugged me was, you know, they make such a big deal about Cornette coming in, and clearly this thing is that Nigel keeps stymieing all of Cornette's, like, edicts, right? Because the idea here was that Cornette was, um, you know, Cornette put the two referees here because he was embarrassed by Nigel getting away with what he got away with uh, against Claudio at the uh, showdown in Motown show. Right, right, and yeah. um, and so they're building. The, you know, you think they're building up. Eventually, Cornette's gonna finally g- give Nigel his comeuppance, but they don't really go that way. Uh, they they change gears once the CZW feud starts, and then the whole Cornette Nigel thing sort of goes by the wayside. So I don't really think this actually had a real payoff. Right, Nigel ended up winning, but it didn't really have a real payoff for Claudio. Uh, ultimately. I think that would, that's the other thing. Um, but yes, they do some clever stuff. There's a lot of clever callbacks. You pretty much mentioned them all. I also like one little thing, which is you don't really see too often. Nigel does the headstand and Claudio reverses it, like, or, or counters it, not by doing a move by just, but just be like grabbing Nigel's legs and pulling him back down. And I'm just like, oh, you know, maybe this makes sense because Claudio is one of the few guys tall enough or with long yeah. enough arms <laughs> yeah. to actually do that reversal. I really like that. And yeah, they are good wrestlers. I thought, you know, Nigel was being goofy. The other thing that I, I thought about here is Nigel really leaned into like the goofy side of his character here. But by the time we get to like a few months from now, he really changes course completely and becomes much more of a hard hitting strong style guy. And I think that's an interesting transition too, because he's sort of like, this isn't actually building to at that much. I guess maybe we'll see if I'm wrong, but. I, I just the, – the tropes that they went to here just happen to be tropes that I find unappealing. But I think that if people follow it, they probably will be more in line with you than with me on this one. It's just – it just was ill-suited for my tastes. 
I could see. Uh, I, look, I bet you I'm the high vote in general on this match. I think it's just certain certain things about these kind of Nigel story matches just work for me way more than the average person. And I think you made a good point. Like one argument I think you could really make against this match when you talk like you bring up the ref bumps and maybe started making me think while you were describing that is like. If you're of the mind that, like, a big stip should be, like, guarantee certain things, like a cage match should guarantee uh, there's no outside interference, it is kind of egregious to have a match where you emphasize, like, there's going to be two refs, so there's going to be no heel chicanery, and then you do a double ref bump, like, and then, like, the most screwy finish imaginable like if for some reason your heart was set on like going into the show like for sure we're going to see a clean victory between claudio and nigel you got the exact opposite you got even more bullshit than normal so i could see people being really pissed about that in a sense um i also i like that you mentioned like claudio being a goofball in this match because i thought this was claudio's best i mean not claudio and nigel's best performance from a character thing. He is just so comfortable in this character. And I love this character. I'm kind of going to be sad that when it goes to more strong style, he is just so goofy and so happy with being an asshole. Like there's a childlike glee to him. At one point, he's just so happy early on this match. He holds out his arms and runs around the ring like a child in like imitating an airplane. Like he's just like so happy with himself. And there's a moment later in the match where you know, so often lately, Matt, I've had a hard time coming with like a good funny image and I've just been using serious images for the podcast for what, you know, every episode of the podcast gets an image. Um, this one, it's not going to be Kent. It's not, it's going to be Nigel. Mag- There's a look on Nigel's face after he makes Claudio take out the ref with a tope. It is the goofiest fucking face I have ever seen in my life where he's trying to act like he's shocked it happened. I did like a screen cap. There's like four incredible different facial expressions. I don't know which one I'm going to pick. They're all fantastic. I thought like Nigel as just, this was his peak. It's just a goofy gleeful little shit. I just love it. Who happens to be a, actually a big shit, but <laughs> big shit. <laughs> someone that you have to be so, so tall just to count him a proper way, as you just described. But that brings us to Alex Shelley, escorted to the ring by Prince Nana, defeating Steve Carino via pinfall in 11 minutes, four seconds after he used, I guess what you would describe as just a leg trap cradle. Uh, before the match, Carino's personal ring announcer, Brian Regal, starts to cre- do Carino's usual ring introduction, only to, for Prince Nana to attack Regal almost immediately, just by pie-facing him. Carino then immediately attacks Nana. Shelley attacks Carino. The match is on, so we get we do not get Carino's usual ring introduction. Uh, Matt, this is kind of a a random match. I guess if you really wanted to find a reason for this to happen, you could say, well, Creel helped out the Second City Saints when they feuded with uh, uh, Generation Next in late 2004, back when Shelley was a member of Generation Next. But this is really just kind of a a random pairing here, especially for Steve Creel that doesn't wrestle too much in Ring of Honor at this point. Uh, what did you think about it? Yeah, it was it was so random that I almost was like, was this a replacement for something else? But I couldn't find any evidence that that was the case. So I guess this was just the match that was booked. Um, yeah, it was weird because, you know, Carino was the baby face here, even though he was the heel at the last show. And it's just kind of hard to kind of uh, categorize Carino in ROH for a lot of his run, honestly. 
Um, but especially during, uh, during this, like, I guess, you know, Karina was the baby face because Shelly and Nana are obviously heels, but the crowd wasn't super into Karina as a baby face. And they worked, that's it. They worked a bit of a more competitive, longer match than I expected. Um, you know, they, they know sell each other's chops. Uh, Carino claws and boots at Shelly's face. And then, and, and he goes after Shelly's ear. Like, I don't know if that's like Carino's thing, like where he's like, after his ear hearing got messed up, he just started going after people's ears. Or, um, or maybe I wrote that wrong and Shelly went after Carino's ear. Maybe, maybe that's what happened. I no, I, I remember Carino early on in the match was like go, definitely clawing at Shelly's face. So I bet yeah. you, you, you are right. Like, yeah. I, I, I'm not, I'm trying to figure out what the deal is with that, but you know, it's, it's a, it's a fairly competitive match. Um, you know, again, Nana gets involved a lot. You know, he sends Carino head and shoulder first into the guardrail. Shelly props up a chair in between the middle and top ropes and tries to send Carino shoulder first into it. But Carino instead sends Shelly into the chair head first. So this is another one of those random sort of no DQ matches. Um, uh, one, one spot I forgot to mention during the, um, the Claudio Nigel matches, Claudio sort of botches a La Magistral cradle and just kind of just ends up being a schoolboy. And Shelly does a La Magistral here and it works out a lot better. It actually like with the arm trap and everything. Um, but, uh, you know, they, they do, they do a bunch of back and forth. Carino at one point comes off the middle rope and he does something to his leg. Yeah. Um, like, and I guess, I guess it's probably a shoot blowout the knee. I don't think it's like any sort of long-term injury. I don't know if you got, have anything on that, but I don't, I don't remember hearing that like he has a major problem with that leg after like from this match, but he definitely has a problem with it during the match. Like he's, um, he's limping a lot. He has, but he, he's, he's also seems to be like not favoring it to the point where it becomes a, a storyline point in the match. So that's why I think it's probably a shoot, right? I mean, mm. uh, did you know it, it is a shoot? In fact, uh, Dave Meltzer in the observer, he wrote, uh, this match wasn't that good because Shelly is still injured and Carino blew out his knee early in the match. Now, what I would say is, I didn't, I agree with you. I didn't know, I, he definitely blows out his knee, but I think the spot you're describing, which is the spot I would say he blew out his knee on, where he's like jumping off the second turnbuckle and he just immediately, you can tell he like, it seems like he jams his knee. Like that was fairly late in the match, I would say, not early. Like, okay, fair enough. Um, but, but, but uh, that's just, I'm disagreeing with the observer thing, but yeah. I agree. Like he, uh, he definitely blew out his knee, it looks like. Yeah, and like you could see him favoring it, but again, like the match doesn't really focus on it. But you know, Carino still fights through it. He um you know, he he fights off Nana at different points. Uh he goes to DDT Shelly, and then Nana comes in and Carino DDTs and attacks him, hits a Lariat, a fisherman's buster, Nana keeps interfering, he breaks up the pin. Um, somehow that's not a disqualification. Uh, so again, so Carino attacks Nana and in all the chaos, Carino goes for another lariat, but, and Shelly grabs his arm, gets, and gets a, gets a roll up. Um, they did work hard. Like the, it was, but I felt like the match just got kind of repetitive. Nana kept coming in. Like I didn't really see the direction here. So, uh, I kind of agree with Meltzer. Like, it wasn't that good because it just like just for a variety of factors. I thought the booking was weird. Uh, I don't think the injury helped, no matter what in the match it did happen. Um, and I uh, I don't know. It just it was just it was just odd. Like I, I don't really know how to categorize it. It just there was something about it that didn't really click to me. Yeah, this was probably my least favorite match of the show. Um, still, 
like deep, like it was a perfectly competently wrestled, like I, I, one of those matches I would say is a perfectly professionally wrestled professional wrestling match. But you know, it wasn't, it was, wasn't anything super great. And then uh, apparently according to Dave Meltzer, not only did Creel get hurt in this, but Shelly was coming into this hurt. Um, and, and I completely agree with you about Steve Carino. I think even when he wrestles as a face in ring of honor, he feels like a heel and even and like, especially this match. Yeah. I realized they kind of had like a little bit of, you know, he's pissed off maybe because Nana attacked his ring announcer before the start of the match, but like he's going to Shelly's eyes before Shelly does anything to him, which feels kind of heelish and just, yeah, it, it, Creel as a face at this point in his career in ring of honor feels really weird. He doesn't, it, it's not a natural fit and he doesn't really for the most part work like a face. And then I really didn't like the end because yeah. Um, I thought the interference was a big negative here. At one point in this match, Nana actually holds Creel's arms behind his back, standing on the apron. The ref is full view of the ref. Ref does nothing. And of course, it doesn't work because, um, uh, uh, Creel escape, like ducks down and then, um, Shelly hits Nana instead. But then after that, later in the match, at the very end, like you were describing, um, you know, Creel hits his, his lariat, his northern lights bomb, like his big finishers, he covers, and Nana breaks up the count by actually walking into the ring and just outright attacking the ref, like not putting his, his Shelly's foot on the ropes, not even pulling the ref out of the ring, which I also hate. He like goes in the ring and attacks the ref. There's no disqualification, and then Shelly wins basically immediately out of nowhere with a roll-up, and... I get if you want to protect Steve Carino because, you know, he has other commitments. Fine. If you want to have a cheap heel win, I'm fine with that. But to it's to, I just am so sick of these really unimaginative finishes where you're outright like attacking the ref and the ref. If like the ref isn't going to call for a DQ there, where is he going to call a D for a DQ on? And we're supposed to be in this era of, oh, you know, Jim Cornette, you know, we're just a few shows into Jim Cornette saying, oh, we're going to adhere to all the rules now. You know, they're, they're, it's been lawless for too long. And this is the second of a series of three straight matches where there's like a ton of bullshit where places where refs could have um, called for the DQ, you know, weapons being brought into a match that's not a no DQ match. And it's just it, it's a bad stretch of wrestling, I would say, in that regard. Yeah. So, OK, so in the Claudio match, like. In the Claudio Nigel match, the fit, it was a DQ finish, right? Like after it was overturned, right? Like that's yeah. how it ended, DQ. So that was a disqualification, but none of the stuff in this match merited a disqualification. It doesn't, it just like, it has to make a little bit of sense. You know what I mean? Yeah. I know you were mad about like, um, the, the, uh, a match recently, I forget which one, but it was a match where like there was weapons used on the outside of the ring and, and the ref could see it and didn't call for a DQ. And I always try to justify, well, maybe the refs think if it's on the outside of the ring, it's okay. But like, there's not even that kind of de- plausible deniability here. Like it's, it, there's stuff happening in the ring to the referee and he's not calling for a DQ. Yeah, so. And I think the match that you're thinking of was Jay Lethal against Samoa Joe. Yeah. Yeah. That's the one. Yeah. Exa- yeah. That's definitely the one. And then the other thing uh, the Observer wrote about this match was, Dave wrote, Steve Creo took a lot of heat from the crowd about a lack of tan and lack of physique. And I, I didn't really hear that, but I did notice, like, you know, whatever, it's not a big deal. But, like, this definitely did seem to be, like, Carino at his doughiest. <laughs> I, I was like, oh, man. But Carino, uh, Carino you know, likes leaning into that. You know what I mean? Like, he likes being, like, self-deprecating about that stuff. So, you know, maybe they were laughing with him and not at him. 
Yeah, and I definitely know, like, on shoot interviews and stuff, like, Samoa Joe and guys would, like, laugh about how Steve Carell is, like, a, a lard ass, like, who would kind of deadweight them on moves and stuff like that. So, yeah, I, I could see, you know, Creel seems like the kind of guy who can roll with a joke like that. But the post match is definitely more interesting than the match. Yes. Yeah, so, immediately after the match, Homicide attacks Creel pretty roughly, too. I would say, like, some pretty hard stumps to the head and kicks to Creel's yeah. body. He just comes in and just, like, like Carino's like already slumped in the corner. Carino, he just wails at, at Carino with the big running boot, then another one, and it's just like, wow, like, flush in his face. Like, it, like you know, I don't know to what degree these two really do hate each other. I know, like, they, they try to say, like, they really, really, really hate each other. But, man, they work like they do. <laughs> Yeah, I was going to say it felt like a bit of a receipt. Like if all the stuff about the newsletters at this time that Homicide really felt like Carino kind of hurt him on purpose. Like, again, maybe it could be there's excellent at working people. Yeah. But I wouldn't be surprised if like Homicide was going basically as far as he could without going completely over the line here because – yeah. And, it looked harsh. And I know you're going to obviously get to the to the what happens, but like, do you think that if there's two guys that really, if they really hate each other as much as Homicide and Carino are purported to, do you think it's like they just shouldn't be booked with each other because <laughs> something bad could happen? You know, sometimes. But you know, what the funny thing is, sometimes I find when two guys really hate each other, they almost go the opposite and they get so self conscious and maybe get so warned by their employer that they go very careful. Because I feel like some some of those Matt Hardy Edge match as well like some of them were good some of them weren't but like like you never got that feeling that you get here of like danger or same with like Shawn Michaels and Bret Hart like uh, you know you would sometimes in promos like the stuff like Shawn Michaels sunny days comment and stuff like that or you'd hear they got into like hair pulling fight backstage but you 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 felt way more of the real hate in like promos than you ever felt when they actually had a match because in matches it always felt like apart from one key spot in one match they were being completely professional with with each other you know but Hamas and Carino have a history of hurting each other yeah exactly so they definitely go the other way um Anyway, Homicide takes out the ref when when the ref tries to stop this assault. Homicide then proceeds to grab a bottle of Drano, the classic name brand drain cleaner. He opens it up. He be, he begins to pour it on Carino. Just little splashes, very tiny ones are starting to come out. A little bit gets on him, but Colt Cabana runs in. He shoves Carino out of the out of the way, out of the ring, saving him. Colt gives oh, oh like a what the fuck style just incredulous stare to homicide like what are you even doing like this is too far even for you until julius smokes runs in the ring attacks cabana as smokes then holds colt and homicide now pissed that he didn't get to have his revenge on carino dumps the drano bottle on colt with colt even at one point opening his mouth which was a horrible mistake if this was real drano some of the drano gets into his mouth it's yellow liquid all over the ring students from the ring of honor school immediately run in the ring homicide smokes flee to ringside colt vomits like legit vomits over the in the ring on the ring apron very quickly the students are pulling him out you know kind of carry him to the back as he's retching and smokes is still like nearby just screaming at colt so um this angle okay first i'll say very memorable angle in fact i would go as far to say when people say like think of the colt cabana homicide feud this is the first thing I think about of this entire field. I don't think about a match. I don't think about any other angle. I think about this. Um, very memorable. So in that way, it's a complete success. 
what I, I think it's a striking visual. Like you don't think of many Drano storylines. You don't think of many, uh, vomiting, legit vomit storylines in ring of honor. If any, um, I, I even like how Colt wasn't the intended victim. It was Carino, which is someone homicide hates far more than he hates Colt. So it actually makes sense. Like I think at this point in this feud, it wouldn't have made sense for homicide to go this far against Cabana, but it does make sense for him to go that far against Carino. And so it works out the idea of like, He's so pissed he can't to one guy. He does it to the guy who stops him. Um, at the same time, I do feel like Ring of Honor overdid this kind of angle this year with these, these really heavy kind of extra crazy foreign object angle. And I do think Drano is one of those things where it becomes really – it's so serious that it's hard to justify a wrestler ever wrestling in a wrestling in, – in, in that promotion ever again for using it. Because like this isn't like hitting someone with a chair. This is – a pretty good shot of attempting to kill a guy. Like, Clarino, like, uh, Clarino it, it, literally says it in a promo later that Homicide tried to murder Cabana. Yeah, yeah. like, there's no deniability, oh, I went a little too far. Like, the, the announcer's talking like you could blind C- C- Cabana if it gets in his eyes, you know, he's puking it up. And then I guess my other flaw to this map before I hand it over to you would be um, the idea that Homicide, a man so angry and crazy that he warns cabana earlier like i'm going to kill steve carino tonight that he comes out and tries to pour drain cleaner down his throat i like the idea that he waits patiently for steve carino to wrestle an entire wrestling match and then only tries to murder him when the match is over like that is very polite of homicide yeah i mean i agree with you the angle like was really heavy and like in a lot of ways it worked um in terms of getting over this feud is really intense um I don't think they ever really follow up on it in terms of like this should be should be one of the first things Cornette makes a big deal out of right when he finally comes back to a show is we can't have wrestlers poisoning each other in the middle of the ring you know and murdering people in front of the crowd all those things but you know the thing that stands out to me like as far as beyond assessing it as an angle because I think you know it's just you know we could do that and I think in the end the homicide cabana feud ends up working for what it is you know i think it's a very intense feud has some really memorable matches that come later on um and that that angle might have been the most memorable part of it but like i'm still trying to figure out like what like in real life terms what was the plan what did they actually do what like what was i mean what was it real drain it couldn't have been like they couldn't have actually been playing with fire like that right like try like like pour, try, pouring poison down each other's throats i never really listened to an interview about this it couldn't have been real right right i don't so know multiple people including michael tyler who we referenced earlier who gave a live of the, the processing torch say it was yellow jello now yeah i, I was know. i was there like i mean i remember being in the crowd like i I, I don't feel like being there had any ins- gave me any insight into whether yeah. to what that substance was. Like it just looks like a a very kind of bright yellow liquid. I don't know how you could tell, like and a liquid too. So I don't know how you could. It would have been funny if it looked if it came out like actual Jello. Like if um, Homicide's pouring the Drano ball and it just comes out as like one uninterrupted block that's like wobbly and Colt's still trying to avoid. Like oh no, the Jello. And but so I don't know how. Yeah, multiple. But I did see multiple live reports say oh yellow Jello. So I don't know how that was apparent to them from the crowd because like you said, you were there and it wasn't apparent to you. But I've used real Drano and I, it's not yellow jello unless you know there's different i guess there's different kinds but i i just can't imagine like maybe i feel even stupid asking like there's no way that they that they were like oh yeah let me just let's just pour drano down his throat and see what happens no 
it can't because Matt, I actually, I can't believe I am saying this. This, this is going to be the darkest moment in through the year's history, but fuck it. Let's okay. Um, I can't believe I'm saying this. I actually have a Drano anecdote, a Drano drinking anecdote because, oh. okay, let me think. Um, okay. This was, uh, some slight details may be changed to protect people, but this is all the, 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 the parts you wish weren't real are all real. There was a friend of my family, um, a person, who um, they were disfigured. They had a part of one of their lips was gone, and it's because as a very little child, they drank some Drano. They they survived, none the worst aware, except for they had a, a mild disfigurement. And uh, this person, we would sometimes see them, and I was a little kid, and being a, a scared little kid, I was terrified of this person just because they had what you would see as an adult as a minor disfigurement, nothing special. But I remember I would always scream and cry, and whenever we had to see this person, I would hide behind couches, or I think at one time, I just said, I'll stay in the car for like four hours if you have to. And I was like a little kid. like I was that scared about seeing this person. And I remember years later, as I got a little bit older, I was just, you know, I didn't think about that often, but from time to time I think about, and I would just feel awful because I just thought that person probably went through so much, you know, teasing and shame for a very minor thing that happened to him when he was a kid. And I just, even though as a kid, you know, I didn't know what I was doing. I felt really guilty, right? Like I felt like I always ran from this person. I, uh, you know, and I was scared of them. And I just remember I, I must've felt made that person feel so bad. And I felt terrible about it. And then a few years ago, a relative told me, uh, yeah, they're in jail for molesting children. And um, I, I'll just say that, that – like, That took a turn. I, I, I will just say um, Drano is not good for you. You should not drink it. it um, it's very bad. Do, do not try it even in the context of a wrestling angle. But I can never say completely – that drinking Drano was bad because of that. Because because someone drank Drano, my life might be dramatically different if they hadn't drank Drano. I, I, that's all I'll say. Oh, boy. Um, well. <laughs> so, Matt, that's a long way of saying, yes, I don't think that was real Drano. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, I mean, that's that's I, I will just leave that story out there. Wow. Um no, I mean, uh, but I no, I mean that is there is insight in there into what we're what we're talking about. Um, as far as like, yeah, so okay, so let's say it wasn't real Drano. What was it? How did Cabana make himself throw up? Because I, I did he just gag himself? Like, was it uh, what? What do they call that thing that you drink to make yourself throw up? Epicac, it, epicac or whatever. Yeah, was it that? Like, I don't know what that looks like because I've never taken it. Like, is that yellow Jello? I don't, I don't know. Yeah, and, and the funny thing is, it did look like it was a real Drano bottle. So yeah. here's the thing: I wouldn't feel even comfortable like using a real Drano bottle, even though you cleaned yeah. it out like ten times. I'd be like, I don't want this. But it was like clearly the it looked like a Drano bottle. It had the logo sticker on it. I mean, um, but you've never heard like a shoot interview where someone describes how they did this angle or how they, you know, what what the what the magic was to make it look like Cabana drank Drano and then. Like, because when he threw up, like he didn't like spit up a little bit. Like he had puke gushing out of him. Like in the middle yeah, of the, you know, like something. Like he had to do something to um, kind of dry out that vomit. Um, you, you know, the other thing I, I just want to mention, and I can't believe we're having these conversations. Don't worry, this is not as morbid. But 
like I did some research on this, and so I think I'm telling the truth, but I would just advise anyone, if you accidentally drink a caustic liquid like Drano, call the Poison Control Center and do whatever they tell you. But I would say do that first because I do feel like in real life they would tell you not to do what Colt did, which is immediately throw it up because your stomach is actually the best place for really – acidic liquids like it's kind of built to handle them and i i've heard a lot of times that you can actually do more damage vomiting it back up again where a lot of times some of these liquids can get kind of neutralized in your stomach with your own acids and your your stomach can kind of deal with it but your esophagus your mouth all those parts can't so if you bring it back up again like if you if you did what colt did even though that might be your gut reaction no pun intended i think actually a lot of people would advise you not to do that yeah I, uh, so I would just yeah. tell our listeners, if you ever drink Trano, remember this, but maybe don't do what Cole does. Instead, call the number on the back of the bottle. Yes, call Poison Control or Trevor Dame, one of the two. Um, and I'll tell you with some more depressing anecdotes. Your your last moments will be yes. at least <laughs> – you'll, you'll feel better about going away once yeah. I tell you about my life. Yeah, so – so but like as far as like you know, nobody revealed the secret behind the magic of pro wrestling, this is the one storyline that I want to know now more than anything. How did they do the Drano into Vomit storyline? What was the secret ingredient that – actually went down Cabana's throat that made him puke like that. Do you think he was just pre-gaming after the Azrael match, like just drinking it? It did seem like a very liquidy, clearish not to not to really evaluate the vomit that much, but there were some ch- there were some chunks in there, I feel like. Hmm. Do you think I wonder if he just ate a bit? Do you think he's like, oh boy, you know, so, someone bring someone bring in some takeout. Like I'm going to gorge myself between this match and and the ankle and no, because there weren't that. Many. Okay, we, we've talked too much about. Yeah, I feel like just someone someone knows the answer and they're just going to tell us, and we're going to sound stupid. <laughs> um. So anyway, uh, yeah, um, memorable angle, huh? <laughs> yes, it's, whether you like or hate it, it was absolutely very memorable. Quite a fucking, quite a fucking, fucking insane uh, visual, and definitely a major escalation. The next show they have in um, in uh, New Jersey is in February, and that's an extremely memorable match too. Is all I'll say for now. Apparently, also we like we talked on a recent show about how like the students and the production workers of any wrestling promotion are the unsung heroes, and it definitely has to be on this one because it said it took them the live report said it took them you know multiple minutes to clean up the ring after this. And can you imagine you know you're some poor schlub making almost no money or maybe no money. You're setting up the ring. You're just trying to get these very short like student matches where you get very little respect and almost no ring time. And now it's like hey, clean up what's probably like maybe a sticky liquid, maybe something else, and a bunch of uh, actual human vomit. Like, and then having to wrestle on the vomit on the vomitous uh, canvas a few minutes later, if you're in the next match. Yeah, like uh, just again, the unsung heroes of any wrestling promotion. It's n- it is not a glamorous job being part of the ring crew. Nobody did that um, thing where they kissed the mat after at the end of the show. Did they? <laughs> CM Punk not on the show. <laughs> uh, especially if they went right to the apron, <laughs> like yeah. Um, we then go forward in time to a clean ring that's empty for nearly empty, except for Gary Michael Capetta, who has a mic. Gary has some questions he tells us about Jay Lethal's recent behavior during his previous match against Samoa Joe. He's here to get some answers about it because, you know, Gary's the scoopster. Out comes a very cocky Lethal with some new entrance music. Um, he makes his way to the ring. Gary asks Jay why he attacks Samoa Joe with a chair during their last match. 
Jay says Joe didn't take him under his wing. Joe took held held him in the fat that's under his arm, which actually gets a nice like ooh sick burn reaction from the crowd. Jay says one day he was getting dressed in the in the room with Samoa Joe, the room with the oversized star on the door that says Samoa Joe, which it's adorable. He's trying to convince us that Samoa Joe has a personalized locker room in some of these buildings they work in. Anyway. He says he saw Joe's paycheck lying on top of his bag. Jay says he couldn't help but look at it, and he found out that the mentor makes a hell of a lot more than the protege. The crowd begins chanting, Joe's going to kill you, and Jay says, I beat him already. What are you talking about? Which actually made me chuckle a bit. Uh, Jay can't understand why Joe gets paid more than him when Jay himself has accomplished so much this year in Ring of Honor. He won the pure title. He beat the first Ring of Honor champion, Low Key. He says, Jay says he thinks that should mean big bucks for him. We then get a very obvious cut to later in the promo, which is always a good sign that a promo is going well. We'll talk about that in a second. Um, some fans are briefly chanting, you fucked up, along with shut the fuck up. Uh, Jay says he realized that as long as he, as he was in the shadow of Samoa Joe, that he'd never get the money that he truly deserves. So he broke free of Samoa Joe and became the hottest free agent in wrestling today. Jay gives a message to all the managers in wrestling coast to coast. His services are now open for bidding. So, yes, if you watch this, you will see an awkward edit. And the explanation is, first going to the Observer, Dave wrote, Jay Lethal cut a promo, said not to be good about turning on Samoa Joe, saying he saw his check and found out that Joe was making more than he was. Michael Tyler at the PW Torch had a bit of more explanation. He wrote, Lethal botched his lines a few times and the crowd let him know about it hilarious so that must have all be cut out because he doesn't like i would say Levo's promo as it airs is perfectly average and he does have that one good line but it clearly he did fuck up lines because there's a cut and then you hear people chanting like you fucked up and yeah. the energy is completely different yeah i mean as far as what we see like it's very clear he's made a lot of, lot of progress on promos it's not like the most dynamic promo, but man, has he come a long way from tonight is the night I've been waiting for, um, which was less than a year earlier. Um, that said, I didn't really love the content of this promo. Um, I feel like if you're going to build up to this big turn, it should be like more personal and hate filled. Yeah. I feel like the whole like, oh, the, he makes more money than me feels extremely trite for such a major turn. Doesn't it? Like, you know, I mean, there, like, that moment at the uh, night of tribute where he walks out and he's like, I can't do this anymore. Like, that deep seated frustration, you just don't see that in this promo. He's just all of a sudden like, I want more money. You make more money than me and it's not fair. Like, I don't know. That's, that's just boring to me. I feel like you could go a lot deeper than that. I agree. And also there, there's some legit like things you could draw on because yeah, you're using like, me like we, to get your, to get your, uh, t- tag team titles. You, you're pushing me to the background, right? I'm in your you shadow me for the pure title. Like yeah. why couldn't you just have waited and gone after a different title then when I yeah. was the champ? Yeah. Yeah. Like you just said, you know, th- we were a tag team also. You could go after your goal of winning the tag titles. Like I was just what you needed to get there. Like you could make a, do a legit, like you were selfish promo and instead. Yeah. It's the most boring boilerplate classic wrestling you make more money than me which is yeah very as you said trite is a great word for it um but we immediately transition from that promo into into a four-corner survival match uh jay lethal defeats bj whitmer who is escorted to the ring by lacy christopher daniels escorted to the ring by alice in danger and samoa joe in 15 minutes one second when he pinned daniels after he hit a top rope flying headbutt 
Uh, I thought this was an incredibly by-the-numbers formula Ring of Honor Four Corners match, but a good one if you're going to follow that formula. I mean, you had the standard booking here of it's two kind of burgeoning singles feuds that you just throw together in a Four Corners match. It's the same old thing where you got a couple big stars in this match because this is a car that's so loaded up top that you kind of don't need Joe and Daniels and big singles matches to draw on this show so they're kind of just sacrificed into a four-way uh you've got the heel in this case jay jay lethal in this case spending a large portion of the match avoiding his rival like tagging out we've seen that before in these four ways until finally he gets he only attacks when he has the advantage until finally the face kind of gets him when the face is in a good position and he, the heel gets the whooping he deserves and then you also get the thing we see a lot in these Ring of Honor four ways where the two heels basically decide, oh, we'd rather wrestle this as a tag. And they basically just isolate a face for a while until the face makes a hot tag, which is what Whitmer and uh, Lethal do to Christopher Daniels during this match. But I still somewhat enjoyed this because the, these guys are all talented. They seem to have their working boots on. The match has worked at a good pace. It's pretty action-packed. Um, they really wrestle this in a way that kind of protects Joe and makes him look like the star because he wrestles the star of the match where he just basically kicks Daniels and Whitmer's asses and looks like a king. And then he spends the rest of the, the middle of the match, like I said, like waiting for the hot tag. And then the hot tag, he gets to kick Lethal's ass, which is kind of the highlight of the match after he spends so long wanting to get at Lethal. And then basically, you know, the match does slow in that middle, but in the final few minutes, it's, you know, it's really pretty hot. It's all four guys coming in, hitting big moves. But then... This is the third straight match where a heel wins due to some kind of bullshit. Lethal brings the X Division, Joe's X Division title into the ring at one point in full view of the ref, but Joe avoids it and takes out Lethal. But then while the ref is admonishing Jay, Joe hits Daniels with a muscle buster on the belt, which is kind of a heelish move for Samoa Joe, supposed to be a babyface. And then Whitmer hits Samoa Joe with a steel chair. Jay Lethal recovers, he gets back in. He, he, and he gets rid of Whitmer and he then, um, hits the still injured Daniels with the headbutt for the win. So I know enough about Gabe Sapolsky's, like, I've heard enough about him talking about his booking philosophies to know he probably felt like this show was going to end with three clean, very crowd pleasing wins. So I can afford to have like three kind of really interference heavy fuck finish heel wins in the middle of the show and i don't mind that but i do mind it's just how again the first two particular like particularly that that carino one how kind of unimaginative they are i i feel like they're just lazy and i do feel like also when you just again not to beat a dead horse when you just started the whole steve i mean the jim Cornette. You know, everything's going to be no more like heels aren't going to get away with everything to do this heavy on one show. It feels like bad timing. And I guess the one last thing is we also get an Allison Danger lacy cat fight in the middle of the ring during this match. And well, I do like involving them in matches, you know, giving them things to do. It did feel, again, kind of regressive. It was very much an ECW style roll around. Just, I mean, they did throw hard elbows, but it, it, it felt more like, oh, the ooh cat fight mid-match spot than than anything too serious, but it was a good match. I didn't like the booking around it. Yeah, I actually wrote, like, at least I didn't say catfight when Lacey and Allison started fighting, and it wasn't quite what, like, that. Like, they weren't, like, pulling each other's hair and rolling around, right? No. Like, they were actually, like, throwing shots at each other, like, so it, it, it was definitely ECW-inspired, like, there's no doubt about it, but 
they it, it's clearly showed progress from what they were doing with Francine and Beulah or whatever yeah. or Don Marie or whoever was involved in those. Um, so I, I wouldn't quite go, you know, say it was as bad, but um, I agree with you pretty much about the match. It was it was pretty boilerplate, but also it was pretty good at the same time. Like they. Um, you know they they uh, they had a uh, they had a an entertaining match. The one thing I noticed though is Meltzer said this match was twenty six minutes long, and obviously on DVD it was fifteen. Do you think that must have been just been a mistake in the Observer because there's no way they cut out eleven minutes from this match, right? I can say I always get my match times from Cage Match, and they listed it as the fifteen, so right. it might have been. Although, didn't, like, Dave usually get his match ties, like, from Green Lantern fan, who was literally, like, timing things out with a stopwatch in the front row? I mean... Yeah, I'm not sure. I I was trying to find out if there was anything, like, in my records that said that match was long or any other thing that I could find saying it was long. You know, I just don't remember. But uh, definitely, like, they... they, they, um, If it was 26 minutes long, they really cleaned it up because it it definitely flowed. Um, Yeah. but, But, yeah, it did slow down in the middle, and... You know, I do think much like the um, much like the lethal promo, the whole thing where Lethal's trying to avoid Samoa Joe is also a little bit hacky. I think at this point, like obviously it's fine, it works, but you know the way that it the way that the the turn happened, it makes it seem like Lethal would want to get his hands on Joe instead of just being the cowardly heel. But you know, a heel is a heel, so I guess I guess you could make the argument either way. I don't know, but. Um, yeah, I agree with you that the final segment was good. I I thought it was funny when after when finally Joe got his hands on Lethal and he did the inverted inverted atomic drop into the big boot. He screams, "I'm rich, bitch!" in Lethal's <laughs> face because it made me think like first of all, it was responding to the um to the promo, but also it was a Dave Chappelle reference and I was like, "Oh yeah, that reference was still fairly current in 2005." <laughs> right? Cuz like obviously that's a long time ago. Um but it was not that long ago in 2005. Um and um you know, I think Joe, you know, because it was a four-way, he didn't have to really um you didn't have to really, you know, take all the bumps that he would be taking in TNA and stuff like that. But I do feel he had his working boots on as far as his offense. He had energy. He was, he felt like he was emotionally invested in what he was doing. It wasn't like sort of lethargic Joe that occasionally came out in the matches that he was less invested in during this era. You know what I mean? So yeah. I think that was good. I, I do, I did really get annoyed at some of the chair stuff at the end. Just, you know what annoyed me the most is when, after Whitmer hit Joe in the back with a chair, when Prazak said, well, you know, the ref is on the floor with lethal and doesn't see it. And I'm just like, well, based on everything I've seen in ROH, that doesn't matter at all. So why are you even saying it? Like that annoyed, for some reason, that annoyed me more than anything if they pretended like that would have mattered because people use chairs in front of the ref all the time and interfere in front of the ref all the time. So just even pretending that the ref would have made the disqualification here annoys, annoys me. Um, but otherwise, though, I thought it was an exciting match. It could have been better, I think. They could have been more clever with it, but I thought it was good. You know, not more than good, but a good version of something they do a lot, like you said. Dave wrote in The Observer, The idea of the match was to set up several new matchups, including Joe versus Daniels, Joe versus Whitmer, and Lethal versus Daniels. I wouldn't exactly describe Joe versus Daniels as a new matchup, but I mean, <laughs> it would it would continue the feud, but they, they've wrestled each other quite a bit now in Ring of Honor and TNA. 
Um, Dave also wrote said to be really good, which again, I think we would both agree that's maybe a step too far. Maybe there is a lengthy rate version out there somewhere. I don't know. Um, I, I would describe this quality of this match as like, it's the kind of match where, cause there's so much great talent in it. Like if this show was kind of a weak show, you'd be like, Oh, I wish they were in a better, there was a better use of these guys. But if it's a good show, you're like happy to have this on undercard. You're like, oh, that's a pretty good undercard match. And we got some great matches up top. So, and I will say, tipping my hand a bit, I think I was happy enough to have this match on the show. So, um, it's intermission and Gary Michael Capetta is backstage with the embassy. He tells us that Colt Cabana has been rushed to the hospital. They're, they've tried to get word from Steve Carino, but his locker room is closed. I wrote my notes, Matt. Boy, between this and the Jay Lethal promo, who knew Ring of Honor shows had so many different locker rooms? Um, this promo is so dark, not dark like my Drano story, but just vis- visually dark. Um, Nana tells Gary to shut up, and Gary whines, be nice to me, in a way I can only describe as simultaneously pathetic and adorable. Like he's, I love like the little weaselly, like, poor put-upon Gary Michael Capetta. I always love that. I'm just like, hey. Um, he just sits there and takes it, though. Nana says that 2005 was a fluke, and in 2006, the embassy is going to change wrestling. Alex Shelley says he's been thinking, 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 he says, like Randy Savage, and he had an epiphany. They've just tried beating people down, the embassy, but why don't they play by everybody else's rules and go after Ring of Honor's titles? Ravis then goes, thing, he goes, hmm, I think the Ring of Honor world title sounds really good. And I, Matt, I just love at the end of the promo, the whole point of this promo, it was, they said it in such a way as if it just occurred to them after being together for over a year that like maybe in a pro wrestling company, their goal should be to win pro wrestling titles. Like, like the whole point of this pro was like, this was a new thought they just were discovering. I love it. But it did, it does seem like since the pure title, uh, lost from Walter Salito, they really have stopped focusing on titles. So I guess it does make sense. Um, that, that said, I don't think Nana meant to say that 2005 was a fluke because that sounds bad because they were successful in 2005. So saying it was a fluke means like, oh, we didn't actually deserve our success. So I don't think he, uh, I think he meant to say it was just the beginning or just the taste or something like that. Yeah. But instead he said it was a fluke. <laughs> I mean, he could have said the last show was a fluke where they lost yeah. a big feud ending yeah. match, but yeah, yeah that's, it's big to write it off an entire year as a fluke. Uh, Lord knows we'd all like to, but. That brings us to Ricky Reyes with Julius Smokes defeating Davey Andrews via ref stoppage in two minutes, 19 seconds after he made Andrews pass out in the Dragon Sleeper. Um, in the opening seconds of this match, Dave Prezak says there is a backstage development and we cut to Gary Michael Capetta, who has found Steve Carino. He's leaving the building. A freaked out Carino talks about how Homicide tried to kill Cabana just now. Steve says Christmas is coming. He needs to take care of his family. He's out of here. He calls Ring of Honor an unsafe working environment. And then we go back to the match, which was almost nothing to begin with. They exchange a few stiff strikes. Reyes applies the uh, Dragon Sleeper. It's over. And this is the final match i believe according to cage match not just the final ring of honor match the final wrestling match of davy andrews the guy who was hyped as the star student from um, the first class of ring of honor's wrestling school got to be the first top of the class trophy winner and yeah again we talked about in the last show it's the big mystery on um the honorable mention podcast where they want to know and they can't even find out with their connections what happened to davy andrews but this is it for him um yeah i mean it's uh it's uh, it's a mystery, but also it's like 
I don't know. People have lives, you know. I yeah. mean, who you know, who the hell knows? I know very little about Davy Andrews as a person. You know, we saw very little of him as wrestling fans. Um, the match was a squash with no heat. I guess we could. The main thing we could mention is Steve Carino's cutaway promo, right? Like, yeah, where he says he's talking a mile a minute. He's like, "That was real, Drano." He says this is an unsafe working environment. If Cabana was smart, he would press charges. And Carino's gone completely from ROH because this is an unsafe working environment, and he should sue, but he won't because he's a professional and like homicide. Then he goes, "Who tries to murder people?" And I just thought, like, in kayfabe terms. Nothing he's saying is a lie, right? Like he's totally 100% right about everything, right? He's yeah. like the most the most true to life uh, promo I've ever heard because if I was a wrestler, that is the exact reaction I would have. And again, like Creo's promos, I don't know if he's intending it or not. They always have this energy which feels like always oh, being kind of this whiny heel. But Leah, like you said, the substance of what you said, he is completely in the right. Like he's having the normal human reaction to someone uh, trying to murder you like – there should be charges filed, and if this keeps happening, like, I don't feel safe working here. But yet, it's kind of like, you know, the energy of it is kind of like the typical interviewer being like, what's going on, man? Why are you running away? Like, it's pretty obvious why he should be running away. Yeah, um, that was definitely the most memorable part of this match. Um, when we come back, Andrews just tries to power slam Reyes, and Reyes turns into the dragon suplex, and Andrews is out, and Reyes wins. The, the one thing I do want to know is, did they already know Andrews was leaving after this? Because it felt like they were building up to eventually Andrews beating Reyes, but instead they just transitioned right from Andrews to Austin Aries. Maybe that was the plan all along. But, and maybe that's why Andrews left. I don't know. But um, I'm but, not sure. But when you think about the amount of time they gave, like that 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 in ring segment on a recent show where Reyes took out all the students and then had a confrontation with Andrews, and then compare it to this, where they don't even show all of the squash match and they don't show the entrances or anything. Like to me, it felt like they were building something bigger than what they deliver here. Yeah, I, I it felt like they were building up. Because they were giving Andrews like they were putting Andrews in like four ways with like star wrestlers. And BJ Whitmer had that match where he got a fair bit against Whitmer. Yeah, he was in a four way with Claudio, Nigel, and Jay Lethal. Right, like that's a pretty major match to be in a few months before this. So I think that this was not their planned end game for Davy Andrews. Um, so they must have already had word that Andrews was at least leaving for a while, if not permanently, by the time this match. Uh, came out in front of the crowd yeah and uh after the match this is probably the most memorable thing i would say about this whole segment um reyes puts the ring of honor top of the class trophy in the ring he gets handed a bat some i guess it's kind of a bat it doesn't quite look like a bat it's some kind of clubbing implement he then uses it to destroy the trophy but almost immediately austin aries runs in and chases him away to ringside uh, Roderick Strong soon joins him in the ring, and he's holding Aries back from like chasing Reyes to the outside. Someone, I assume Reyes, we can't see it, it's off camera, spits at Aries from outside the ring. And you can hear Aries shout, are you trying to give me AIDS? Which is, like, a, that made me pull on my collar. Um, Reyes and Aries jaw back and forth. Smokes keeps holding Reyes back. Aries gets on the mic, and he says, Reyes thinks he's a tough guy ass kicker, but he's pathetic, trying to soothe his bruised ego by picking on some students. He says Rocky Romero carried his ass in a tag team, and now Rocky's a big star in Japan. He says the only time Ricky Reyes is ever over is when he's drunk. Rick Noon is over. He says, Ricky Reyes, who gives a shit? I wrote my notes. Aries basically ethering Reyes here. like He's just killing him on this promo. The crowd's into it. 
Uh, Aries says, says um, is Reyes really letting Julius Smokes hold him back from getting into a ring and fighting him right now? Reyes is super pissed, but Smokes dra- is dragging him at this point to the back. At times, Ricky is actually swearing very angrily at Smokes even. As Reyes finally leaves, Aries says on the mic, go have a beer. And then Aries gets, says, since they're already in the ring, he and Roderick, let's do the tag title match right now, which cues the tag to Champ's music. But before we get to that match, um, Matt, I thought this was one of those pros. Like, it was a really good pro from Aries, but it was, like, almost too good. Like, it just destroyed Reyes, I felt. And so for people that don't know what Aries was referencing, there was, like, in for the age of, like, viral videos where we had Twitter and stuff, there was kind of, like, an early viral wrestling video was, uh, I guess, Ricky Reyes. The, the Samoa Joe has talked about this on Shooter Interviews. Uh, Ricky Reyes, when he drinks, he's one of the many people that kind of becomes a different person. Um, he is much more... Bold and uh, outgoing, I guess. Yes, gregarious, aggressive, whatever you want to say. And apparently, you know, he got into like fights with like the. I think the famous thing was like, um, there's that place in Chicago, the Wiener Circle, where it's a hot dog place where it's famous for like the women um, that work there are all very verbally mean to the customers on purpose, but you kind of know that going in. And apparently, Ricky Reyes did not know that. And he was very drunk and got into an argument with them in a funny way. And, um, he would, instead of saying, I'm Rick James, bitch again, another Chappelle show reference. Like he would be like, I'm Rick noon. And he was trying to say his real name, Rick noon is, but instead he, he's so drunk. It came out as Rick noon. And so that became his nickname. And again, I guess a video of him being this drunk got out there. And so that's what Aries is basically in some ways that is the thing that Ricky Reyes was most famous for was not any match he had in Ring of Honor, but this very brief clip of him being incredibly drunk. And the crowd seemed to be aware of it because when Aries made that line, everyone in the crowd was like, maybe not everyone, but a lot of people in the crowd were like, oh, shit. Like, yeah, like they got him. And like, you know, you'd hope that Reyes approved that line before uh, the promo was cut, but you never know in wrestling, right? Um, yeah. But yeah, no, it definitely – Aries definitely got over on Reyes in that promo. That's for sure. Yeah, it was almost like one of the rare instances of wrestling where the promo was almost too honest because like he was saying hurtful things and you – they cut like Rocky Romero did kind of carry him. He is more successful than Reyes. Uh, you know, that is the thing that kind of is he is most known for at this point is being – like it was kind of like, ouch. Well, well, I, I well, well, bad, well, just saying it like the way he said it too, like like that he says Rick Noon is over, Ricky Reyes, who gives a shit? Like <laughs> that's like you know that's quite a a cold slap in the face, huh? Yeah, but I mean, this does lead to Aries and Reyes wrestling. I think at least once, maybe twice. Yeah, more than once. And- and, you know, the whole idea is, you know, why would Aries be so mad? It's because Aries at this point was the current trainer at the Ring of Honor Wrestling School. So, you know, he has reason to be really pissed off that Reyes on recent shows has been abusing the students that he is now training. But that brings us to the Ring of Honor tag team title match. Generation Next of Austin Aries and Roderick Strong defeat Sal Renaro and Tony Mamaluke in 18 minutes, 13 seconds, when Aries pins Renaro after hitting the 450. The title has changed. We have new champs. Matt, finally a new era for the tag division starts here. Yeah, I'd say like the first era in a long time where they're actually going to take the tag team title seriously, right? Mm-hmm. And um, so, but I, I think it's, this was a good start to it. Um, I uh, I liked that, you know, just the way they worked this match. Um, 
not everything about it, but I enjoyed it a lot overall. First of all, Strong and Mamaluke, I thought, had pretty good chemistry. They started the match early, and they really kept the crowd invested in their mat work for like a solid four or five minutes. Uh, you know, and when they finally have a stalemate, there's like a really big applause break. I thought like, you know, most of these matches start with this feeling out sequence, but I thought this one was above average. Um, when uh, when Renaro tags in against Strong, it's not quite as dynamic, but we do get to see Strong stretch him a bit and Mamaluke will come in and break it up. And, you know, they, they work on Renaro for a little while and they cut off the ring and they're tagging in and out. And he's definitely being played as the weak link, um, Renaro is. Generation X are dominating him. Strong uses Renaro's ponytail for leverage a few times even. And for the first 10 minutes, I would say, of the match, we get way more strong than Ares because Ares always tags out very quickly once he gets in. But I thought that was okay because Strong was pretty on point here, I thought. Um, we, of course, get some classic Roderick Strong spitting because he spits at Tony Mamaluke while he's in the corner. Um and Strong just like abuses Renaro with chops. Ares will come in and get his big drop kick. And I'm to the point where I'm starting to feel bad for Renaro because he's just getting the, the crap beat out of him. And I think the chops sound even more brutal than usual. Um, Renaro gets some big hope spots. He gets his run up moonsault press onto Strong. Um, but Roderick, he quickly turns that into a roll up and Generation X are right back on offense. Um, when Renaro does finally try to make a fiery comeback with strikes. Ares tries to do his like slingshot twisting press from the apron, but Mamaluke pulls him off the apron and just aggressively smashes his head repeatedly against the guardrail. And I'm just like, well, that's one way to react to your partner getting dominated. I actually like it because you don't really see that very often. The guy on the outside just gets like so fed up and he's just like, like, take that motherfucker. Like, I'm not going to take this anymore. I, I thought it was a good spot, but I thought it, it ended any chance of a hot tag to Mamaluke because Mamaluke just tagged himself in at that point. And then he, mm-hmm. he gets he gets booed and he milks the booze and that kind of stops the match dead in its tracks, which uh, I don't know, don't really – does obviously that's not a good sign. But eventually they get it back. He, he works over Ares for a while. Um, looks like he's sort of going after Ares' neck. Um, and they, they, they try to make it so it's sort of like getting personal between Mamaluke and Strong because Mamaluke starts taunting Strong. Um, uh, Sal tags back in and holds Ares so, so, uh, and Mamaluke holds Ares so he can come off the top with an elbow to the back of the neck. Um, at one point, uh, Renaro is covering Ares, but Strong comes in and he breaks it up with a really loud chop to Renaro's back, which I always like those unique pin breakups. Um, now they're going after Ares' leg, so Mamluk isn't really targeting one specific body part. He just sort of like dismantles Ares with various holds. Um, they try to do a double team, but Ares flips over, tags strong, and now we get the hot tag. Um, like even though the Ares, the heat sequence against Ares wasn't as long as the one against Renaro, the strong hot tag does get a much bigger reaction than. Mama Luke coming in, and he does a really good hot tag. Like these, he does a cool backbreaker variation where Renaro's legs are draped over the middle rope. He pulls him in with a double underhook and hits a backbreaker. I like that. Uh, Renaro does a cool reversal of the double knees that um, that Strong does. He does he he reverses it into a Rana, gets a near fall on that, which I thought was one of the best spots of the whole match. Um, after a series of reversals, Ares gets in a sudden, like a heart attack clothesline, 
and they send Strong to the floor. Ares hits the Finley roll, goes up top for a frog splash, which you can tell he's going for the frog splash because he pounds his chest like Eddie. Um, The beginning of a very, very long tradition of guys going up top and pounding their chest like Eddie Guerrero to tell (laughs) them that, to tell the crowd that they're going for a frog splash. It's funny to watch this back now and realize, oh yeah, that was just when people started doing that (laughs) because this was 2005. But Mama Luke catches him and goes for a superplex. Um, and then Renaro follows that with a springboard press off the top rope. Strong breaks that up. Renaro drop kicks Strong to the outside again, and he and Mamluk go for their spike DDT. But Strong breaks that up with the big boot to Renaro. Aries and brainbusters Mamluk. And at this point, you can sort of see that the crowd is sensing a title change, sort of like uh, in the match with Aries and Joe from the year earlier. Like you, like just you get that mo- moment in where the crowd's like, "Oh yeah, this is going to be a title change." Right, right as Aries hits the brainbuster, um, Roderick hits the backbreaker on Renaro, and Aries comes off with the 450 and gets the win. And the title change gets a really big pop. And you know, I really like the beginning of the match with Strong and Mamaluke. I really liked the the way they they beat on Renaro. I thought that was very entertaining. I thought the middle sometimes seemed disjointed, but I thought they the ending really got it back together and was quite exciting. Um, so I thought this was quite good. I think it could have been better. I think if they just tightened up the middle a little bit, you know, maybe once Mama Lou came in, you know, the way they did that tag could have been a little bit, I don't know, they could have uh, maximized the interest level in that a little bit more. But I, uh, you know, I thought the match was just enough of, had just enough tension, but not too much where it didn't make sense that they shook hands at the end. And I don't know. I think it just symbolized a new era in a way that I enjoyed. I really, I don't know. I like this match. I think more than I remembered, actually. I like this match significantly less than you. Um, this was my second least favorite match on the entire show. In fact, I would still say it was a little bit above average. Like that's how you know the quality of Ring of Honor is really good at this point. But this match isn't painful. But to me, it just felt completely adrift because. You know, we've talked about how Mama Luke and Renaro as a team didn't really have chemistry, but it's not just that they're opposites in style or or gimmick, because a lot of times there have been a history of great, like, opposite tag teams where, you know, two guys have different styles or different personas, and that's kind of the, the gimmick. This match, I felt like these two guys were wrestling, like, they were completely different tag teams, period. Like, Sal is just getting dom you mentioned it he's just getting dominated in this match to the point where he does not even get to make his own comeback to make a hot tag like like you mentioned he gets dominated gets the crap beat out of him and then it's it's tony mamalu basically decides fine okay i'm just gonna grab aries i'm gonna drag him to the floor i'm gonna ram his head in to the barricade a million times and then i'm gonna basically almost tag myself and i felt so bad like Sal got he very, he gets just a few offensive spots in this match. Every time he gets a spot, almost immediately, it's never a sustained run. He's he, he's getting beaten up like he's like the most underdog baby face ever. And then when Mama looks in, he wrestles this match fifty fifty, and he wrestles it like a heel. Like you know, he comes out there and like you mentioned, when he gets the hot tag, he like plays to the crowd, like soaks in their booze and like eggs them on. And I, I felt like one guy here is wrestling like he's a complete Ricky Morton baby face and the uh, very sympathetic, just getting a complete ass kicking. And the other guy is wrestling like he's a mid card heel. And it just felt like it didn't, for me, it made the match feel weird. I also felt like watching this match, a big tag title change third from the top on a big show. They got plenty of time. 
it didn't quite feel as epic as it didn't feel like they were aiming for something as huge as I wanted it to. And it also felt like I, I didn't feel a lot of tension in this match. Like I did, like I never, like I, it never felt like the two top teams in the division were fighting for the top titles. Like it, to me, it always felt maybe because a lot of it was we're now getting his ass kicked. It always felt to me like Aries and Strong were just worlds ahead of this other team. And that took some of the drum out of it. I will say the crowd was really into, like you mentioned, Aries and Strong wearing the tag titles. Like, especially in those final minutes, like, like you mentioned, I think you can tell when the crowd really senses like, oh, this could happen. They all, it's almost is kind of like Aries against Joe, maybe n- not quite to that level of heat, but not that far from it in the final minutes where the crowd realized, oh shit, like they could do this. We're going to see a big tag, t- we're going to see a big title change. And that kind of energy is infectious. And Aries and Strong did hit all their signature stuff, and they look good doing it because Aries and Strong are good professional wrestlers. Um, it, it just – the vibe of this match, the story of this match, everything about that part of it, it, it I just – something about it just – it did not click for me at all. Completely missed. And I also am shocked, Matt, that you did not – that you didn't mind what I thought it was becoming one of your big pet peeves that I was loving looking out for because, yeah, you mentioned it, but – there's the, a moment where Roddy works the first, I think, like seven minutes of this match, and he tags Ares, and Ares like does one move and immediately tags out, and I think he does that like two or three times in this match. And we're like, for the first half of this match, I was thinking like, is Ares hurt or something? Like, does he secretly not want to wrestle tonight? Because that's but, because that's not the pet peeve. The pet peeve is when they do that off a hot tag. Like, yeah. if it's just like a quick tag in and out, like I don't, I don't care. I feel like that was that's the thing they're going for. It's when the guy's getting the shit kicked out of him, which is not what was happening to Roderick, that he finally tags out, and then his partner's just like, "Come right back in." I know you're already really hurt. If anything, that happened with Mama Luke and Renaro. If anything, not not so much with Aries and Strong. I do feel like 2005 was a lost year for the tag titles. I might have a reason to talk about it later, but like they desperately needed what they're doing right here, which is just. They needed to take two big names. They needed just to put them together and sacrifice maybe some singles matches from them and just put the titles on a stable act for a long time that in a way you could say this is yet another somewhat thrown together team. They had wrestled a few times, but not for long term and not and just mostly because they were in a stable together. But like this was desperately what this division needed. And they're going to stick with it. Like Aries and Strong will have the longest continuous title reign in ROH history up to this point. So, yeah. so I mean, I think they're going to hold the title for what, nine or maybe 10 months. Uh, they, they hold it till September of 2006. So that's a, I mean, that's a long title reign. That's yeah. no, no one else has had quite that long of a run yet. So, you know, I think that, I think they're doing the right thing. And, you know, I don't, I think even by the end of 2006, the, the tag team division will not quite be where it could be, but it's a whole lot better than it is at the moment that we're reviewing right here. Yeah, help is on the way because the Briscoes are coming back soon. Before the end of the next year, we'll have the Kings of Wrestling. Like, there is some help coming. Um, after the match, the two teams shake hands, like you said. Uh, Dave Prezak on commentary notes that Ares has now won titles at two straight final battles, so that's a nice little trivia bit there. Ares yells that the belts aren't going anywhere for a long, long time, which you just point out he's being completely honest about. And then uh, that brings us to the semi-main event, or I guess you, depending on how you look at the first half of a double main event, the Ring of Honor World Title Match, 
Brian Danielson successfully defends the title, defeating Naomichi Marafuji via pinfall in 23 minutes, 42 seconds with a cradle. Uh, this was very good, I thought. Not quite great, just a smidge under. But it did. It felt like it was a first meeting between, which it was, between two talented guys where um, there's no work that was rough apart from there was one semi-blown Marafuji spot, which we can get to. But um, it felt like it was the first time or just because it was two guys kind of figuring out what they do together, doing just training a lot of their signature spots back and forth. I, I And I feel like a lot of first-time matches between talented guys are like that. You very rarely get the Joe Kobashi where it's just everything clicks 100% the first time. Like this was a match where I was like, really good match. I bet you if they wrestled like two or three more times, they would have better matches than this because I think their chemistry would just grow. Although although uh, they did have other matches in ROH, and I do not think they were as good as this, but I'll, I'll, we'll save that for years so from now. <laughs> may, maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> I'm not sure. You know, my memory is off, but um, I think an interesting thing about this match, Danielson defenses so far – as champion have been Danielson dominating, we've talked about with the exception of the most recent, uh, the Rocky Romero match where Romero took it to him just as hard as Brian took it to Romero. I felt like this match kind of split the difference where there's a significant amount of this match is Danielson controlling, but there is enough for Marafuji too. And pretty much every time Danielson is a dick to Marafuji, like he slaps him, uh, Marafuji immediately fires back. Like he doesn't take, put up with any of Danielson shit. He, he's not submissive to him. He doesn't just let him slap him around. He'll fire right back. He'll stomp Danielson's head, everything like that. It it felt almost like Danielson was wrestling his normal kind of Danielson as champion match we've become accustomed to. But because Marafuji is like a special guest star, foreign star, he gave his opponent, he gave his opponent like larger windows to show off because, hey, he's a draw too. And you need to show him some, a bit more respect. And the fans kind of, to some degree, paid to see this guy. Um, So I liked all of that. Like it's one of those matches where it's good and I don't have a lot to say about it because it's just like they did their stuff back and forth and their their stuff is good. Uh, Marafuji took a DDT bump that looked like right on top of his head very dramatically but probably was very safe, which was very cool looking. Um, The botch was Marafuji did like this inside-outside dropkick where he kind of goes outside the ring and kind of swings his back in to do it. Like, but as he was kind of swinging on the ropes, he kind of stumbled, but he caught himself. He managed to do it. Uh, Marafuji at one point spanks Danielson's ass. That was always a, that's, that's a tree. I'm a fan of a big mid-match ass spank, man. I, I'm a, I'm a fan of that kind of thing. Yeah, same. Uh, big same. And before the match, you know, we, Danielson did his usual new gimmick where he gets Bobby Cruz to announce him, like a special announcement that he always tells him to say something a little different. And this time, he made Bobby Cruz announce Danielson as the best wrestler in the entire world. Emphasis on entire world. So just rubbing it in Marafuji's face. And I also love before the match, Matt, I loved how adorably Marafuji seemed to get into the fans chanting his name. Like, I feel like this was still the era where foreign wrestlers sometimes did not realize how over they would be with an American crowd. And when the crowd starts chanting Marafuji's name before the match, like Marafuji for like a brief second seems almost surprised. And then he seems like really into encouraging it. Like he's really happy. Like he's like, Oh boy, they're chanting my name. And I thought, Oh, this is like a nice wholesome wrestling moment. So I really, to me, that was almost as good as anything that happened in the match, which is not necessarily a slight on the match, but it was, I really like that. Yeah. Um, one thing to mention before I talk about the match. So, 
Marufuji's entrance made me realize I wish there were more wrestlers that wore masks that, you know, like to the ring and then they took them off when they wrestled. How many guys in America do that now? Like, I know the Young Bucks do it sometimes still, and like the House of Black does it. How many wrestlers can you think of that do the pre match mask that they take off? Can you think of it like currently, right now in 2022? I can't. You know who should do it? is Sting. Sting should have a Sting mask on before every match. Yes. And then just take because that's become such a meme. Just have a Sting mask. I think that's a great idea. Um but as far as the match, yeah, I mean I I agree there's not a ton to say. It was a it was like an action match more than a story match. But I do think that there was some story to it in the sense that like I didn't remember how much like slapping they were doing. There were a lot of slap fights in this match. Not as intense as the slap the slap fights we're gonna see in the main event, but there's a lot of that. Um Danielson really carried the match with his um you know, in terms of like getting you know the crowd's emotional investment, whereas Marafuji was much more about the big moves that he was doing. But, you know, Danielson would, would taunt the crowd, did the surfboard tease where he said, fuck off. He would throw Marafuji into different guardrails. Um, it's funny, this match did a something that you really don't see now, but it was something I guess could have been done in 2005, where they do a really long sequence teasing a move off the apron, but they never do a move off the apron. And, like, nowadays, you can't tease a move off the apron unless you're going to eventually do one, right? Yeah. I thought that was interesting. Um, cause like, we I feel do- like the only thing you can do now is you can still do the tease of I'm going to do like suplex a guy out of the ring and not ever deliver on. But yeah, I agree. You can't tease an apron thing and then never do it now. Yeah. I mean, even a year later, when less than a year later, when they do the Marafuji against McGinnis match, um, they, like, they tease stuff off the apron, but eventually, um, Marafuji hits the Shiran Shiranue with uh, off the apron on McGinnis. So like it's a, this is teasing a spot that's going to come nine months later. So that's <laughs> that's interesting. But um, no, but I feel like Danielson does a great job of keeping the crowd engaged during like the building part of the match. Um, and eventually they uh, you know they get into the more uh, you know hard hitting or or fast paced or just more spectacular moves. They do do a bunch of stuff early where Danielson is working on the leg and they never really pay that off. Like Marafuji, like once he gets into his big move sequence, he doesn't sell the leg even a little bit. So I guess I could see somebody not liking that. But if you just accept that this match is not about that, it's just about the big moves and the action. I think you'll enjoy it a lot more. And I think they do deliver on that. Other than that one, um, that one spot you mentioned where I think Marafuji really recovers well from that botch, like to the point where I think he even gets the crowd to uh, react even more than they otherwise would have after it. Um, I think the the execution's really good. Um, you know, Marafuji gets the please don't tap chance when he gets the, uh, when he, uh, when he gets locked in the cattle mutilation a couple times. And, um, you know, when he finally hits his uh, Shiran away, they're both down, so Marafuji can't cover. There's a lot of good dramatic near falls at the end. Um, the finish is very sudden, very quick. Like, Danielson goes for the German, and Marafuji flips over, gets a sunset flip, and they get a series of roll-ups that eventually Danielson just gets a tight enough cradle and gets the pin. Um, but the crowd pops pretty big, considering. And I guess, you know, for a finish like this where you got to protect both guys – getting the quick maneuver win versus like the really decisive I beat you uh, intensely win is something that more people could agree on. So I guess that's okay. And, but yeah, it was, it was just a different kind of match than you normally saw in ROH during this period in terms of just like building to the big moves in a fast paced way. 
And uh, so I would I would call this really good or low great. That's what I would call this. Yeah. One other thing I want to mention that you brought up with with uh, the police don't have that made me think is something that I think Marafuji and I I think Kenta maybe did it too. I'm not sure. Is they actually at least Marafuji did tap the mat during a submission hole earlier in the match, and like the crowd notices it, and uh, Marafuji taps like during uh, he's in a surfboard, and Danielson notices even to the point where he yells at the ref he tapped, and like the crowd gets on it a bit, and it's funny like it's just I don't know if it's just a cultural thing at that time where maybe Noah they didn't do like legit tap outs in that way or something like that, but it was something like they were tapping more in that way of oh i'm in pain like i'm tapping because i just got to move my limbs i'm 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 suffering but you know in ring of honor obviously by this point you know if you tap that's but they just ignore it for the purposes of this match um the observer dave Meltzer, had both live reports and then this was the rare show where dave ring of honor show where dave actually did a review of the top matches weeks later when he got a copy of the tape so first we'll do the live report that's not dave's thoughts but was in the observer dave wrote some were disappointed with brian danielson versus naomichi marifuji where danielson retained the ring of honor title in about 2345 but i was told it was three and a half stars to four stars it started slow and there were some missed spots and weak chops by marifuji early but the last 10 minutes were excellent and both men got standing ovation when it was over it was also clear that people didn't see marifuji at the level of kenta as marifuji got a nice reaction but kenta got a superstar reaction um i didn't really notice weak chops from marifuji and i didn't really notice more than one botch i'm again who knows about editing or stuff like that i would Uh, having seen them having seen the match live i don't think there were multiple botches just fyi yeah I would say that star rating range is probably you know i'm right in the middle probably of that three and a half to four so i i think that's probably a good you know, range of opinions probably on that match. Uh, then Dave got the DVD or whatever and watched it. And his thoughts were, I thought Danielson versus Marafuji was underrated, probably because it couldn't match the main event for being spectacular. Danielson is an artist in the ring and always pl- and plays the role of an old time Dory Funk Jr. style world champion better than anyone in a long time in that he's able to get himself the match, the opponent and the title all over while giving you a finish that doesn't compromise the belt. It's a stretch to call what is essentially the top indie belt a world title and its champion the greatest wrestler in the world, but he does an excellent job in playing that role. The crowd also felt the match was the semi main because the aura of Kenta in the building was was so much more than Marafuji. But I'd give it three and three quarter stars, which is also again what I would give it. So what Dave? This is a bit of classic Dave nagging the indies. I w- I would say I agree with the part. Like I can say, all right, if you don't really want to call the world a Ring of Honor world title, a, a world title when it's only been defended overseas, I think once or twice, or like out of the country, I mean once or twice so far. I get it, but in saying an indie wrestler can't be the rest best wrestler in the world, like I'm sorry. Danielson had a good case to be the best wrestler in the world. Samoa Joe, the last 18 months, had a good case to be the best wrestler in the world before he went to TNA. Like, this idea that if a guy doesn't wrestle on a major television promotion, I still feel like, and again, Dave, I think at, by this point, he was starting to grow, outgrow that thing. We were seeing less of these kinds of comments in The Observer. He was having them a lot more in the earlier years. But that's still that idea of if you're not a major promotion, you can't be the best at a, being a pro wrestler. It'd be like saying, I don't know, like, the Ramones can't be as a great band because they didn't sell as much as the Beatles. Like you it, it's just, it's a, it's a weird kind of business logic that is not true of creative 
talent. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of people that have that view about wrestling. Like, they don't, they don't talk, they don't think about it as like some sort of creative endeavor. They just think of it like, you know, like that old thing where like Al Snow would say, like, oh, the best match at WrestleMania three was Hulk Hogan versus Andre the Giant because it drew the most money. And it's like, well, I mean, no, like, there's like, there's other things to feature about like what makes some, like, they're the biggest stars, but that the, there's it's you know there is also this thing of like aesthetic and like subjective quality that you could also argue besides just like quality is not just based on business like it's there's other factors at play i guess is what i'm trying to say and i think dave would eventually come around to realizing that guys who are not the top the, you know in the most um, well-known companies can be the best in the world but who knows i would think that dave wouldn't have thought that even back then but i guess he did yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, again, I realize from one point of view to what like the Al Snows of the world would say, if the goal of wrestling is to make money, then the best matches from that standpoint to hit that goal are the ones that draw the most. That's but a goal say, of wrestling and not the only yeah, one. Yeah, because let's face it, if if if, if saying that the what how the best of anything creatively was is just what sold the most. No one would have a personal opinion on anything because we just say, all right, where are the 10 best books of all time? It's the 10 best selling books of all time. Where are the 10 best albums of all time? It's the 10 best selling albums. And no one thinks that way. Yet in wrestling, there's a certain group of people that's like the best matches of all time have to be the best drawing ones, which again, nothing else is like that, I, I feel like. But I mean, I'm sure uh, there are like music executives out there that would say yeah. things like that, right? But like, man, it's a boring way to think about the world. Yeah, exactly. Um, after the match, confetti goes off over the room, which kind of shocked me that Ring of Honor was going to this level of uh, pomp and circumstance. I, I, know, I didn't know. No, there was a guy in the crowd that had like a confetti popper. It was not our ways that did that. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> well, kudos to that one fan. Um, Danielson and Marafuji hold up one finger each. You know, Danielson outright saying one more to Marafuji, so like teasing a rematch. The crowd chants Ring of Honor. Then they chant Marafuji. Then please come back, which Danielson encourages. So even though, you know, Danielson was kind of a heel at this point, he's being very nice to Marafuji here. And he's like encouraging them like, hey, give this guy his props. Marafuji grabs the mic and the crowd chants Aragato. Marafuji says something very quickly. I couldn't make it out. Matt, did you make out what he said? It was something very short. No, I couldn't. Yeah, it was probably just something very like thank you or something in English very quickly, but it was hard to hear. As Marafuji leaves, Prince Nana, Elk Shelley, and Jimmy Rave are all standing by the entrance, staring at him. Uh, they're then looking to the ring and looking at Danielson. Danielson celebrates in the ring until he notices that the embassy is staring at him, and then he starts walking after them, but then they just walk away to the back. So teasing a little angle there. And that brings us to the actual main event. You know, the GHC Junior Heavyweight title match gets to go after the Ring of Honor title match. I can see some people going, how dare they? But I think once you watch this match, you realize it was the right move because the last match could not possibly have followed this match. I promise that- you no one was saying, how dare they? <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and that brings us to the main event. Kenta successfully defends his GHC Junior Heavyweight title, defeating Loki, scored to the ring by Ricky Reyes, via pinfall in 24 minutes. 56 seconds after he hit the Busaiku knee kick. Uh, before the match, they have Bobby Cruz read out a GHC official title match declaration, which is kind of the way they do it in Pro Wrestling Noah in Japan. So a very official kind of proclamation, like this has been officially sanctioned as a match, which I thought was a neat touch. Now, before I throw it to you, Matt, a little background on this match, uh, Dave Meltzer would write, 
the first ever singles match with Kenta versus Low Key, with the GHC Junior title at stake, provided Kenta doesn't lose it first, will be at the December 17th show in for Ring of Honor. Low Key asked Gabe Sapolsky when he found out about Kenta coming, saying he wanted a singles match, and since he's a Noah regular, there should be no political problems in getting it done. So this was actually, I mean, maybe Gabe would book this probably anyway, because it's a very good match to book. But according to the Observer, like Loki went out of his way to ask for this match. Uh, Matt, what did you think about this? This match? This is a very fondly remembered match. People um, kind of, you know, will compare this as almost like the junior heavyweight version of Joe and Kobashi. And I don't think that's really fair, like to this match or to Joe versus Kobashi, because that match had so much built in emotion and like passion because Kobashi such a legend. Kenta was not a legend at this point, right? Like, he was the new kid on the block, if anything. You know, he really became famous, famous, like, you know, like, really celebrated globally, I would say, maybe like two years before this. I would say it really aligns with when he and Marafuji won the GHC tag titles, right? Like, which would have been like, what, mid-03, probably, when they first won. So so Kenta was now becoming, you know, more like, well-known as like, a singles guy, you know, between Kenta and Marafuji, who, you know, and Marafuji would end up being the GHC champion, you know, shortly after this too. But Kenta was the bigger star. And he was the one that was considered like the better of the two by most people, not everybody, but by most people. So he was a really big deal as far as being like the hot new thing, like you mentioned earlier. Um, so that's going to have a different kind of emotion than, you know, these Japanese legends coming in, like the Ligers and the Mudas and, of course, Kobashi. Yeah, um, I would say this is like an important transition point for Ring of Honor because before this point, most of the time, bringing Japanese guys was always about, like, legends from the past, like you just mentioned. And from here on out, you know, there will be the Masawa shows and stuff like that, but it becomes much more – Let's get guys that are like entering their prime right now between the Noah guys and the Dragon Gate guys. Right. And because of that, I think people did not realize just how big of a part in ROH Kenta would be playing over the next few years. And Marafuji too, honestly, but especially Kenta in 2006 and 2007, he was a big part of those shows. Um, a lot of them. He'd be there a lot and have some major, major matches there. And, you know, for all I think anybody really knew at this point, this was just him coming in once like Kobashi. Um, so people treated this like a big one-off special match. Um, and, you know, Loki, even though he was a major legend in ROH, he was so on and off there. His character was a little bit different than Joe's. So he didn't have the support base that Joe had either. You know, the crowd wasn't like rooting for him to, you know, be a legend himself in the way that they were for Joe. So my point in all saying this is they did not have the built-in atmosphere to work with and the built-in emotion that Joe and Kobashi had. They just couldn't. So they had to get by on, yes, their star power, but also just the match, much more so than Joe and Kobashi did. There wasn't like a this is awesome chant right at the beginning um, before they did anything. This is not like, oh my God, we're seeing this person do anything in front of us. This is awesome. So the crowd's a bit quiet early, but they're attentive. It's not like they're bored. Um, and, you know, I don't know, you know, I think Belcher said this was the first ever singles match between these two. Um Right? Didn't he say that? Yeah. Yeah. So, like, I'm guessing that in Japan, he would not have been able to be in control as much as he was here. But I guess if you're going to say there was any storyline here, it would be that since Loki was on his home turf, he was able to match Kenta a bit more than he normally would in in Japan, where he was, you know, a bit lower on the totem pole. 
um, than he was in ROH. Obviously, a lot lower on the totem pole than he was in ROH. So he gets to be in control a lot. And the other storyline is that he gets to sort of like stop Kenta in his tracks whenever Kenta tries to get some momentum going, try to get some of his big moves. So we see a lot of reversals in this match. Um, but, but Loki works really tight and snug, you know, even like his head scissors are locked in real tightly, you know, it doesn't take long for him to start releasing really hard chops and Kenta responds with really hard kicks and they are really hard. Like that's the one thing you notice about this match. The chops are hard. The kicks are loud. They are laying it in. And when they do their slap fights, they get bigger reactions than the one in Danielson Marafuji because they are harder strikes. Um, and they, that goes to it. A bunch. So, like, there's a big sense of anticipation early, and it gets rewarded because they have these big, like, strike battles, and the crowd loves all of those. Uh, they also do the Noah thing where the ring announcer calls every five minute mark as that passes, which I like, and I think that most, I think American promotions would do that. I think it would make draws more interesting, but that's a, that's beside the point. Um, but, you know, they, they do pepper in a lot of big moves. You know, uh, Kenta hits a flying clothesline back into the ring. They do some, Brawling on the floor, kicks against the guardrail. Um, Kenta does his thing, which would be definitely become a, at least in the ROH, would become a trademark spot where he teases, like he, he slingshots over the top rope to stomp on Loki, but instead of stomping on him, he just lands on the apron and does sort of like a lackadaisical looking, like kick behind him to Key's head. Mm-hmm. And the crowd goes nuts over that. Um, but Key will, 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 you know, pepper in his big kicks at, in response out of nowhere, which I think are always make him more effective. Like, Kent hits the ropes and suddenly Loki hits a big capo kick. Um, looked really rough. Um, um, at one point, Loki gets a running start, leaps to the top rope and flies to the floor. And at this point, I'm like, you know what? I really like a lot of what gangsta Loki is, but I've missed this Loki. You know, I think that's one thing you notice. Like we we really see how much he's held back since he turned heel. You know, he he really yeah. lets himself loose in this match, which obviously makes sense. Like he should, but you you really notice like wow, he could do so much, and we don't get to see that very much anymore in ROH. Um, but he, we do get to see almost all of it here. He's he's firmly in control in the middle of the match. He's taunting Kenta. But never, it's never too long before Kenta fires up, fires back a few times, like with uh, with with strikes and kicks. But Key always cuts him off again. Gets a lot of two counts. Gets a body scissors. Really slows things down from there. And uh, and Kenta gets to the ropes. Uh, Key hits his first double stomp after Kenta tries a sunset flip. Uh, Loki double stomps out of that, and the crowd goes nuts for that. And every double stomp Loki does, they they love all of them. Uh, on the floor, Loki puts Kenta over his shoulder and just like gets a running start and runs him into the barricade. Um, it's it's interesting as I watch this, I notice like how little crowd work there is in this match compared to the Danielson match. Like Danielson really plays for the crowd a lot, and really the only crowd work in this match is like every once in a while Kenta will just like spread his arms and pose to the crowd, and that's basically it. Loki does not work the crowd at all. I would say, like at least if he does, it's like super subtle stuff. But like they, they really are just like we are serious and having a serious contest here. Um, but the crowd is still into it because you know they like Kenta and Loki is, is awesome. Like he keeps getting his hope spots. He tries reversing an Irish whip, but Loki whips him into like a six one nine position and then just quickly jumps to the top rope and leaps off the top and hits a double stomp. But the problem is, I think Loki shoot crotched himself when he did that. 
and it seemed really <laughs> painful. I, I mean, he recovered quickly, but he like he fell to the outside, sold it, like you know, he got over it. But I don't think he was happy about that, like um, especially not in a big match like this. But um, you know, they keep going. Kenta hits him with a big running corner boot, another jumping kick. He does a flurry of kicks. Followed by a springboard drop kick into the ape onto the uh, you know from the apron for two. Kenta blocks a clothesline into a bridging butterfly suplex, and then goes right into a cross arm breaker. Then hits a falcon arrow, gets a two count off of that. He goes for a super kick, but Loki gets him into the tree of woe position and hits that double stomp. And but he can't follow up because both guys are down. So he goes when they finally get up. He goes right into a that machine gun chop flurry against the ropes. Um, and Kenta go, comes back with, um, a Busai Kuni or that, that flurry that he does before the Busai Kuni where he yeah. does, the, he does the chops, doesn't he go, he goes, he runs to go hit the knee. And this is the first of multiple counters to this. Loki follows him to the ropes, springboards off and hits one of his springboard like kicks. This is one of his signature ones. He gets a two count. I thought that was one of the best spots of the match the, you know, because like you, that's just like an awesome out of nowhere counter. Every time Loki did something that you did not expect, I thought it always came off really well. Um, Loki hit the Kawada kicks, went to the top rope, and Kenta does his really awesome leaping to the top rope Falcon Arrow off the top for two. Which and then the kick out to that I think got the biggest pop of the night at this point. That's right as the ref called the 20-minute mark. And that's when we get our first This Is Awesome chant. They earned this one. wasn't just right at the beginning, like with Joe and Kobashi. Um, they have another chop battle, and this one is really epic. Like, just tons of reversals. And it ends with a really killer right hand by Kenta that almost like looks like it knocks Loki out, and he gets a two-count off of that. He goes for the Busaikuni combo again, but this time Loki catches him into, like, I guess I'd call it a modified key crusher because he doesn't get him all the way over his head. And he gets a two count off of that. It wasn't the most beautiful key crusher you've ever seen, but the counter and the near fall were really awesome. And I think for, I remember from where I'm sitting in the, in the crowd, it looked even better live. Like you didn't really see that it wasn't the full key crusher. It just looked like a perfect catch into a key crusher. And I thought that was just a oh, really awesome spot. Um, then Loki went for the title crush in the corner on Kenta and he called for the key crusher again, but Kenta reversed, tries to go for the go to sleep, um, but key fought out. Kenta hit a tiger suplex with a bridge for the for a two count. Then Kenta goes for a another Busaiku knee combo again, but this time Loki hits a drop kick into the corner. He slowly crawls across the ring, climbs up to the top, and hits the top rope double stomp. Kenta kicks out, which was a really good near fall, but not as good as the Falcon Arrow one. Um, and at this point, I kind of made note, like, this is a rare thing for ROH at this point. People in ROH in 2005 did not typically kick out of a lot of finishers. But in this match, Kenta is kicking out of all of Loki's finishers. Um, <laughs> Loki does not kick out of any of Kenta's finishers, for the record. So you could still see there is that pecking order. Um Loki climbs back up, goes for the twisting Phoenix, Phoenix splash, but Kenta moves, picks up Loki, hits the go to sleep, and then hits both ropes, hits the Busai Kuni, gets the win. Um, so after all those crazy near falls, Kenta just hits his two signature moves and wins the match. So I thought, like, as far as, like, 
near falls, big spots, well-executed reversals. It was on another level. Like, it wasn't what ROH was doing in 2005. It was much more like the Noah Jr. style, and it landed really well. I think for me personally, I prefer stuff that's a bit more emotional. So this wasn't my match of the year, but the crowd still immediately chants five-star match, and I know that some people really like still think it is. Like I hear people talk about this match like it's one of like in the Pantheon. Um, the biggest compliment I think I could pay this match is if it happened now, like exactly as it did, it would still be considered a really great match just because the athleticism was so good. Like, And usually matches based around athleticism don't stand the test of time the way more story-based matches do. I think that this would still hold up as a great match. Um, so I thought it was a great match. I just it, – it, it, didn't, it didn't hit the elite tier of ROH matches for me because it didn't have the emotion that even a Joe vs. Kobashi match type of thing did because even though that was also just like a one-off – it had this built-in emotion, and this was just sort of like an athletic match. I guess maybe if you followed Noah, maybe there was more of an emotional hook for Loki. I don't know, but I don't. And so, like, it wasn't. It just. It just felt like a big, really, really well executed athletic match. But you know, I do think this was the beginning of an era for Kenta, and I think that elevates it a bit because he ended up having a hell of a run in ROH. So this was a hell of a match. Yeah. Um. I thought this was a great match. Like I, I agree with you, like in the sense of, so, you know, if there were some people, you know, most people loved Kenta and Marafuji, but there were, you know, some people that the people that were more detractors would say that sometimes their matches, you know, they didn't quite have always have great storytelling or a lot of like the nuance, the little details. And you could say that for both Kenta and Marafuji's matches in on the show. And like you were saying, you know, this match doesn't maybe really have like that emotional hook, but I would say, I would agree. I would say this match is about as good as you can get without having an emotional hook. And that's why like, if I had to give it, I think Melter gives us four and a half stars and I would agree with that. I think it's, you know, I wouldn't put this on the pantheon of Joe versus Punk or even Joe versus Kobashi or, or, or even something like Carino Homicide, which I would give five stars to, which I, I, the, the classic one from, uh, Bitter Friends, Stiffer Enemies. But from just action, yeah, I mean, this is fantastic. Um, one thing I liked about this match is, you know, it's, it's a dream match in the sense of it's two guys from different worlds, although they were working together the same promotion that are famous for one thing. And they do that thing to each other a lot. Like occasionally you see a dream match where they don't do the thing you want to see them do. This match does not do that. Like you want, these two guys are known for stiff, hard kicks, and they give you like a proverbial buffet of stiff, hard kicks throughout this match, including like. I've learned from watching MMA over the years, you know, they always say you hear those kicks with the hard slap and those aren't actually the most hard hitting ones because that's hitting like fleshy meat, which is absorbing a lot of the impact. It's the really dull thuds that are the bad kicks because that's like bone. You're not hearing as much padding. And there are some dull thudding kicks in this match. There are kicks in the safe places, the quote unquote safe places. People talk about like the back. There are some kicks right to the goddamn head in this match. Like these guys really go into each other. If you, if you like kicks, this is the match for you. 
Um, Kenta's really good in this match. He does all his Kenta stuff. He flashes some charisma here. Personally, personality-wise, I always thought Kenta was this really interesting middle ground between he had like some of the stoicism of a Masawa, but he had some of the ass kicker surliness of a Kawada, and he had like a little bit of a cheekiness to him for good measure, like the spot you mentioned where he he like does the springboard and then just does a little like scraping kick instead like a little jerk like he, he had a little bit of a few different elements to him which made kenta like this really charismatic interesting person um he, he's leaned more into the cheekiness obviously as he's gotten older and maybe more beaten up yeah if anything that's become yeah something he's kind of needs to lean on now because maybe he can't do as most wrestlers he can't do every single thing he did 20 years ago but um I think a lot of the fun of this match, too, is just seeing people in the crowd lose their minds for seeing Kenta stuff for the first time. You know, some of them probably had seen a bunch of Kenta before. I think some of those fans probably had never seen Kenta, period, because there are reactions to signature Kenta stuff that he'll probably never get again. Like, when he does the leap to the top rope to do the Falcon Arrow, that gets, like, a huge oh-my-God reaction. When he does the go-to-sleep for the first time, when he does the first signature big strike exchange with Loki early, like, I feel like those are three moments in this match where it's not just gets big reactions, but big reactions in the way of, it feels like some of the fans in the crowd are like, holy shit, I didn't know someone could do that. You know, like, they're discovering this guy, which is always really cool. Like, that kind of, holy fuck, this is a whole new guy kind of reaction. But, all that said, I don't know if this is a controversial opinion or not, I think Low Key is the MVP of this match. All that stuff you talked about, like, gangsta Key, like, how this reminded you of the old Low Key, I completely agree. Like, I, I respect Low Key paring down what his offense and, and stuff. But, man, I missed this low-key. Because this low-key, he's not trying at all to be a heel. Like you mentioned, he's not even playing to the crowd. He's not trying to be anything. He's just trying to have the best match he can can have. And he's not holding back at all. Like, he does a dive to the floor. He does all his old low-key stuff, like the springboard kick and the key crusher and stuff. But he still does have a little bit of the modern low-key in that a lot of his offense is still setting up the big double stomps. He does all his double stomp variations here. He's working over the midsection like he often does in modern low key matches with like the leg scissor, the body scissors and stuff like that. But, um, I thought he just worked his ass. He was trying, it felt like he was trying to have like his WrestleMania match. here, like the match of his life, trying to impress everybody. And even like you said, like, Loki is a guy who's known for being very finicky about, you know, doing jobs and protecting himself. And he, as you mentioned, he lets Kenta kick out of every single thing. He kicks out of the key crusher. He kicks out of the tree of road double stomp. He kicks out of the regular top rope double stomp. Like he gave Kenta everything in this match, basically, in terms of kickouts. In terms of offense, yeah, he get, gets a lot. But he really, this is about as, as all out and generous as key is in a match layout, I think as you'll as you'll see. Um, uh, yeah, I, I think it's a great match. Maybe not quite like like I'm completely on the same page as you. It's maybe not quite as we're not quite as high on it as maybe as the people's the biggest fans of this match. But I think both of us agree, still a great match worth going out of your way to see. You know, whatever it lacks in intangibles or, or you know, it's just it's it's the kind of match you would want these two to have. It's like a brutal ass kicking athletic war. So, do, you, do you agree with me that if the match happened now and like the execution was the same, people would still be raving about it? Like. I think they would. I think the execution is just so spot on. 
Yeah, I, I feel like this is kind of the same as uh, the last match we really said that for, I think, was low-key versus AJ Styles versus Paul London. We said, like, you could put that match in PWG today and it would be move for move. It would be just as over. I think, yeah, you're right about this match, too. I think part of that's just their athletic stuff holds up. I think part of it's, too, so much of this match is about being really stiff. And I feel like matches, a lot of matches today aren't this stiff even, you know, which is a, probably yeah. a good thing. Right. I mean, it, it would be brutal by any standards, I would say. Yeah. And so two things I want to mention before you, you move on to other yeah. things. So one, isn't it crazy to think that Kenta today in 2022 is several years older than Kenta Kobashi was in 2005 and has been wrestling for longer than Kobashi had? That, you just blew my mind, Matt. That is. Yeah, because Kenta's 41. I think Kobashi was like 37 or 38 in 2005. Um, and, you know, I think Kenta has been wrestling, what, uh, I don't remember exactly what year, but definitely like Kobashi started in 88. So he had been wrestling for less than 20 years and Kenta's Kenta been wrestling. Yeah. Started in 2000, maybe. Yeah. So Kenta's I'm been wrestling sure. for over 20 years. So that it's just, it's just a crazy thing to think about. Like just time is crazy. Um, and the other thing that I just want to do is here's, uh, from an email that I sent to a friend two days after this show. Oh, I love this stuff. Yes. Yeah, so, I love when past Matt can chime in. Yeah, so it says, here's what I said to him. I said, as far as Kenta versus Loki, I'm not huge on star ratings these days. But if you twist my arm, I'd say at least four and a half, maybe four and three quarters. Probably the former, though. It's more about big spots and reversals than a cohesive story, like the Katamaru match, which I believe might have been the match Kenta had at the Tokyo Dome in 2005. Um there is a story there, as Loki kept shutting Kenta down and just brutalizing him, and Kenta could never get his combo off. Key reversed the combo numerous times, once catching Kenta by the legs in midair as he went for the knee, and in one fluid motion, propping him up onto his shoulders and hitting the key crusher. It was unbelievable. Another time, Kenta was running into the ropes to go for the knee, and Loki jumped onto the opposite rope and sprung off with his crazy kick that knocked out Dan Moff that one time. That match had one... Oh, that match had one of the best series of near falls I've ever seen, and it wasn't overdone like in some matches from Japan. I also really liked Marafuji versus Danielson. I think it'll end up being one of the more underrated ROH matches due to it coming right before Kenta and Loki. So that's pretty much all I had to say about that, but it's you know pretty similar to what I would say now, right? Yeah. So. I mean, your star ring is basically exactly what I have watching it today, which yeah. maybe again points to how well it holds up because – yeah, it seems like you felt about it then the way we feel about it now all these years later. So yeah, I'm I, I feel like there are a lot – oh, go on. No, I'm saying I'm just still going out of my mind about that that thing about the ages respectively of Kobashi and Kenta. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing just how broken down I – mean, I mean that style was rough, but like how yeah. broken down Kobashi was by yeah. – you know, when you think back of the stories we told on the Joe versus Kobashi about him needing like the the, the, the ring to be specially wrapped with blankets and like uh, special st- little uh, steps just to get in the ring like yeah. and to think that he's younger than Kenta is now. Younger than I am now too, by the way. Well – to be fair, I need steps to get anywhere. <laughs> I need steps to get into bed, Matt. I, I, I'm very much the Kenta Kobashi of knees right now. Did Come you on, do a Matt. lot of moonsaults when you were younger? No, constantly, Matt. I, I was a big moonsaulter. Um, 
And also, props to there was two really weird fans on, during this match. There was one fan that makes a really weird high pitched screech that actually gets the crowd laughing during this very serious match. And then later on, when like I think Loki's attacking Kent on the outsider side, you hear a fan in a very scary, aggressively loud, growly voice being like, "Kent is gonna fuck you up, Kent." I was like, "Whoa, yeah, <laughs> do it again, Loki." I, I remember that. <laughs> there were actually three weird fans there because I was also in attendance. <laughs> you were also making noises. Um, so going to the Observer now, we get, and we get a couple, just like the Marafuji match, we get the live at the time reports, and then we get Dave's personal thoughts when he watches it later. So live reports, Observer. Dave wrote, some called it Key's best match ever in Ring of Honor and one of the best matches in company history. The match didn't have the atmosphere of Kenta Kobashi versus Samoa Joe in New York, but that was also because you had an audience who had grown up with watching Kobashi tapes, some for more than a decade, whereas Kenta does so much in the ring, but he doesn't have the tenure. There were people who thought the match quality itself was better, but the heat and atmosphere wasn't at the same level. Uh... I wouldn't put this at Joe versus Kabashi, although I, mean, I guess we'll find out because we will be giving out an award for best match of this year, and both those matches happened in 2005. Um, then to Dave's actual, when he got to see the tape, Dave would write, Kenta versus Loki was just spectacular. It's a match you want to go out of your way to see because it's a legit match of the year candidate. Loki rose to the occasion and his ridiculously high double foot stomps off the top rope, including one after putting Kenta in a tree of woe, were the blowaway spots. Danielson is the best mat worker of the junior heavyweights, and AJ Styles is the most spectacular, but Kent is the best combination of the strengths of both, and his stiff, stiffness sucks you into a match because it gives you the spectacular but brutal vibe of a great lightweight boxing, kickboxing, or MMA match. By the way, this was clearly the era where any time Dave complimented something, it was always comparing it to MMA. So anyway... um, uh, this didn't have the aura of Kobashi versus Joe, where from the moment it started, people felt it was the ultimate epic confrontation. These guys obviously had to do a lot more, but when it was over, as much as everyone in that building respected Loki going in, that that match had to elevate him in their eyes quite a bit. I'd go four and a half stars near the level with the Samoa Joe versus AJ Styles match from TNA's Turning Point pay-per-view as the two best matches of the new awards year. So yeah, again, I think Dave's probably not really different than our opinion either for the most part here like yeah although it is crazy to think there you know and every time i I hear something like this it makes me think this there was once an era where dave thought that four and a half stars put something in match of the year territory (laughs) (laughs) because now like four matches a week get five stars yeah yeah it's there, there was a time when people would get mad when dave gave a match four and three quarters instead of five where now it's like Four and three quarters isn't even close to the upper limit. Yeah, well, the thing is, like, I would be one of I'm, I'm still one of those people because it's like, it's like, it's what he's not. It's you know what he doesn't give that to that. But anyway, why should yeah. think, why should anyone care at this point, right? Like, let's, <laughs> I, I feel I feel like Meltzer star ratings have lost a lot of their cachet. I think in large part because he broke the rating scale. Yeah. Um. Immediately after the match, the crowd chants match of the year, one more match, thank you Kenta, and please come back. Kenta gives a double thumbs up like he's the Fonz, which was cute. Uh, Julia Smokes, who was not at ringside for this match, again, another touch to kind of show that like they were not working this match like kind of in Ring of Honor canon, they were more just doing it straight up, let's have the best, most serious thing possible with no shenanigans or healing. Um, but Smokes comes out, and he tends to low-key, the fans chant for Loki, and he and Kenta eventually shake hands. 
We then cut to a Christopher Daniels backstage promo. He says it seems that like it, he can't go anywhere in the war, in the U.S. right now without seeing Samoa Joe in the locker room or standing across the ring from him. He says one of his biggest regrets is bringing him into Ring of Honor back in 2002. He says now Joe is trying to cripple him. He muscle busters him onto a chair in TNA. He muscle busters him onto a belt in Ring of Honor. Daniels says it's time they put an end to this, and they're going to do that in Ring of Honor. So... They were really playing up how this was kind of a feud across multiple promotions, but like, interesting here how they were, Daniels was framing it as like, you'll see the end of this feud, not in TNA, but you'll see it here in Ring of Honor, actually. I also thought it was interesting that they gave Joe that the champ is here music for that four way because he had the X Division title, which yeah. made me think now he should get that music in AEW since he has the ROH TV title. <laughs> Uh, if I was Joe, that theme was so great. I would have just always like had some indie title somewhere. Like, yes. <laughs> so like, the, like the, the, you never have, I mean, as great as LL Cool J's mama said, knock you out is, um, I mean, the champ is here. So is even better. I just always would have had like, you know, if I had to do the Larry Sweeney thing and make up about like, I, this is, you know, Samoa Joe's now the Texar can of champion. So you better play the champ is here. I would totally have gone there, but I still, um, I still love his first ROH music. The another body murdered song. I think that really saw, suited him really well. Yeah, I I am not a fan of any of the modern themes. When everyone tried to do from the NXT to even the the current AEW theme that people like, which are all variations on the same kind of like the big brassy horn kind of like I think those are all so goofy. I I don't like yeah. any of those. Yeah, to me those don't fit the intensity of Joe. Yeah, but that was Final Battle two thousand five. Um. I thought this was a really good show. Like it was a show we talked about the last show where, you know, it, it felt like kind of an event where this show felt like an event too. But I think you had like the really great match on top. And I also liked, you know, that I thought that Nigel match was great. You didn't like quite as much. The, the Mara Fuji Danielson match is close to being great. You know, you got a big story development in the tag title change. You got a big story development with the Drano angle. Like there is, you know, it's not a perfect show from top to bottom, but you kind of get the great matches and you get like the big developments all in one show, which is sometimes you kind of have to pick. You don't have to pick with this one. Yeah. There are shows from this year where it's like lots of things just hit, 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 hit. And I don't think this is one of those shows. Like I think there are a couple things on the undercard I didn't like. And, you know, I, yes, I didn't like the pure title match all that much, but I, you know, I feel like we balance out because I like the tag title match a lot more than you did. Yeah. And I feel like we're pretty similar on the last two matches. I thought this was a you know a very good show. I, I think it's um it sort of like implies or or um kind of previews some of the things they could do better in two thousand six that I think they probably will do better in two thousand six. Um, so I think this is like a good taste of what's to come. I feel like this is this is a transition show. So it's not like it's not the show of the year or anything, but I think it has a lot of really good wrestling on it. And I think the atmosphere is good, too. I think it's a good crowd as well, which I think helps a lot. Yeah, it's interesting that, you know, Final Battle 2004 kind of felt like the end of something with the Joe title reign. And 2003 kind of felt like the special one-off event. This really does feel like kind of the start of a lot of things with the the Noah relationship really growing from here. You know, the... The homicide feud is kicking off to a new level. The, you know, the tag title division is really going to be set back on course. Like a lot of things kind of, it kind of, yeah, this is kind of a show that kind of sets the table for 2006. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so 2005, now it is time for kind of our little extra mini thing where we go through a bunch of things. So did it, did it, that's the incredible new theme I came up with. <laughs> uh, uh, so I guess first we should start 2005 and I was thinking, 
every year we try and sum up the year and every year I've been able to kind of give each year an identity. And this year it was hard when I was thinking about this last week, like 2002, I always say we learned from rewatching. It was the year where they figure out how to be ring of honor. Like I always say, you watch that rewatch that year as them throwing a lot of stuff at the wall. And it's only by the end of that year and maybe early 2003, it kind of settles into the rhythm of what Ring of Art would always be, where you kind of watching that first year is like seeing Gabe figure out how to book a wrestling promotion, how he would like to book one. 2003, a bit more of a, I thought that was kind of the year where like the bottom raised a lot, where instead of having like, it felt like the worst matches on a lot of shows were still average, which was like a new development where the depth of the company got better. 2004, obviously, was the big Feinstein scandal. And I felt like, again, 2004 was Ring of Honor hitting a new level in the middle of the, starting in the middle of the year. And also, it was the year of like the really crazy good high end matches on top. And I felt like by the end of the year, it was also the year where like the Ring of Honor brand, like the title, meant as much as the uh, could mean as much as the matches at times like just how the draw of that last show was the the changing of a title more than just the quality of the match and so i try to think well what's 2005 and i can't really put one thing as the identity because i felt like so many different things happened in this year and maybe the identity of 2005 for me is it was the year where ring of honor did not become reliant on one where the brand and the quality of the company at whole and the depth, it became like no one thing could kill this company. I think in 2000 by 2005, like it felt like every other time something in other years happened to revive where it was the Feinstein scandal or a big name leaving. You'd be like, Oh shit. Like could, could ring of honor survive or is the company still going to be that good? And I feel like ring of honor this year, like Gibson leaves punk leaves, you know, Danielson leaves for months. Like, you know, things happen and they just, the, the, I think we agreed there was like a brief few show period after Punk left where the company kind of had to fall, was kind of in a bit of a rut before Danielson, um, title reign really got going. But for the most part, like this was the year where nothing really dominated. I felt like it was kind of the year where Ring of Honor was just, they always had another gun in their back pocket. I felt like. Yeah, no, that's exactly what I think the identity of ROH is in 05. It became a brand. Like it became like ROH is the draw. It's not like you're going to get a show, an ROH show from ROH, no matter who's there, no matter who's not there. You know, if you, if you have a show where Danielson can't work, you know, there's a lot of other stuff like that's there. It's, you know, it's, it's the place where you go to see, you know, amazing international talent, not just legends coming in to say hi. They're actually going to put on an incredible show. Like it's, and yeah, it's, it's the year where they show their adaptability. I, um, I agree that. You know, it didn't, it didn't have as much focus as other years had. And, you know, certainly there were some negatives, which we'll get to. But, um, yeah, I think that they're going to take that, the fact that they have this cachet just in the brand, and they're going to be able to use that to really do some interesting stuff in 2006. Um, uh, you know, I don't know if, like, you want to talk about this yet or if you want to save that for later as far as, like, I felt like every year up to this, ROH got better and better. You know, like 2004, yeah. I think was the best year. I think I still enjoyed watching 04 more than I watched 05. I just think there was like a thread to follow that I just really liked seeing the growth of 2004. And I think that the the major like on-screen stuff that happened in 04 just felt 
so special and like interesting to me that and the, the stuff that they built to I think just hit me harder. But that takes nothing away from 05. Like I think that it was a it was just such an interesting year. Like if you want to say it negatively, it was kind of all over the map. But if you want to say it positively, like there was just so much diversity of what they went for and so much diversity within the shows and like so many so much variety of storylines and feuds and matches that I think it was a really interesting year to watch. But all that said, before we ever started doing through the years, the stuff that I associated with 2005 ROH were the Summer of Punk and Kenta Kobashi's match. And those are still the two things I'm going to associate with 2005 ROH. I don't know about you. No, those are still the two temples to me. Um, I think the only thing that maybe made a bit more of an impact was the Brian Danielson run. I really, I liked it even more. I think the little, the, you know, the, you know, it's, it's a small chunk compared to what we're going to get, but I thought I really enjoyed, I, I forgot how quickly, how, how dramatically he changed, you know, it, where it really is one match. He basically just turns into the guy you remember him being. I thought it would be more gradual over like show after show after show, match after match, but really it's it's a very much a, a one match. He just clicks into it, and that was a big redis- a, a surprise on rewatch, but I agree a lot. I think 2004, maybe because that's when I started watching every show, has a fonder place in my heart for that, I mean, because I'm a sucker for the, the best matches in 2004. Like, the highs in 2005 are very high, and I would say the floor every year for Ring of Honor, the floor has gotten higher, and I think in 2005, like it's gotten a little, it still got a little bit higher this year over 2004, where like the overall average quality is um is, is still a little bit better than it's ever been before. It's not as dramatic, maybe it's like the change from like 03 to 02 or 04 to 03 or whatever, but still an improvement. I think like for example, there are no bad shows this year. Like there are shows that we've like less than others, but there's no show that I would say, oh, that was a complete waste of my time. There's very rarely a match in 2005 that I think we've given below, like, average either of us. Like, you know, like, the the media, like, the, the, the bar in Ring of Honor at this point is as high as it's ever been, but I think kind of going to what you were saying, one thing I would say, and it's come up on recent shows, is and I might, this might be in my awards, my negative awards, but there is a lot of, um, on rewatch, there's a lot of matches on the undercards in 2005 Ring of Honor that look great on paper, and they just turn out to be average or kind of good. And I think a lot of it was maybe they were holding back on the undercards a lot and trying not to overshadow things or or what. And that's what I don't remember. Because when I remember Ring of Honor from this era, I remember a ton of people that were kind of poo-pooing Ring of Honor saying that they do too much. It's balls to wall from the opening match to the last match. They burned the crowd out. And maybe that's more of a 2006-2007 thing, and we'll discover that on rewatch. But like in 2005, compared to modern wrestling, there's a lot of holding back on the undercards. Yeah, and I guess, like you said, we can talk about that as we get into um, our awards. Yeah, so that's that. So next I will do very quickly something which probably I only do for me, but I do this every year. It's a very geeky, time-consuming thing where I sum up the attendance in Ring of Honor. I have done this every year where I go back and I look through every show notes I did. Um, and so, as always, with the attendance, I only use the observer attendance because I want to be consistent with one source and not cherry pick. And I realize, as I always mention, 
the observer tense probably is not accurate on many shows, but at least it is consistent within itself. So a quick recap, because it was a little bit interesting this year. 2002, Ring of Honor only ran 12 shows. They averaged 437 fans. In 2003, Ring of Honor ran 20 shows. They averaged 395 fans. 2004, they ran 23 shows. They averaged 650 fans. So this year, they averaged the most shows they ever had done, 34 shows. They averaged the exact same number of fans as they did last year, 650. So, you know, in a way, I guess you could say a success because they ran way more and still didn't lose fans. But this was the first year they did not have, like, year-over-year growth in, in terms of the average fans. Um their biggest attended show was third anniversary celebration part one drew 1200, which again, not as big as their biggest attended shows in other recent years. And their lowest attended shows were enter the dragon and Buffalo stampede, which were a double shot and each only drew through three fifty. So that was basically the year in ring of honor. So the year of expansion, we're going to come up on one more year of expansion We're we're going to peak in number of shows with 2006, but we'll see how the attendance does. But you know, ring of honor, we're doing pretty well at this point for Ring of Honor standards. And that brings us to the Ring of Honor Awards, to our honors, where we give out awards every year. We give out the same handful of awards. It's a proud tradition. It's, it's, it's the biggest honor you can get, except if you get this award. Because our first award, as always, is Worst Thing of the Year. Worst Thing of the Year can be anything. It can be a match. It can be an angle. It can be a general trend. It can be anything you want. Uh, in 2002, Matt... We both had the same worst thing of the year. We said it was the rampant homophobia of the opening segment of Arrow Honor Begins. In 2003, I said it was the man-on-woman violence streak, and you also said it was the misogyny and violence against women. 2004, we both agreed it was the Rob Feinstein sandal. So basically, Matt, every year we have agreed so far on this on who wins this award. It'll be interesting to see this year because I don't think it's quite as obvious. So uh, I guess I'll start number three for me is the overuse of dramatic gimmick angles. In other words, Jimmy Rave using a cheese grater to grind off CM Punk's stomach tattoo, him suffocating AJ Styles with a plastic bag, Homicide trying to cut Colt Cabana's tongue out with scissors, the Drano angle, even if you wanted to throw in uh, Jay Chung getting pedigreed on the cement, which is supposed to take her out of wrestling forever. Um, I said on a recent episode, I don't mind these angles. I, they can be really memorable. I like an occasional an overtop angle, but I feel like these are the kind of things you do once every two or three years. And Ring of Honor basically went pretty damn heavy on them in this year. And I think especially when you do more than one every two or three years and when guys come back from them quickly, it becomes kind of cartoonish and it hurts them overall. And some of these didn't even land at the time. Like, um, the cheese fair one people remember, but I don't think it even landed great at the time. You know, I don't think even people remember like the plastic bag or the cutting Colt's tongue. The one we just covered, the Drano one's probably in some ways the most successful one of these, but I think they just went to that well a little too often. Yeah. I mean, I, uh, I definitely agree that, that it was just, it was just too much, especially since like people watch ROH specifically to not see that stuff. You know what I mean? Like, it's just like, you want it, it's it's still even though it's you know they still don't they don't emphasize the code of honor at all anymore or they, they you know I don't even remember when they stopped reading off like what the code of honor was but they certainly were not doing it for most of 2005 um, but you still like the, the gist of ROH in 05 was still like oh this is the wrestling company where we go to watch yeah. wrestling and they just really went to town on these like sometimes you know these like over the top angles and even sometimes like cheap finishes and that's not something that I don't think too many people watching ROH wanted to see. 
So what was your third worst thing of 2005? Uh, my third worst thing was crowd toxicity, um, mostly in the form of homophobia, um, a little bit also misogyny, like when they would chant that Lacey was a crack whore, it, which makes just – I mean even, even as horrible as it is at anybody, it makes so little sense – when targeted at Lacey. Um, but a lot of like, you know, the homophobia, like Jimmy likes balls, you know, like you'd even get some F slur chants, you know, which were yeah. sometimes, sometimes egged on by wrestlers, which is bad. You also, I remember you reading a story about from Punk, the final chapter about somebody gloating that they and the crowd shut down some women that were excited for Chad Collier. Yeah. You know, stuff like that. So just like the reason this is lower than it, you know, than it could be is because it's not necessarily all the promotion's fault, you know, and maybe there wasn't much they could do about it. But that vibe in the crowd at ROH and probably all wrestling crowds in this era is one of the worst things of the year for me. So I listed it. And another good—that's uh, a good one. I didn't have that on my list. Another one I—I I guess we could throw this in with crowd toxicity. Is I feel like this was the year we had the most stories of like wrestlers getting into altercations with fans. Like Punk after the one of the rave matches, like went to the crowd after a fan. I think we there was at least like two Samoa Joe altercations, like yeah. where he was brought in to get fans. Like I, I feel like the, I think I think I'm probably missing one or two others. It felt like there was a good at least hefty handful of like wrestlers getting so enraged with fans at ring of honor shows that they felt like they had to go after them, which is not good. But, um, number two for me was the weakness of the tag division. Uh, this was basically a lost year for the tag division. When you think about, uh, you know, Moth and Whitmer started the year and you, you could say, okay, some of the things weren't their fault because Moth and Whitmer, you know, like, you know, Moff had to leave because of something we covered on other episodes. But even Moff and Wimmer, I don't think they were a good standard mid-card team. I don't think they were the kind of team that was going to be able to carry an entire division, especially looking at who else was in the division. Um, and then we get like a thrown together odd couple tag team with Whitmer and Jacobs, which was a fine team, but not again, can they carry a whole division? Not really. And then we get a weird like two week carnage crew reign just because Dave felt like the division had grown so stagnant. Then we go back to Whitmer and Jacobs. Then we go to a completely thrown together team with zero chemistry and not just a thrown together team. At least you could say Whitmer and Jacobs were established Ring of Honor regulars that had some fan base. You know, you throw Sal Renaro, who had only had like a couple matches in Ring of Honor at this point and uh, some pre-show stuff. And Tony Mamaluke hadn't been the company for years and wasn't high up or necessarily beloved there to begin with. They had zero chemistry Obviously, they miss a show or two as a tag team because Mamluk gets a concussion. Like, the whole year, it was just – it's funny. Like, I think right when Ring of Honor started, I read something from, like, one of the things saying, like, Gabe wants to make the tag division, like, a really main event level important thing. And I feel like they're still, this year, not accomplishing that. And, in fact, in many ways, in this year, it was their worst year for the division. Yeah, I would say probably not their worst year because there was still 2002. Um, but yeah, no, it was definitely, it was, it was, it was backsliding for sure. Especially just like once the Briscoes left and the, you know, the, the era, I guess, of the Havana Pitbulls. And then it was just kind of downhill from there. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I think the reason I didn't have this on my list is just because my expectations have just been so low for the ROH tag division that it was just like, I was just kind of blase about it. But hopefully our memories are correct and it will get significantly better in 2006. We'll see. Yeah, they, they certainly, I think, will, they get more main event spots, you know, they get more high profile matches in that division with, around the tag titles. It's going to be less of an afterthought, 
thought, I think. So what was your second worst thing of 2005? Uh, continued production woes. Um, you know, I think we say something about this every year, but like after all this time, we're still getting promos in pitch black on multiple shows. We're still getting weird sound issues in video packages and on commentary. We're still getting promos that they literally are inaudible. And sometimes where you literally have to have the announcers talk over them in order to understand what's going on. You still have issues with white balance. It's just like, all right, get it together. It's been almost four years at this point. Like (laughs) this is final battle and you're still having these issues. So it's not like this was like an early year problem, right? Some of those promos in the pitch black were happening on shows with Kenta Kobashi on them. You know, like it's just like, you know, I mean, it's indie wrestling. So, you know, I still... I'm not holding it against them so much that I don't like the promotion, but like if we're listing worse things, it deserves to be listed. Honestly, it should probably should have been my top three, but I've just grown numb to it. I'm reading ahead on like doing research and all the wrestling different newsletters and stuff as uh, I try to do every few months to kind of get ahead. And uh, one of the things I saw like a few months into, I guess, 2006 is like Carrie Silken has upgraded the camera, the lighting and the the uh, audio system. So it'll be interesting to see if we if notice. <laughs> yeah, if, if there actually is like a, a better uh, an upgrade because they have upgraded some things over time. It will be interesting if there ever comes a day where we just wake up one day and go, oh, it's been a lot of shows since we've seen like a really badly shot thing. But. I think we'll still see some more in our future. I mean, it is still indie wrestling, so yeah, we'll see. And my worst thing of the year, we kind of touched on it when recapping the whole year, the great-looking undercard matches on paper underlivering in reality. I feel like if you are a person that wants to discover Ring of Honor, maybe through podcasts like ours or whatever, or because you're seeing it mentioned in AEW now a lot and all that stuff, all the stuff, all this, this era being referenced, I feel like you would look at a lot of these shows on paper and recognize the names and go, holy shit, that's going to be great. That's going to be, that's going to be great. And if it's a main event, it usually will be great. But if it's not, it often isn't. It's often maybe like three and a half stars or, 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 or less than that. And yeah, we, we, I already talked about it, but I thought that was my, sadly, my biggest surprise on rewatch was, it was the year in some, it was the year I had the highest expectations for. And because of that, it's the year that aged the worst for me so far, even though still the standard level of quality is the highest it's been. And the great stuff is still fantastic. In some ways it was slightly disappointing. Because you just, you saw guys holding back so often, right? Like, yeah, is, is that, is that that's sort of like the, the crux of it? Is that, yeah, just examples like even like, oh, like they throw like, AJ Styles versus Austin Aries in like a first time in Ring of Honor when they've been there for years. And it's like a decent little like three and a half star match. You know, it's like on paper, you would look at that and go, holy shit, that's going to be fantastic. And that's just on the undercard. But then it just, they, they kind of work to the spot on the card, you know? Yeah, this is the year of like the work for the whole show philosophy where you're not trying to hurt the matches that come after you instead of just trying to, everybody trying to steal the show. And yeah, I think there are a lot. I think by the end of the year, you're starting to see them kind of snap out of that a little bit. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think in the middle of the year, that was my big complaint, which is just like, you know, you get all these matches with Samoa Joe and Nigel McGuinness, and they're clearly not trying to have their best match in almost any of them. Um, it's interesting because, like, what if they did? <laughs> what if they all tried to have their best match? Would that have made the shows worse? I guess there's a theory that they would have. I don't know. Um, 
Well, it'll be interesting to see, you know, if 2006 changes that. That was not on my list, but it was definitely a complaint that I had. What was your worst thing of 2005? To me, it was far and away the Jade Chung angle. Um, I just, like, I get what they were going for. I get that the the embassy were heels and that Chung was going to have her comeuppance in the end, or that I guess that she was going to get her comeuppance in the end, I should say. Give comeuppance. Get her revenge. Yeah, get her revenge. Give her comeuppance. The yeah. embassy was going to get their comeuppance. Yeah, I'm trying to make sure like who who's the who's the the subject and who's the ob- coming up. Who's the subject and the object of that verb? But um, <laughs> um, but the um, like I just don't think that wrestling handles those kinds of things well. Like so, portraying the abuse of Nana was really jarring. Seeing her get tugged around. On by a leash was really upsetting. Um, seeing some of like the the weird like vaguely racist references to like I don't know like quote like I don't know they, I'm not even going to repeat them. But there's there's a racial tinged element to some of the comments yeah. being made. Um, and you know I don't think there was any comeuppance that could have happened that would have made that worth it. But especially what they ended up doing, like she eventually gave uh, Jimmy Raven nutshot. And then at the end, they she distracted the embassy so Jack Evans could moonsault on them. Like, okay, was that worth months and months of like horrible abuse and like misogyny and racism? I I don't think so. And you know, like there was even moments where like AJ Styles would like yell at her in her face, like you know, just like it's just like all sorts of stuff that was just so made me so queasy. It just wasn't worth it. I think that that's my big my big takeaway. It just wasn't worth it. Um, so that's my worst thing of the year. I wish they hadn't done it. Um, nothing against Jade Chung herself. She did a, an admirable job with what she had to work with. Um, but the angle just, I just don't think that wrestling is suited for such things. Yeah. And this is one of those things. That's a great number one. Um, maybe I'm just heartless that I'm now just glossing over these like kind of morally reprehensible things, but you still have a soul, Matt. But I, I think one thing that really makes yours a great number one too is, you know, there are some angles you can go, well, creatively this doesn't work or other ones you could say, well, this is just objectionable. I think with this one, you don't have to worry about because you focused on the objectionable stuff, but and all that is very true. But then you could throw in, it is kind of a retread of a, of the of the Lucifer, you know, Second City Saints angle in a lot of ways, and a lot of the same beats. And on top of that, like um, like you mentioned, it do- doesn't necessarily have the most satisfying ending. And and even just like the Roderick Strong romance was so like slapped together quickly, and he and Roderick Strong did such a bad job selling it, and then seemed to be so blasé when she got seriously hurt, supposedly, like. You know, I, I agree. I think Jade, it's a it's a tragedy because Jade actually showed some real charisma at different moments during this feud. But like it kind of it put Roderick Strong in a position to have to act. And he is clearly not that's not his strong suit. No pun intended. So that's our worst of the year. Finally, we get to the three fun awards. So I always like to start with a negative one, get it out of the way. First off, we got show of the year in 2002. I had Honor Invades Boston. Matt, you had All-Star Extravaganza. 2003, I had the first year anniversary show. You had Death Before Dishonor. In 2004, I had Midnight Express Reunion. Uh, you had All-Star Extravaganza too. So, Matt, with the last award, worst thing we had always agreed on until this year, 
this award we have never agreed before. We might agree this year. Let's see. Um, I, I think you'll be angry if I don't agree with you on this one. But <laughs> Matt, what was your third favorite show this year in Ring of Honor? My number three um, best show of the year was Punk, the final chapter uh, from August of 2005. Um, I just thought this was a very special show. It wasn't the best wrestling show of the year, for sure. The main event was not a great wrestling match. Although it did have, as a show, an incredible um, brawling match with Loki and Homicide against Jay Lethal and Samoa Joe. It had a match that I liked a lot more than you, which was, in my opinion, the best Matt Hardy singles match I've ever seen where Roderick Strong beat Matt Hardy. Um, it had a really fun four-way opener. It had a really memorable and weird angle where Chad Collier um, bloodies Ace Steel. But, of course, the thing that everyone remembers it for is for one of the most emotional moments in ROH history, which was CM Punk's dramatic farewell, the entrance, the post-match. Uh, it was just a really special night. And so it it wasn't really hard for me to decide that's going to go in my top three. Uh, that's a really good pick. Uh, I did not have that in my top three, but I could see just on the punk thing alone, it may being worthy of it. And you pointed out there's good stuff also on the undercard. Uh, my top two were easy. My top three, it was hard because there was a lot of shows this year. I felt like where there was good stuff, but it wasn't quite, there was always some nit I could pick, even though I think every show this year was enjoyable, but find ones that really stood apart. So this one was really tough for me. I could go a lot of different ways. My number three was ironically for the third spot, the third anniversary celebration, part three, finished number three for me. Um, I just thought the Aries Joe rematch, you know, the second Aries Joe match and Danielson, the homicide brawl match they has part of their best of five were both very good. I thought the star of the Ray punk feud was great. Uh, you get a second Cornet Heenan managers match. You know, it's not remembered as much as the first one, but that was fun in its own way. And then Alex Shelley really stretched the fuck out of Jack Evans on the undercard. I thought that was fun. So to me, this was a show where it's not like, a legendary show with one great segment or have a lot of real emotional significance for me, but there's just a lot of things I enjoyed on that show. That was a fun show. I think my favorite show of that third anniversary celebration was actually part two, the Dayton one, but they were all good. Yeah. Uh, what's your number two? I'm going to be interested to see if you're number two, because I'm pretty strong on my number two. My number two is nowhere to run from May of 2005, um, which ended in a really epic and awesome cage match between CM Punk and Jimmy Rave, but it also, to me, had what, in my opinion, <laughs> I know not Trevor's opinion, but in, what, in my opinion, was the best match of the Nigel McGuinness Colt Cabana series, um, <laughs> just with really great storytelling, a super fun tag team a match between, um, not title match, just a tag team match between Generation Next and Delirious and Alex Shelley, um, a match that I really liked a lot between Homicide and Doug Williams, good title match between Danielson and Aries. I just really liked the vibe of this show. I thought it was a probably, possibly at least, the best top-to-bottom series of matches that ROH had this year. So that's, uh, that's my number two. Matt, you did not disappoint because my number two is nowhere to run. I completely agree. Uh, I thought this was one of the only shows this year that had three outright great as in four-star higher matches, like really great matches with Punk Rave I loved. 
Uh, Danielson Aries, I think, was probably their their worst of their matches so far in Ring of Honor, but still, their floor is still like scraping four stars to me. Uh, and Strong Evans versus Shelly and Delirious, we both agreed that is an outright, that's a hidden gem. That's that's a great tag team match. And then, like you mentioned, the rest of the show, like even though I wasn't as high on that Nigel and Colt match, still good. I felt like Homicide Doug Williams was a little disappointed, but was still good. I, I think from just like the amount of great stuff you get on that show, it's it's probably the one of the highest you get in all of the year. And on top of that, you get, you know, the Punka Rave match on top. That, that's a great feud ender. And so that's a great extra thing for a show to have to say, not just to have great matches, but it's really like the end of something in a really satisfying way. So Matt, I think I know what our favorite uh, show of the year is. I, I'll be shocked if we are not in consensus. So what do you think is the through the years consensus pick for the first time show of the year 2005 i mean i knew manhattan mayhem was gonna win this before we even started ever doing this podcast i still feel like it will be very hard for any show that we watch after this to top manhattan mayhem in my heart um it is not a show that's filled with five-star matches although i do think that my match ratings for that show are higher than yours. I think there are some four star yeah. matches on that show. Um, but this, the, just the, the pace of it, the crowd of all crowds, like they are just so great for everything on this show. Their stamina is excellent. They make everything seem like a big hot angle and big hot match and everybody seem like really big stars. They make Samoa Joe and CM Punk seem like the biggest baby faces on earth, um, for both of their matches. They elevate everything that happens. The pacing, the, the through line from the beginning to the end and the storytelling. It just, it's such a fast moving show where everything feels super relevant and entertaining. It does not at all fall victim to what you were talking about where you get some matches where it feels like people are holding back. It feels like everybody is trying to have some sort of special performance and they do. It has, you have really great athletic matches, like the opener with Special K and um, and the Jay Lethal versus Samoa Joe match, and the tag title match, which is one of maybe my favorite tag match of the year in ROH, which is um, Whitmer and Jacobs against Evans and Strong. It also has really, really excellent storyline-based matches, like I loved the storytelling of CM Punk against Jimmy Rave in the dog collar, where CM Punk just... One of his classic bloody performances, um, I mean, uh, uh, for Punk. Um, you get a, a good title match with Shelley and Aries. Not perfect, but very good. And then just a really exciting surprise angle-based final match with uh, Key and Homicide against Lethal and Joe. Just such a fun, fast-paced three hours. I just There are very few wrestling shows I've ever found more entertaining from beginning to end. Yeah, um, even though I don't, I, I don't rate the the matches like you said quite as high as you. I am completely agree it's the show of the year. It, it, you know, I think it's a show where it is top to bottom, like everything is good to right under great, and and more than that, the atmosphere is fantastic. It really does feel like Ring of Honor, like that that vibe you sometimes get when a wrestling promotion goes to a big new market for the first time, like they're kind of conquering something. And granted, they had been to New York State before and even New York City, but just something about going to Manhattan and being in that building. And having mayhem. There was, yeah, <laughs> it, it, there was an electricity to it. And I think we talked about 
the sh- that show we kind of figured out by the end of the show, and I liked the way we figured it out, was the idea that, you know, Gabe Sapolsky obviously was mentored by uh, Paul Heyman. He was the Jay Lethal to Heyman's Samoa Joe. Uh, and, and, you know, there are different touches of Paul Heyman and ECW in Gabe's booking, but for the most part, you know, Ring of Honor is not booked like ECW. And I think we agreed, like, Manhattan Mayhem, in a good way, is Gabe trying to book an ECW show in a way he rarely has ever done. Like, it has that kind of energy, that, that kind of show line, storyline, that impromptu main event, you know, a lot of story-based things. And it, it really was Gabe being Paul Heyman for one night, and, and it worked out really well. It could have gone in a really bad way, but it worked out in a really great way, actually. ECW with better wrestling. Exactly. So um, that brings us to, speaking of better wrestling, match of the year. In 2002, I had American Dragon, Brian Danielson versus Low Key versus Christopher Daniels. You had American Dragon, Brian Danielson versus Low Key. Uh, 2003, we agreed Steve Crino versus Homicide from Bitter Friends, Stiffer Enemies was our only so far consensus match of the year. 2004, my match of the year. 2004 was a weird year for us for match of the year where, um, our top four matches, we had four of the same five matches, but we had them in different orders. But my favorite match of the year was Samoa Joe versus CM Punk. Two, I mean, three from All-Star Extravaganza 2. Your favorite was Joe versus Punk 2 from Joe versus Punk 2. And each of our favorites was the other person's second favorite. 2005 now, we I thought this was... This was hard for me. Uh, there was a lot of matches this year. I have a ton of honorable mentions I'll get to afterwards, but there was a lot of matches that, like, 2004 was a lot easy. It was pretty easy for me to figure out. 2005, uh, my number five would be Brian Danielson versus James Gibson from Glory by Honor 4, the match where Brian Danielson wins the world title. Uh, great technical wrestling match. I feel like I like it slightly less than other people. But I still love it. it. It was, you know, a great, even though Gibson stuck around for a couple more shows, a great kind of swang song for Gibson. I'm glad they really got the chance to have one match like this. Um, it, just a great technical wrestling match. And, and it is funny where um, I do prefer the Danielson we get afterwards. That starts with the Roderick Strong feud. But it is interesting to see kind of like Danielson's first approach to being a champion, which was more of the Bob Backlund-esque, very straight-ahead, babyface, kind of drier technical wrestler. And I think he made the right choice deviating from that. I think he needed to. But on this show, it worked. Yeah, I would agree. Like, it worked. Like, it's it's good that we had this version of Danielson, like, briefly. Like, just to see what it was like. And, like, I remember watching the... um I mean, I mean, I remember when we reviewed this, I said, like, this is not a match you would see for any sort of major promotion now. Like, just this kind of, like, old school, on the mat, classic, I guess what they call catches, catch can, yeah. wrestling style. And they, they just executed it so brilliantly. These were two, like, just amazing, like, masters of execution. And they, um, and yeah, so like this was just like a beautiful thing to watch, I thought, even if it didn't have like the drama that some top tier matches do. And also, I forgot to mention, this is the one award we do where starting the second year, I set this to five matches just because I felt like there would be some years where if we only did three matches, we would have a lot of times very exactly the same. So in the hopes to gain a little variation, who knows if we will. And just because Ring of Honor, you know, this is a, a match based 
you know, product. It's very heavy on match quality. It's good to talk about the matches, and there are a lot of great matches each year. Uh, Matt, you're number five. My number five was CM Punk versus Jimmy Rave in the cage from Nowhere to Run. Um, just such like an epic old school storytelling match. Um, you know, I just love the dramatic beats. I love the atmosphere because this was CM Punk. I mentioned this when we reviewed it, just at the peak of his babyface powers in ROH. Obviously, he would have some more babyface power in other promotions later, but he was just treated like Hulk Hogan, you know, in, in his prime by this crowd, but with just so much more intensity and like passion. And Jimmy Rave was just such like a great undercard heel that was elevated to main eventer just because the angle was so good. You know, from CM Punk's entrance to the final moment where he hugs Colt Cabana in the cage and celebrates bloodily at the top of the cage is bloodily a word. Um, but like, it's just, it just feels so epic and special. So that's my number five. I may have reason to talk about that match a little bit later. So I will go to my number four, which is a match we just watched, which is low key versus Kenta from final battle 2005. This is about as high as I would put this match. And, you know, part of me was wondering, am I overrating this because of the, uh, having just seen it recently bias. <laughs> yeah. But then again, I bet you a lot of people, you know, who would make, if they made 2005 ring of honor list would put this in their top three, maybe pretty high up. And I'm putting it in four. Basically, you just heard my thoughts on this match. I think the, the thing I will say why, why I am happy with having this on my list is there's no other match on my list quite like this and not really any other match in ring of honor for this year. Quite like this. I think the closest comparison, and it's even not quite a great comparison would be, Joe versus Key from 2002, just the idea of two guys known for being badasses beating the living shit out of each other. But this match had a more athletic kind of balls to the wall, near falls thing, which you talked about aspect that that one didn't. So to me, that's the fourth best match of this year. What about you for uh, number three? We're getting into the top three now. Well, I uh, oh, first off, yeah, yeah, I didn't, I didn't say my number four. Oh, oops, yeah. My, my number- oh, oh I, I completely – for some reason, I thought Rave Punk was number four for you. I completely – man, I'm, I am losing it. Every time we go along, I am losing it. <laughs> it's all right. We're, we've all lost it a long time ago. I um, My number four, um, which I already just spoke about, was Danielson versus James Gibson from Glory by Honor. Um, so I guess, you know, I already basically just spoke about it. But yeah, really great match. Um, that's my number four. So my number three, then, is a match you just spoke about. That is CM Punk versus Jimmy Rave from Nowhere to Run. Uh, yeah, I agree with what you said. I think this is this may be CM Punk's best pure babyface performance. Like, he's wrestled, he's wrestling as a babyface right now. He's wrestled as a babyface, you know, during parts of his career. But a lot of times when he's wrestling as a babyface, there's still, like, a bit of a jerk to him. He's, like, the jerk you love. I feel like this CM Punk on this night the reaction he's getting from that hometown crowd and the way he's wrestling, this really is, he's like living out his dreams of being like the 80s WWF, like beloved baby face ending a feud. Like he is just overcoming all the odds. And this is a great cage match in like so many modern cage matches. It's like, how many cool spots can we do off the cage? And there is a great off the top of the cage spot in this match or how violent can we get? And this match is violent, but this is more of an old school cage match. And that so much about is just about like, the heel is fine. That's been running from the face all this time and, and like using tricks has finally trapped. And the face is going to like, like punk is one of the top guys at just ha- taking glee 
in getting to kick someone's ass that he hasn't been able to kick their ass. And it, it's a really satisfying end to to a feud in, in a way that you don't see often in modern wrestling where a guy gets all their just desserts and it has a great finish and just, yeah, everything you want from an old school cage match is here. And I, I really loved it. Uh, Matt, what is your number three? My number three, I know, is a match that you didn't like that much, but I thought it was just such fantastic storytelling. And it is from Redemption in uh, in August. It is James Gibson versus CM Punk versus Christopher Daniels versus Samoa Joe. I just thought this is where James Gibson wins the ROH title in a super emotional moment and match. I just thought this was the peak of the summer of Punk. Like, CM Punk just was in his glory here, you know, as a, as a, as a heel, but also as, you know, uh, you know, still like a, a threat as a wrestler. Uh, you know, they, they did some great teases with him and Joe. Daniels was super over. And then the final stretch with James Gibson was so emotional. And I just thought this is one of the best storytelling matches ROH did this year. And they had a really long 40, 50 something minute match. And it kept my attention the whole time. It kept the crowd's attention the whole time in a, what was purportedly a super hot building. I just think this was a, one of the best moments of the year and a really great match with four great wrestlers. Yeah, I obviously you can go back and listen to the episode. I, I, you know, I enjoyed the match. I do not place it that high. It's not in my top five. Um, you can go back and listen to my thoughts, but like, I certainly get what you're saying. It does have a lot of great story moments to it. I just don't see it quite the same way as I see like the four corner match at uh, crowning a champion, which I thought for me hit a bitter blend, better blend of being a great match and telling a great story. This does have the great story beats and I love the ending too, but you know, I enjoyed the match. I just don't see it as match of the year level. Uh, my second match might be slightly controversial. My number two match for 2005 Ring of Honor is is Brian Danielson versus Roderick Strong, but it's from This Means War. It's not. It's the first. It's not the second they had. And I, I talked about this in the reviews of those shows, but I, I really deliberate here because my mind says the second match is better. Technically, it's a better match. It's more interesting. It builds on the first match a little bit. It's more dramatic, but this is much the way of the 2002 um, awards for match of the year where I put the three way from Air of Honor begins ahead of um, Danielson low key, just because I had a more of an emotional attachment to the, the former than the latter, even though I think the latter is technically a better match. And these are personal lists. So I kind of kept going back to, if I don't, the list should be what were the five matches I had the most fun rewatching this year, and this was the second most fun I had rewatching this year. Um, I love this match. I love you. You see, you see a guy. You, you see Brian Danielson, one of my favorite wrestlers of all time, if not my favorite. Discover the last thing he needs, the, like the last piece of his puzzle, and you see him s- discover it in a match. Like if you watch Danielson before this match and after this match, he, he's a different guy. And this match, he comes up with it all during the match. And I think that is such a cool thing to see. And the match is great too, but I just, I will, I, I, I just, and you know, if you think I'm like over, if anyone who's listening thinks I'm like putting too much of my own 
assumptions into that. No, we've read from Danielson's book. He talks about how this match was a turning point in his career, and it just has a special personal attachment. Like, I have a personal connection to this match because of that. Matt, yeah. what's your second favorite? Oh, go, go on with this first. No, I was going to say, say, I get it. I mean, it is everything you said, but my second favorite is, as you might expect, the yeah. other Danielson versus Roderick Strong match the, from the week later from Vendetta. I just think he took everything that he learned, he being Danielson, in that match from This Means War and almost perfected it in a week uh, against Roderick Strong uh, in a slightly longer match, right? That match was almost 40. This match was almost 50. He just took everything. He did more of it. He did it better. He was fully formed. Like, he, he realized it at This Means War. He already had every piece of the package a week later and became this ultimate performer, um, telling this incredible story. I think Roderick stepped it up a little bit in the second match, too. He was harder hitting. He, he kept, he kept up with Danielson more. The, 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 the false finishes were more dramatic. I liked the finish a lot more, which was a big part of it for me. Um, so I, you know, there was a part of me that actually wanted to rate this match as the best match of 2005, but for reasons we'll discuss, I couldn't do it. Yeah, because uh, I think we'll have another consensus pick. Because I have a feeling you uh, right after this match, you were saying, "I'm wondering if, we'll, if you will put this." You were only reacting like this was going to be your match of the year, and I feel like rewatching Strong Danielson kind of gave you some pause, obviously. But I feel like you, your big question only was, "Will Trevor agree?" Trevor agrees. Our match of the year for 2005, even though again we never tell each other what we're voting for. Samoa Joe versus Kento Kobashi from Joe versus Kobashi. Uh, yes, is it the boring pick? Yes, but you know what? The boring pick is often the right pick. I, I, I like that on this podcast. We're not afraid to just, you know, we're not to say the thing that even if it is boring, we probably make it interesting with how we talk. But like sometimes we're, we're not going to be contrarian for contrarian's sake. This is the platonic ideal to me of a dream match. This is the rare dream match that not just lives up to the hype but exceeds it. You know. In a way, I kind of love that they never had a rematch, even though in a way it's kind of tragic because I love that it kind of exists as this one special night, even though, yes, they did have a tag match the next night that was also great. Like, there's just something magic. It's almost like, you know, those movies like Before Sunrise, Before Sunset, those Richard Linklater movies about two people just having one great night together where they're like true love, but then they never see each other until there's a sequel. But like, to me... This is the before sunrise or before sunset of pro wrestling. It's this these two guys that fit great together. It's, before it's sunrise, shame. before sunset, and before midnight. By the way, all excellent movies, and I think they get progressively better. Yeah, so maybe that's an argument that these guys should have had more matches. But I do love, you know, even though Joe eventually did go to no, I I love that these guys never really did much together, and there's just something magic about this match, the atmosphere, the work. I mean, listen to our review. It is just it it, it completely holds up. It, it it is this is one of the, probably the Ring of Honor match I've watched more than any other, and even after all these years, still just as good. Yeah, I mean, like I said, I there was a part of me that wanted to pick Strong versus Danielson, but like, how can you not pick like the most legendary match of the decade? You know, as the match of the year. Like this was just. It was just such a special thing. Like, when something is so special that, like, there's nothing 
like it before or since, and possibly like so special that there couldn't ever be anything that special, it's the match of the year. I mean, between like the hard hittingness, the crowd, the emotion, the performance by Joe, you know, the opening up of possibilities I think that this match represented of got of legends from Japan coming over and being their best selves. You know what I mean? Like it's just mm-hmm. It's something like just you just can't replicate it. You can't describe it, and the fact that it happened at all feels like a miracle. And yeah, it's just it's just like I mean I don't know if anyone is list- if anyone could possibly be listening to this podcast who hasn't seen that match. But if you haven't, like please watch this match. It's yeah. it's just such a special moment in the history of pro wrestling. Like just. I've said it a million times about this match. It's the closest thing to a religious experience wrestling can ever be. And so, yes, it's the match of the year. <laughs> and if we want to go, we were talking about this earlier. Even if we want to go by the Al Snow um, metric of the best match is the match that draws the most money. Well, this was Ring of Honor's best selling DVD of all time. It was yep. all on the back of this match. So even by that metric. Yep. It's the best. Definitely. Um. So some quick honorable mentions I want to get give out, Matt, if you want to throw on any two. These are just some matches I considered but did not put my top five. Uh, Aries versus Cabana in the cage I think was like probably the first great match of this year. Uh, Danielson and Samoa Joe versus Jack Evans and Austin Aries, that match where it was kind of like a one-man show from Austin Aries, I mean Jack Evans early in the year. Back in those first few months where I was like so in love with Jack Evans, where I was like, if he keeps this up, He's going to be my, one of my top three of the wrestlers of the year. Well, unfortunately, he could not keep that up all year, but what a match. Um, Danielson versus Homicide in the cage. It was not quite as much as I hoped, but still a great match. Punk versus Aries, where Punk won the title. Great match and great emotional end. Uh, Nigel versus Colt. European rounds. You knew I had to have that least in an honorable mention, Matt. It's the match I love more than even the people who wrestled the match. We had that confirmed from Colt Cabana. I'm the only person that really loves that match. I had to put it here. And uh, Roderick Strong versus James Gibson. Uh, you know, Gibson's last match was great. And then finally, Homicide and Kobashi versus Loki and Samoa Joe is a great, great match. And I almost wanted to put this in my top five because I feel like it does not get the credit it deserves because it lives in the shadow of Joe versus Kobashi. But that is one of the very – it is a fantastic match in its own right and one of the very best tag matches the company did all year. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um I guess the only matches that I would add, because I think you probably had most of them, like, would be a lot of the James Gibson matches. Um, the matches that he had against Austin Aries, I liked a lot. Um, you mentioned the, the match against Strong, which I thought was really, really good. Um, his match against Samoa Joe, I liked a lot more than you. I thought that was a great match. I also really liked Roderick Strong against uh, AJ Styles. I liked Roderick Strong against James Gibson from Best of American Super Juniors a lot. I liked Spanky against Danielson from Best of American Super Juniors a lot. So there were there were a lot of great matches this year, um, but you know some matches just towered over the rest, as tends to happen. Yeah, it, it was a, you know for much as I complained a little bit earlier, you know, tons of great stuff this year, and that brings us to our final award, Wrestler of the Year. In 2002, I gave it to Low Key. Matt, you gave it to Brian Danielson. In 2003, we gave it to Homicide consensus pick. In 2004, we gave it to Samoa Joe, consensus pick. Will this be the third straight consensus pick? Who knows? Um, Matt, who is your third favorite wrestler of 2005? And as always with this award, there's no real criteria. It can be for whatever criteria you want. It's just who in your gut were your three best. My number three was James Gibson. He showed up 
he had this great emotional connection to the crowd and he put on this like really tight and strong series of matches throughout the year. I mean, like in a lot of these shows, he's the guy that you count on to have the really memorable match, you know, whether, you know, and I mentioned a bunch of them, you know, starting with a match against uh, Spanky right off the bat that got over really well, had, you know, really good matches against Joe, against Strong, uh, he had matches against, um, a good match against Homicide, uh, really good in a couple of four-way matches, um, good, but maybe slightly disappointing match against, um, against, uh, CM Punk at, at Redemption, you know, I really, I mean, I mean, at, um, at Fate of an Angel, I really love the four-way at Redemption, I love the match against Danielson, I love the match against Strong, and just throughout it all, he just really had this amazing connection with the crowd to the point where I don't even totally understand what was so special about it, but it was just that special. Um, few guys really connected with the crowd that much. So I think he really made a mark. People still talk about his run in ROH as like really the greatest run of his whole career. So I think that he definitely deserves a spot in this list of best wrestlers of 2005, even though he wasn't there for the final uh, three months of the year. Uh, yeah, I may talk about him in a second, but my third favorite wrestler of this year was Brian Danielson. And it's funny because I think 2005 Brian Danielson in Ring of Honor had kind of a year like Brian Danielson had last year where he had a good, a pretty good with some a couple great performances early part of the year. Then he disappeared for a while and then he came back and you were like, oh. Like he's not going to be able to fit fit into the end of year awards because he just isn't going to be around for enough of the year. And then he goes on such a great streak to end of the year. You're like, God damn it, he's just making it in. And I feel like he did that with a you know with the WWE stuff with you know like Roman Reigns and the WrestleMania match stuff like that. And then he left for a bunch of the year and then came back at the end. And I feel like he did that in Ring of Honor where you know he had the, the I think we agreed the Homicide best of five feud. It was good but not quite what we hoped for. But it was still very good in some way. You know, the, we, you can hear all our, our complaints about, it, but it was still overall pretty good. And that Brian, I mean that Danielson Spanky match from Best of American Super Juniors was great. And the Aries match again, I mentioned. Um, it was probably their worst match. Like I said before, I still think that's like a four star match. And then he leaves and then he comes back and he immediately has the fantastic match with Gibson. And from there, it's just his title reign. And I think he did just enough with that title reign where I was like, by the end, by the two strong matches and, and the Romero match. And now the Marafuji match, I was just like, yeah, he wasn't there the whole year, but there are a lot of guys this year that didn't get to do the whole year. And I felt like he did just enough where I was like, he needs to be in the top three here. Yeah, he's um he's my number 4, I would say. Um just because of how much he missed. Um but yeah, I mean, especially after he came back, it's just like, oh my god, what a revelation. I mean, everyone knows this guy was the best in the world. The only reason he didn't have the best year is because he missed some of it. Um but yeah, I mean, and also because I know what's coming in 2006. So, he's he's my number 4 pick, but there were just a few guys that I thought were had a better years. Yeah, I, I would say until the last two or three shows, he was going to be my four too. Like he just, I, I, he had done just enough by then. I was like, God damn it! Like I think he just did enough just to, to get in the top three. But uh, Matt, who's your number two? My number two pick is Roderick Strong. Um, this is a year where like you really see everyone realize, oh my gosh, this guy like he's a star uh, at this. 
um, you know, from the beginning of the year, you realized, you know, from the way he's booked, that Gabe suddenly was like, oh, wow, we can do something with Roderick Strong. And I'll be damned if he doesn't do something with Roderick Strong. You know, from right off the bat, he starts having good matches with Carino. Then he gets hurt for a little while. Then he comes right back, has a great match with Gibson, has these a few really awesome tag team matches uh, with Jack Evans as his partner, has multiple great matches against CM Punk. The second one being, I think, a truly star-making turn. Um, great match against AJ Styles. Um, you know, I think, again, what I consider to be Matt Hardy's best singles match. Uh, wins Survival of the Fittest. Has an, a really amazing match against Gibson in his farewell. Two epic, epic matches against um, Brian Danielson to close out the year. And I think a really good tag team title match where he wins the title at the end. Um, you know, he starts the year as a secondary guy in a stable, and by the end, people are arguing whether or not he should be the main guy. <laughs> you know, like, he, he, this was a, just such a breakout year for him, and he, you know, like, I, you know, I mean, he's continued to get better as a wrestler in a lot of ways, but, you know, I feel like in 2005, his potential seemed as bright as you'd ever see it. And this was a really, great year for him yeah strong was one of the very last guys i cut from my top three uh i agree with what you said i feel like he was the workhorse of the promotion i mean he was the one of the guys that just stayed from beginning to end didn't really miss any shows and was just always hardworking, always good had a bunch of great matches and yeah this was the year where gabe really put him in lots of different positions to kind of start getting pushed i guess i at the end of the day you know, I miss a little bit of that charisma. He didn't really have one great angle or, or something like that. I kind of wish, you know, something like that. I wish he had a little bit, something that kind of held the year together more than just he's good, really good and was getting pushed this year. But I can't argue with anyone that puts him in the top three, especially because like, I think even Gabe on commentary was trying to sell him in the final few shows as like, you know, or getting people to sell him as like, you know, he's the MVP. Of, you know, even when they were doing the Gibson thing, it was like, who wins this is going to be the MVP of 2005. And you can definitely make an argument that he was the MVP. But my number two is James Gibson, who was your number three, which is funny because I feel like during the year you were a little bit higher on Gibson than I was in general. But yet I'm putting him at two and you're putting him at three. But I feel like if Joe versus Kobashi is like the platonic ideal of what you want um, a dream match to be, I feel like uh, Gibson is like what you want a WWE like released wrestler to be in your indie because you know he didn't he immediately just went into it with arms wide open working his butt off clearly in love with with it like he did not see it as a step down even though obviously he went back to WWE as soon as he could um the fans embraced him immediately they didn't have any resentment like indie fans can occasionally have at, during in this era for guys and he was just so consistently having good match after good match and and we talked about so often he did the little things that so many wrestlers in Ring of Honor were not doing, you know, these veteran little things and just his enthusiasm and his love for Ring of Honor. Like he is the best case scenario for getting a WWE guy in this era. And uh, Matt, your number one, it's going to be interesting because either we're going to have another consensus pick or we're going to be way off the board with each other. <laughs> so I'm interested in seeing um, my number one is CM Punk. And which is, you know, interesting because he missed, literally the entire final third of the year 
Um, but what he did before that was just so overwhelmingly dominant in my mind of what 2005 ROH was. You know, even before the summer of punk, he was such a beloved babyface hero to the point where, like, you just never see that in ROH. Um, like the way he was just this ultimate babyface. Um, had this great feud with Jimmy Rave, and I feel like made Jimmy Rave a star while also putting in these great performances. Um, in the in the dog collar match, and especially in the cage match, and that first match that you mentioned at the anniversary show, you know he he was the guy who gave the speech at the beginning of the third anniversary, like the heart and soul of ROH um, for real. You know all the way through to the moment he left. You know he has that great match with Aries. You know, kind of a gimmicky match, but a great match with Aries to turn heel. Everybody remembers the heel turn. He goes on to sign a dishonor where he signs the contract and just has this epic one night performance. And I think gives Jay Lethal the chance to have a real star making match. Then the next night has his second match with Roderick Strong, which I think is Roderick Strong's big breakout moment in match. Um, does an hour long draw that's, you know, maybe some people just dis- find disappointing, but he still did it with Daniels. I love the match where he finally loses the title at Redemption and then has this magical final moment that people still talk about to this day where he exits the promotion and has that final two out of three falls match with Colt Cabana. I just think he was just, he just carried the emotional weight of ROH for so long and he did everything so well. And I just, when I think of 2005 ROH, even though he wasn't there for the last part of the year, I still think of CM Punk probably before anybody else. So he is my wrestler of the year for Ring of Honor for 2005. Well, we disagree because my wrestler of the year is Chad Cole. No, it's uh, CM Punk. (laughs) I agree Um, with everything you said. You know, it's funny. uh, In 2003, I put, Paul London at my number three spot, and I agonized over that because anyone, any long time through the years listener knows how big I was into Paul London's one year run. But the first half of it was like the second half of 02, and the second half of it was only the first half of 03. I was like, I can't justify putting this guy any higher than three. And I thought Matt's going to think I'm crazy for even putting him for three for half a year. And then I think you put him at two that year. So, (laughs) so, but, but this punk, it's, it's kind of the same. Because, you know, he only went till like partway into, I think, August, and then he's gone. That's still last... that's still eight months, though, you know? Yeah. Like, better part of eight months anyway. For sure. But I also think, also, I would say the difference is Punk wore so many hats for Ring of Honor, and, like, he was the beating, like, there's a lot of times the rest of the year is just someone that's had a lot of great matches or performances. Punk was, like, the soul of the company for much of the last couple of years, and in 2005, like... I said it when we ended when we did this final show, like no one else in Ring of Honor br- brought the exact package of stuff as CM Punk. Like there are people that will be better wrestlers than CM Punk in Ring of Honor, but although he was a great one, but like no one else brought the package of g- promos as good as his, matches as good as his, angles as good as his, you know, all tied together. He even did commentary and like just having something like the summer of punk or the Ray feud, like those things really, I felt like in some ways they kind of carried the first half of the year and they kind of made the first half in some respects feel more like 2004, where it was these long angle driven feud driven things that were always big parts of the shows. And I feel like ring of honor will have a hard time recapturing that except for one feud we're going to get to, but 
he was just a special talent. No one else quite filled all the roles he did. And he did it really well in uh, 2005. Just he, he had some of his better matches, although not quite Joe versus Punk ones. And it's kind of one of his most memorable feuds, angles of all time. Um, honorable mentions here for me. Roderick Strong just missed it for me. I really wanted to give Nigel McGuinness his props because I feel like he has been such a great character all year and consistently very good in the ring. And... I I almost wanted to put him at number three. I just I had to give Danielson it. And Jack Evans, if we had a best wrestler of the first quarter of 2005, Jack Evans would have been in my top three. I wish I could, Jack, but it was the whole year. Not enough. Sorry. So. And if I can name one other one other honorable mention, which yeah, is go ahead. guy that I feel like maybe the booking didn't do justice to this year more than anybody, I think I would say Alex Shelley who really yes. had a lot of potential to be a big star. And I think, it not by any fault of his own, I think the booking just slightly missed the mark with him. He could have been a breakout baby face, and they just were they just didn't pull the trigger on it, and eventually had to turn him heel. And, you know, he relished in being a heel and did a great job, but I feel like they could have had something with him, and they, they, I, didn't, they didn't do it. Yeah, if we had a Ring of Honor like, like the Observer, like, underpushed or you know underrated underutilized like alex shelley would be a top contender would be like a good top contender for number one spot yeah yeah um you know what's funny about before we go on to the we just got a couple bits left but uh you know what's funny i wanted to say here quickly you and i we both put samoa joe's the wrestler of the year last year he did not make either of our lists despite had, despite the- having the match of the year yeah, and he he was one of the guys. He did work all year. He didn't have a Gibson Danielson punk style thing where you know he missed part of the year. And the funny thing is, we're gonna go over it in just a second. But all the awards, like that, all the like the torch and the reader polls and the observer gave out, like Joe finished at or near the top of so many awards this year. This was Joe's breakout year in a way that even 2004 was kind of his breakout year, but it really this was far bigger. And I think part of that was Joe versus Kobashi, but part of it was really just. How there are a large number of fans that would not watch independent wrestling. Like, I think going to TNA really broke him to a new level. And so, yeah, maybe if you include all the TNA stuff, Joe would be worthy of this award. But I think if you just go by Ring of Honor stuff, I don't think we're crazy. It's not that Joe had a bad year and he did have our match of the year. But, like, I I don't think it's crazy that neither of us even had him on the list. No, we had a lot of those, like, good but not great mid-card matches in 2005. He just did. Um, but yeah, no, he, his best stuff other than Kobashi in 2005 was in TNA. Yeah. Um, he had a lot of great matches in TNA. He had an awesome year in TNA. He was amazing. Um, but you know, for sensible reasons, his, he was saving his best stuff for TV and pay-per-view. I mean, can you blame him? I can't. Um, but we're just rating ring of honor. So we got to go with what we got. So the next thing we do, which is one of the last things we do on these, is always the point where my voice starts going out and we start rushing and we've been on too long. But I like to go over the awards other sites give. But this time I'm omitting the PW Torch Awards because, quite frankly, this year it's also it's in the interest of same time. And quite frankly, they weren't that interesting because here's the thing. Very rarely did any uh, Ring of Honor guys make those lists, and when they did, it was almost always just Samoa Joe near the top of lists. So just just know that. But I did want to do a couple quick torch things before we go to the Observer. The first was Sean Radikin, who was kind of Ring of Honor, the torches Ring of Honor specialist. He had his own top five for the year. So I thought just another guy who was covering a lot of the shows and attending shows, what he thought, he put Aries at five, 
Rave at four, Roderick Strong at three, CM Punk at two, and James Gibson at number one. So I, I, I don't think that's a bad list at all. Certainly a little bit different. I think Aries did have a very good year. He didn't quite make it on ours, but and Rave did too. This was a breakout year for Jimmy Rave in a lot of ways from a character standpoint. Um, and then Matt, I want to do this for a little bit of a weird one. The one last note on the Torch. The Torch did a lot this year of online polls, and then they just published those results in the Observer. In the Torch, be weird if they published them in the Observer. And there was only one award that was weird, which was the Pro Wrestling Torch online reader poll for best tag team. Uh, Eminem won with forty-seven percent. America's Most Wanted did 17%. Roderick Strong and Austin Aries finished fourth for tag team of the year. Matt, they had barely been a tag team together. Like, Yeah, what? <laughs> the, the, yeah, for me, from that one match at Night of the Grudges 2? <laughs> most of their match, I think they wrestled five tag matches together, if you're, if you're just going two-on-two tag matches. And most of them were like in the last few months, so they wouldn't have made tape yet. And yet they got finished fourth in an online vote for the best tag team in all of wrestling. So that was something I just thought I had to mention how bizarre that was. Um, that brings us to the great Observer Awards. Always an interesting barometer of what the general kind of wrestling nerd public thought. So I always go through just the ones that Ring of Honor people were in. The Luthez Ric Flair Award, which is for Wrestler of the Year. For those who don't know that, I always have to remind you, the Luthez Ric Flair Award is not just who was the best in the ring. It's supposed to be a combination of best in the ring and biggest draw. Kenta Kobashi won this year. Samoa Joe finished second. AJ Styles finished 10th. So uh, Dave had a problem with Samoa Joe finishing second. This is what he wrote. Samoa Joe had great matches and could be the face of TNA when it gets on the map in a real way. But that's for 2007, and it's a maybe at best. It is far from happening now. I've got no argument against Joe as most outstanding wrestler of the year, which is the award for just best in ring. But as, but an independent guy for most of the year who isn't even well known among average wrestling fans in his home country, finishing a strong number two during a year with so many strong candidates uh, shows that more American bias in the voting than in most years. So I mean, yeah, I like, mean, based on the, the, um, the standards of the award and based on the parameters, I guess he's right. Yeah. Like for, I mean, for comparison, I'm just looking at the list here. Joe finished above Paraguayo jr. Mystico, Eddie Guerrero, Satoshi Kojima, uh, Shawn Michaels. I mean, those are some of the wrestlers he finished above. So, yeah, you know, people a lot of times just confuse this award. Now we go to most outstanding wrestler. This is just for best in-ring. Samoa Joe did win this. He actually beat out Kobashi. AJ Styles finished second. Kenta finished fourth. Brian Danielson finished ninth. Uh, Christopher Daniels finished 11th. And Jamie Noble, they listed as Noble, not Gibson, finished 13th. Um, Dave wrote, Joe had a year of spectacular matches in the Ring of Honor and later TNA. For this award, he's a very deserving winner. At the age of 26, he's the youngest wrestler to win this award in nearly a decade, moving up from a fifth-place finish last year. Kenta and Danielson, both 24, also look to potentially dominate this list for years to come. You're right there, Dave. A feud of the year, Matt. Batista versus Triple H won. Ring of Honor uh, did have three that finished outside the top ten. What would you pick? Was the what would you think, Matt, would be the highest rated Ring of Honor feud in two thousand five? Oh my gosh, I, I gotta probably think of something weird because, like, obviously for me it would be like CM Punk versus ROH, and then CM Punk versus Jimmy Rave and the Embassy. But am I gonna guess the Embassy versus Generation next? 
Brian Danielson versus Homicide finished 11th for Feud of the Year. It was the highest turning Ring of Honor feud. <laughs> wow. Okay. Yeah. I guess people just were watching early year Ring of Honor more than other parts of the year. CM Punk versus Ring of Honor finished 13th, and CM Punk versus Jimmy Ray finished 15th. So I wonder if CM Punk versus ROH was hurt just because maybe people didn't realize. Maybe I wonder if some people thought, can you really vote for a guy versus an entire promotion? Like, yeah, I, I mean, I guess that, that. That, that makes sense. But clearly some did, enough to finish 13th. But, I mean, that was, to my mind, one of the hottest feuds in all of pro wrestling, and but, it finishes 13th. But how many votes are you getting if you finish 13th in the Observer Awards? Like, yeah, not like, that. Like five? Like, I'm serious. Like, it's probably not many at all. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there were a lot of big feuds that year, though. Batista, Triple H, Eddie and Ray, um, Edge versus Matt Hardy, which maybe it finished fifth, even though you could argue, you could make an argument it was also the worst, a bad feud in some ways. I mean, yeah. Hulk Hogan versus Shawn Michaels, remember those weird promos? I mean, there was a lot of memorable stuff in 05. But really, once you're getting out of the top 10, you're really talking about extremely few votes. Yeah. Um, next we get tag team of the year. America's most wanted one. Kenta Marafuji finished second. Jack Evans and Roderick Strong finished ninth. So no one in the Observer Awards voted Aries and Strong. So that's one Observer readers one, Torch readers zero. So Evans and Strong, Evans and Strong were a really great tag team. Yeah, I mean they could have. I mean, yeah, I, I still wish they would have done more together. They did a fair bit, but man, they could have had a tag run them, on themselves. But uh. Most improved, this was an award, Matt, where Ring of Honor dominated. So for this one, I want to name off all the Ring of Honor guys that did here. And I want you to say, like, do you think it's warranted? Did they really improve year over year? Because a lot of times Observer readers, I think many of them, it's more, oh, I discovered this guy this year. But if you really went back and watched them where they were wrestling, they didn't always improve. All right, so the Ring of Honor wrestler that finished the highest year, the one who won the entire award for the entire wrestling world, Roderick Strong won most improved would you say he was improved over 2004? Yes. Yes, I would too. Although I think he was already pretty good by the end of 2004. Still really um, improved. Batista finished second. Okay, the next Ring of Honor wrestler, Jimmy Rave. Was Jimmy Rave finished fifth in the award? Would you say Jimmy Rave was better than he was in 2004? Yes. I would too. Um, I think a lot of it was more from the character standpoint than the wrestling standpoint. That counts. Um, Colt Cabana finished sixth. Would you say Colt Cabana was better in 2005 than 2004? If so, I'd say it was fairly marginal. He was already really good, and I think, you know, I mean, he probably continued to improve, So, but not most improved. I think by the time – when he came back from that last European – UK excursion in like later into 04, that's when he made his last like big jump. And I think from there, like he's kind of the same Colt you see in 2005. He's really good. Um, seven was James Gibson. I mean, James, that's always a question of, like, how much of that is improved and how much of that is he just didn't get a chance to show how good he was. Yeah, it's really impossible to say. But in terms of what he actually was able to show in the ring, I would say, yes, it's a big improvement than any other time in his career. Number eight was Alex Shelley, who it's interesting because I think we just argued that he actually kind of did not get used to his full potential. in. in but, of course, some of this might be TNA stuff. I don't know. Yeah, I think he's another guy like he didn't get a really a chance to show. I think he showed more in 2004, but he also had more of a chance. And number nine was Austin Aries. He improved, I think, in terms of his personality and charisma, I would say. In the ring, I think he was already really awesome. 
And it's it's interesting though how much Ring, the Ring of Honor had one, two, three, four, five, six of the top ten most improved wrestlers, which maybe just tells you maybe more people were watching Ring of Honor at this point and yes. discovering people. Well, for sure they were. And uh, Dave wrote for this award, as always. Strong came into his own and will be getting more of a push in the next year. I just want to write that because I want to document all 25 times in 2005 <laughs> Dave said Roderick Strong will be getting more of a push soon. Because- but like, it didn't take a rocket scientist to think that Strong was getting more of a push. They kept saying it on like commentary, basically, that Roderick Strong is becoming a big star. And yes, he was getting world title matches. Multiple ones. <laughs> so yes, yeah. he was getting more of a push. Best on interviews. Eddie Guerrero won. CM Punk finished second. Mick Foley was the only other Ring of Honor even related guy. He finished 15th. I want to read this out, Matt, because I thought this was a little bit of a head scratcher, but maybe I'm wrong. Dave wrote about this. Although Mick Foley wasn't around in high profile situations, even his Ring of Honor stuff alone should make him crack the top 10. I don't think like Mick Foley's promos were always fun and, and, and genial and charismatic. And he did, you know, he did a fairly good job, but I didn't think oh, when I see Mick Foley, I don't think, man, those were blow away promos in ring of honor. Also, yeah, I mean, he guess he gave like one really major promo segment at the very first show in 2005 where like his promo was kind of the main event of the show. But otherwise, I feel like his promos were not that major in 2005. I think his his more dramatic promos were in 2004, actually. But, you know, I guess Final Battle counted for the awards, Final Battle 04. I don't know. I mean, he was a really good promo and there weren't a ton at this point. CM Punk was really awesome, though. And he yeah. de- he definitely deserves that spot. He might even deserve number one, honestly. I don't I don't really remember Eddie Guerrero's promos that much. I know it was a lot of stuff with that that feud with Rey Mysterio, with Dominic, and all that stuff. And like, I remember people not thinking that was a very tasteful angle at the time. <laughs> so, uh, you know, who knows? But sure, I'm glad Eddie Guerrero got that award, regardless. Now, here's the interesting thing. So, best interviews was. Eddie won Punk 2. Bet most charismatic, which you would think would be fairly closely related. Eddie won. CM Punk drops to 15. So wow. Punk is in fact the only guy from Ring of Honor that to even make any part of the list. So I guess you can't have charisma if you're not on the big TV shows. Yep. And best technical wrestler, of course, this would be a reward. Danielson would dominate so much it is now named after him. Danielson won it this year. Gibson fourth. Samoa Joe sixth. Daniels seventh. Who was number two? Chris Benoit. (laughs) Oh, right. Oh, right, him. (laughs) He who should not be named. Well, the funny funny thing about Benoit was that he would keep winning those technical wrestling awards even after he really stopped doing that style. Like, when he went to WWE, he wasn't really doing a lot of technical wrestling, even though he would say he's the best technical wrestler. Like, he was basically doing, like, suplexes and chops and stomps and stuff when WWE, you know? I feel like if Chris Benoit has died just from like an innocuous heart attack and not from a murder suicide where he eliminated his family, like he probably would have won or gotten votes in this award like three years after his death. Like yeah. some people would just been the same people that voted Aries and Strong for tag team of the year at the torch would have been like, yeah, you know, Benoit in spirit. He was the best of the year. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, Daniel seventh, Kenta eighth, Doug Williams tenth, and Nigel finished eleventh. Poor Nigel can't quite crack the top ten, but. Um, the Bruiser Brody Award for Best Brawler, Samoa Joe won it, Abyss finished third, Homicide fourth, and Necro Butcher, who we did not see in Ring of Honor, but we did cover one of his matches this year, he finished fifth, so the Necro Butcher buzz was growing before he even got to Ring of Honor, but we will start seeing him next year. That Joe match was what got him started as being super buzzworthy, I would say. 
Yeah. It is funny still to this day to see like Necro Butcher and Award finishing above Triple H and Kento Kobashi, who, who finished sixth and tenth respectively. <laughs> um, best flying wrestler AJ Styles won, Mystical finished second, Jack Evans third, Christopher Daniels eighth. I wonder if there's anyone else from Ring of Honor that we would get. I mean, Matt Seidel, he didn't get to show a lot yet in Ring of Honor, but he's a really good flying wrestler at this point. Yeah. Not in the top 10. Um, most underrated, Shelton Benjamin won, CM Punk finished seventh, Brian Kendrick 10th, Alex Shelley 13th. Uh, Dave wrote, aside from Punk, who was pushed as a star in Ohio Valley Wrestling, I can see strong cases for everyone. I like the idea that if you're being pushed in Ohio Valley Wrestling, that you're not underrated. <laughs> like, if you're one of the best promos in the world and just had an incredible run in a very, very demanding promotion, like, oh, he's not being underrated. He's in Ohio Valley Wrestling. Like, okay. Dave loved OVW. Yeah. Um, promotion of the year, Pro Wrestling Noah won. Ring of Honor finished fourth. If you take out MMA promotions, it finished third. Uh, CMLL finished second. UFC finished, uh, third. Um, Dave wrote, unlike just about every other company, Ring of Honor has a claim to fame in that they virtually never have a bad show and have many great ones. Still, they're an indie that doesn't have, that doesn't pay for high priced talent and has no television. They contended for first last year and still finished strong this year. Again, that's another one of those weird things where I can see if you don't, if you want to include like money from a standpoint, money generating, yeah, Ring of Honor shouldn't be in the conversation. But the idea that like they don't pay high priced talent, well, isn't that then like almost a feather in their cap that they're still this good? Well, maybe like, that's what, maybe that's what he's saying. Maybe, maybe, maybe I'm reading it the wrong way. Uh, match of the year. They agree with us, Matt. Kenta Kobashi versus Samoa Joe, one match of the year. Um, Samoa Joe versus Christopher Daniels versus AJ Styles from TNA finished fourth. And uh, Austin Aries versus Samoa Joe from Final Battle finished 16th. So there's that example of uh, a match from late in a year finishing, you know, in the next year's awards. The people, interesting people, thing – oh, going on. People were only going to vote for matches that Meltzer himself promoted and re- and, and watched. Like that, th- those are the only things that are going to show up. I will say this is the first of three years in a row that ROH wins the match of the year in The Observer. Yeah, I mean – it's a pretty crazy run. Dave wrote, Kobashi now surpassed Mitsuhara Masao with six wins in match of the year. As noted, he had the winning match in the US, Japan, and Europe this year. Kobashi versus Joe was not only a great match, but it was the only match of the year that greatly elevated a promotion. Ring of Honor DVD business showed a marked improvement, obviously from that tape, which is the best selling company history, but led to a huge increase in tape business for a company that relies on tape business. Angle versus Michaels was a great match on the right stage, but it didn't elevate the company nor did any of the other matches in the listings. Um, so yeah, just to point out what Dave says about how Kobashi had the match of the year in three places. Yeah, the best match in the U.S. was the number one match. It was Joe versus Kobashi. Uh, the best match in Japan finished third, which was Kobashi versus Kensuke Sasaki from the Tokyo Dome. And then the best match from the U.K., I believe, was like a Kobashi. Let me see if I can find it. It was uh, It was like a Kobashi tag in the U.K., it was uh, Doug Williams. It was and June Akiyama versus Kento Kobashi and Go Shiyazaki in in England. So like he finished had the best match in three continents in one year. So that's a pretty crazy little stat. Rookie of the year Shingo Tagagi won. Davy Andrews finished seventh. So Davy Andrews beating out the Miz who finished ninth and the Boogeyman who finished tenth. His career is already over. 
Um, you know, Deviant is only two spots behind Bobby Lashley, Matt. Uh, best non-wrestler, Eric Bischoff won. Prince Nana finished third. Julius Smokes finished ninth. Mick Foley, 12th. Dominic Mysterio finished 11th, Matt. Dominic Mysterio <laughs> probably doing better in the awards in 2005 than he would today. So I would say so. Um, best TV announcer, Dave Prezak finished ninth. Mike Tenay won it. Uh, worst television announcer, Jonathan Coachman won it. Jimmy Bauer finished fifth. Poor Jimmy Bauer. Um, our old friend Gabe Sapolsky. I don't, I don't agree. I don't think he belongs on that list. Best pro wrestling show, pro wrestling Noah's Destiny show, won it, the July 18th show. The only Ring of Honor show that made it, Manhattan Mayhem, finished seventh. Funny enough, oh. the only Ring of Honor show that Dave Meltzer reviewed the whole show of. So <laughs> I wonder how, funny how that works. Some wrestling, a lot of UFC shows made it here, even though it's supposed to be your best wrestling show. But other shows that beat out Manhattan Man was ECW One Night Stand, WrestleMania that year, Vengeance that year. So those were the ones that beat it. Um, those are all really good shows. Yeah. Uh, Booker of the Year, Gabe Sapolsky won for the second straight year. He Yay, beat out all famous. Gabe, you deserve it. Clap, clap, clap. <laughs> he beat out Dave's best friend, Joe Silva, Masawa, Cornette. He beat them all. Promoter of the year, Dana White won. Carrie Silken finished fifth. Vince McMahon finished seventh. So Carrie Silken, a better promoter than Vince McMahon. Hell yeah. <laughs> and finally, the last one award, best gimmick. Miss, all right, so I'll say this first. Samoa Joe finished fifth. Abyss 11th. Milano Collection AT 12th. Delirious 14th. CM Punk finished 15th. I mean, 18th, I think. Either fifth, no, 15th, I think. So, but Matt, I want to say this for Gang Ring of Honor. How about this for a top three of gimmicks of the year? Number one was Mr. Kennedy. Number two was the Boogeyman. Number three was Japan's Razor Ramon Hard Gay. <laughs> yeah, that's quite a list. I I also <laughs> want to mention, like, if Samoa Joe is a gimmick, then I don't know what gimmick means. Exactly. Like Samoa Joe is just like I don't get why if you said what's the best gimmick in Ring of Honor. Samoa Joe wouldn't make my top five. Because he's not a gimmick, like, he's just a yeah. guy, and that's his name. Like, <laughs> And so that is that. So now we turn our attention. 2006 is coming, folks. That was very it's, thorough, Trevor, I have to say. It, it, it is going to be our longest year ever, Matt, because 2002, we had 12 shows to cover. 2003 had 20. 2004 had 23. 2005 had 34 shows. Matt, 2006 has 42 shows we have to review it will be the longest year we will ever do on this show if we survive yes if we survive always a good question always a big question mark never know um but that's that's two years that we finished since the pandemic started look at us surviving (laughs) and uh there are some i mean that in many ways a lot of people would say i think would be 2006 is maybe the best year of ring of honor history i think a lot of people would remember we'll we will be the deciders but It'll have what many people think is the best feud ever with the CZW Ring of Honor feud. Chris Hero comes in. Necro Butcher comes in. Super Dragon comes in. Um, it all kicks off on the next show. Hell yeah. Yeah. I mean, you've got um, the don't first have to wait. return. Nigel McGuinness versus Danielson in one of my favorite Ring of Honor matches ever. Just so much. Kenta keeps coming back. Dragon Gate with a five-star match that wins Match of the Year in the Observer and all over the place. So much stuff happens. Kenta versus and, Danielson in my, one of my favorite Ring of Honor matches ever. 
Uh, yeah, the homicides chase for the title. Like so much stuff happens. Like you know, for fans that have been with this podcast since the beginning, like you've earned this. Like we are in it now. We have finally gotten to this point. I mean, it's been all great, but we are in like the creamy middle of this podcast now. Um, not to creep people out, but uh, too late. So plugs, uh, as always, through the years at gmail.com, T-H-R-O-H for emails. We have a thread on the Pro Wrestling Only Plugs Forum. Twitter, at Trevor Dame and at Mayor MGF. As Matt said, it all starts, 2006 kicks off with a huge bang because hell is going to freeze over as that's the name of the show we review. Hell freezes over. It is finally Chris Hero comes to Ring of Honor, what becomes the unofficial start of the Ring of Honor CZW feud. There's a whole huge story about Chris Hero's coming to Ring of Honor, which we will go into in detail. It's going to be a crazy way to kick off 2006. I can't wait. Um, Matt, thank you. Thank everybody who has followed us through a whole another year of Ring of Honor. We hope you stick around for the next one. It's going to be insane. And until next time, have a good time. Have a great time.